Chapter 20 I don't like it, Molly said, scowling. You sure you don't want me to go in there with you? He's got people. Definitely not, I said calmly. I don't want you showing up on his radar. I'd like to see him try something, Molly said, clenching one hand into a fist and thumping the blue beetle's steering wheel for emphasis. I'd eat him for breakfast. No, Molly, I said in a firm tone of voice. You wouldn't. Marcone might be vanilla mortal, but he's dangerous. Most men have limits. He doesn't. Never forget that. If he's so dangerous, why are you talking to him? Because he also has rules, I said. And besides, I just had to see him here. Keep your eyes open for a third party interfering. I'll worry about Marcone, okay? Okay, Molly said, nodding her eyes intent. In a spectacular bid for the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do award, she took a long pull from an energy drink in a can the size of a milk carton. Okay. I got out of the Blue Beetle and walked into my meeting with Gentleman Johnny Marcone, the undisputed gang lord of Chicago. Burger King had just opened its dining area, but it was already half full. I ignored Marcone upon coming in and got in line. A sausage biscuit and cup of coffee later, I went to the back corner where Marcone sat in his retinue stood. Hendricks was there, of course, in an extra-large suit and a red-haired buzz cut. Maybe he'd been working out, because he looked like he'd put on a few more pounds. If he got any bigger, he'd need a building permit. Miss Guard stood a little apart from Hendricks, covering the angles the big man couldn't. She was just as blonde and athletic and Amazonian as ever, her suit and tie muting her curves without reducing her appeal. Marcone sat in the booth as if at a boardroom table. He wore a silk suit, probably worth more than my car, and sat with his elbows on the table, his fingertips pressed together into a steeple. He looked like a man in his mature prime, neat and precise from his haircut to his polished leather shoes. He watched me come over to the table and slide my plastic tray into place before me. I dumped four or five packets of sugar into my coffee and stirred it with the little stick. You're not eating? He looked at his watch and then at me. He had pale green eyes the color of old bills, but less personal. His stare was unsettling and he met my eyes without concern. We had already taken the measure of each other's souls. It was why I knew precisely how dangerous the man sitting across the table from me could be, and why I insisted upon treating him in as cavalier a fashion as possible. One doesn't show dangerous predators weakness or fear. It makes them hungry. I savored a bite of the biscuit, which was only a reminder of how good a real homemade biscuit and sausage was, but for the sake of my audience, I made sounds of enjoyment as I chewed and swallowed. You sure? I slurped some more coffee. You're missing out on ambrosia here. Dresden, Marcone said. This is aggravating, even for you. Yeah, I said, smiling, and took another bite of sausage. Hendricks made a growling sound. I finished chewing and said, You sure about that, big guy? Hendricks, Marcone said. Hendricks subsided. I nodded. Then I said, You have information I want. Undoubtedly, Marcone said. What information are you after, and what do you offer for it? I'm not here to trade baseball cards with you, Marcone, I said. 
And I'm not a charity organization, Dresden, he replied. I take it that this has something to do with your office building exploding. He shook his head in a gesture of faint regret. Right, I said. You're all broken up over the destruction. I didn't order it. I made no money on it. I failed to profit financially or politically from its destruction, and you survived. It was a complete waste. Hendricks made another growling sound that might have been gorilla for a laugh. Maybe it's got something to do with the building. How much do you know about its owners? Marcon's smile was a wintry thing. That they are part of the organization whose servitors have been attempting to intrude upon my business. I lifted an eyebrow. Someone's muscling in on your territory? Briefly, Marcone said, but incessantly. Then we might have a common problem. Marcone looked at me as though I were a rather slow child. Yes, hence this meeting. I grunted and finished the biscuit. The Red Court is on the move. Trouble is being stirred up between them and the Council. My interest in the matter is an eight-year-old girl. The Reds took her from her home. I believe that they're holding her somewhere in Mexico. I need to know where. Marcon's stare went on for several seconds before he said, Somewhere in Mexico. That's as specific as you can be. It's as much as I know, I said. For what purpose was she brought there? Why does it matter? If she was taken to be used as a sexual object, she would be in a different place than if she was going to be used as slave labor or harvested as an organ donor. I clenched my teeth and looked away briefly, treated to a number of delightful images by his words. Marcone's eyes narrowed. Who is she to you, Dresden? My client's kid, I said, struggling to keep my voice level and calm. I think they're going to use her in some sort of sacrificial ritual. Then that narrows things considerably, Marcone said. As I understand the process, rituals such as the one you mention need to happen at a place of power. He glanced up at Miss Gard, who nodded and immediately left the restaurant, heading for her car. I suspect I can narrow it down even further for you, Dresden. Let's talk price. I'm going to use the information to put a major hurting on the people trying to take your territory away from you, Marcone, I said. That's more than payment enough. And if I do not agree? Marcone asked. Then we throw down, right here. And after I toss your attack dogs over the top of the Sears building, I hurt you until you give me the information anyway. That cold smile returned. Is that how you think it would happen? I shrugged a shoulder and kept my expression bland. I think there's only one way to find out. I leaned forward a little and pitched my voice in a conspiratorial murmur. But just between you and me, I don't think the terrain favors you here. He stared across his steepled fingers at me for a time, then he said, it certainly doesn't favor me in the manner I would prefer. He laid his hands flat on the table and leaned back slightly. There's no sense in making a confrontation out of this, and I have never yet regretted it when I allowed you to rid me of an enemy. I didn't do it as a favor to you, he shrugged. 
Your motivations are immaterial. The results are what matter. Just remember that you're on my list, Marcone. Soon as I get done with all the other evils in this town, you won't be the lesser of them anymore. Marcone stared at me with half-lidded eyes and said, Eek. You think it's funny? I'm not unduly concerned by dead men, Dresden. I bristled. Is that a threat? Hardly. One day, probably soon, you'll get yourself killed, thanks to that set of irrational compulsions you call a conscience. Long before my name tops your list. I needn't lift a finger, he shrugged. Giving you information seems an excellent way to accelerate that process. It will also tax the resources of my enemies. Marcone mused for a moment and then said, And I believe I have no objection to contributing against any organization which would victimize children, so. I glowered at him, partly because he was probably right, and partly because he'd once again shown the flash of humanity that prevented me from lumping him in with every other evil, hungry, predatory thing lurking in the wild world. For his own reasons, Marcone would go to extreme lengths to help and protect children. In Chicago, any adult was fair game for his businesses. Any child was off-limits. Rumor had it that he had vanished every single one of his employees who had ever crossed that line. Guard reappeared, frowning, and walked over to our table. Marcone glanced at her. Well? Guard hesitated and then said, he won't speak of it over the line. He says that you have incurred no debt with him for asking the question. He will only speak to Dresden personally. Marcone lifted his eyebrows. Interesting. I thought so, Guard said. Ahem, I said. Who wants to meet me? My employer, Guard said. Donar Vaderung, CEO of Monarch Securities. Chapter 21 Guard and I went to Oslo. It sounds like it would be a long trip, but it's a hell of a lot faster when you don't have to worry about boarding, clearing security, going through customs, or actually moving a linear distance. Guard opened a way into the never-never down near the zoo, simply cutting at the fabric of reality with a rune-etched dagger. The way took us on a short hike through a dark wood of dead trees, and ended when we emerged in what she said was Iceland. It sure as hell was cold enough. A second way took us across the surface of a frozen lake to stop before the roots of a vast old tree whose trunk could have contained my apartment with room to spare for a garage. From there we emerged into what seemed like a cold, damp basement, and I found myself face to face with two dozen men wearing body armor and pointing sleek-looking high-tech assault rifles at the end of my nose. I did absolutely nothing, carefully. One of the men with guns said something, a short phrase in a language I didn't understand. Guard answered in what I presumed to be the same tongue and gestured to me. The leader of the guards eyed us both suspiciously for a moment, then said something quietly, and all the rifles stopped pointing at me. Two guards returned to stand on either side of the doorway. Two more took up a station facing guard and me, evidently cautious about getting more company through the same way we just used. 
The rest returned to a couple of card tables and a few sleeping cots. Guard shook her head and muttered, Ein Herjar, give them a little sip of renewed mortality and four thousand years of discipline go right out the window. I recognize some of these guys, I said. I nodded toward a trio playing cards. Those three. They were some of the mercenaries Marcone brought to that party in the Wraith Deeps. Guard glanced at the three and then rolled her eyes. Yes, and? And they're just available for hire, I asked. If you can afford them, Guard said, smiling so that her teeth showed. Though be warned that prices may vary. This way, Dresden. I followed her out into a hallway and passed several rooms filled with enough weaponry to win a minor war in a century of one's choice. Racks of ashwood spears stood side by side with old bolt-action Mausers, which stood next to modern assault rifles. Katana-style swords shared a room with flintlocks and Maxim guns. One shelving unit housed an evolutionary progression of grenades, from powder-filled crockery with ignitable fuses to the most modern miniature flashbang grenades. Judging from the variety of the place's contents, it was like looking at a museum. But from the quantities present, it could only be an armory. We got to an elevator whose walls were only a metal grid so that we could see out of them as we went up. I stopped counting after seeing seven floors of similarly equipped armories go by. Guess your boss believes in being prepared, I said. Guard smiled. It's one of his things, yes? It's a little extreme, isn't it? She looked at me with an arched brow. Then she said, One can have only as much preparation as he has foresight. I considered that for a moment, and decided that as cryptic statements go, it was all kinds of bad. The elevator kept going up and up and up. Brief views of various floors went by. One floor looked like an enormous gym and was filled with sweating men and women working out. Another looked like an expensive legal office. Another was all done in antiseptic white, bathed with just a bit too much light and smelled of disinfectant. Another was lit by candles and the murmuring of voices chanting. Still another was obviously some kind of enormous chemical laboratory. Still another level was filled with cells whose occupants could not be seen as anything other than shadowy presences, and so on. I shook my head. Hell's bells, it's like some kind of demented theme park. The difference being that nothing you see here is meant to entertain, Guard said. And don't bother asking questions. I won't answer them. Ha! Ah, we've reached the ground floor. The elevator continued to rise up through an enormous atrium that housed ten or twelve stories of what looked like high-end corporate offices. Each floor was open to the atrium, and between the plants, decorative trees, the waterfall, and all the windows, plus the skylights far above, the entire building looked like a single massive garden. The sounds of office activity and equipment birds and the flowing waterfall all blended together into an active hole that formed a white noise bustling with life, variety, and movement. We soared up through the atrium, and our open-sided elevator vanished into a short tunnel. A moment later, the door opened on a rather novel reception area. It had all the things such offices always did, a prominent desk, several seats in a waiting area, a coffee machine, and a table laden with magazines. 
In this office, however, all of those materials were made of stainless steel. So were the floors, so were the walls, as was the ceiling. Even the lamps and the coffee pot were made of stainless steel. The magazines alone stood out as shapeless, soft-looking blobs of garish color. The logo for Monarch Security stood out upon one wall in bas-relief, and somehow reminded me more of a crest upon a shield than a corporate marketing symbol. A thick, round circle bisected by a straight, vertical line emerging from either side of the circle. It might have been a simplified, abstract representation of an eye being cut from its socket by some kind of blade. I have some of that symbol written in scar tissue on my own face, where a cut had run down from eyebrow to cheekbone, but had barely missed my eye. It might have been simple, abstract symbology, representing the female and the male, with round and straight shapes, suggesting wholeness and balance. Or, heck, it could have been overlaid Greek lettering, Omega and Iota on top of each other. Omega, Iota. The last detail? The final detail? Maybe it meant something more like every last little thing. Or maybe it combined all of those things. The blind eye that sees all. Yeah, that felt right. Two women sat behind the big desk at computer monitors consisting of small clouds of very fine mist wherein were contained all the drifting images and letters of the company's cyber-reality, floating like the wispiest of illusions. Sufficiently advanced technology, I suppose. The women themselves were, apparently, identical twins. Both had raven-dark hair cut in close-fitting caps, and it matched the exact shade of their identical black suits. Both had dark eyes that sparkled with intensity and intelligence. They were both pale, and their features were remarkable, if not precisely beautiful. They would stand out in any crowd, and not in an unpleasant way, either, but they would never be mistaken for cover models. The twins rose as the elevator doors opened, and their eyes looked very intent and very black as they stared at us. I've looked down the barrel of a gun before. This was like looking down four of them at once. They stood there, inhumanly motionless. Both wore headsets, but only one of them murmured into hers. I started to step out of the elevator, but Guard put out a cautionary hand. Don't, until you're approved, she said. They'll kill you. Maybe me, too. Like they're receptionists tough in these parts, huh? It would be wiser not to joke, she said quietly. They don't miss anything, and they never forget. The receptionist who had spoken into her mic flexed one hand slowly closed and open. Her nails peeled up silver curls from the stainless steel desk. I thought about making a manicure joke and decided not to. Go, go, gadget wisdom. Do you do oranges, too? asked my mouth, without checking in with the rest of me. What about sharpening table knives and scissors and lawn tools? My landlady's lawnmower blade could use a hand job from a girl like you. Dresden! Guard hissed, her eyes both furious and wide with near panic. Both of the receptionists were focused on me intently now. The one who had remained silent shifted her weight, as though preparing to take a step. Come on, Sigrun, I said to my companion. I'm trying to be diplomatic. The wisdom of my ass is well known. If I didn't lip off to them, after shooting my mouth off to fairy queens and vampire courts, plural, courts, 
demigods and demon lords, they might get their feelings hurt. Guard eyed me for a moment more before her uncertain blue eyes gained a gleam of devil-may-care defiance. It looked a lot more natural on her than fear. Perhaps your insults and insolence are not the valued commodities you believe them to be. Huh, I said, good one. The chatty twin tilted her head slightly to one side for a moment, then said, Right away, sir. She pointed her fingernail at me. You are to enter the office through the doors behind me. She aimed her nail at guard next. You are to accompany him and make introductions. Guard nodded shortly and then tilted her head in a come-along sort of gesture. We walked out of the elevator and passed the twins to the door behind them. They turned their heads as I went by, tracking my every movement. It was downright creepy. On the other side of the door was a long hallway, also made of stainless steel. There were multiple ports or hatches of some kind in rows along the walls, all closed. They were about the size of dinner plates. I got the feeling that any visitors who tried the hors d'oeuvres served up from those plates would not be asking for the recipe later in the evening. At the end of the hall was another set of steel doors, which gave way soundlessly before us, revealing another room done all in stainless steel, holding only a massive desk behind which was seated a man. Donar Vaderong sat with his chin propped on the heel of his hand, squinting at a holographic computer display, and the first thing my instincts did was warn me that he was very, very dangerous. He wasn't all that imposing to look at, a man in good shape, maybe in his early fifties, lean and spare in the way of long-distance runners, but too heavy in the shoulders and arms for that to be all he did. His hair was long for a man, and just a bit shaggy. It was the color of a furious thundercloud, and his eye was ice blue. A black cloth patch over the other eye combined with a vertical scar similar to my own, made me think that I'd been right about the corporate logo. He kept a short, neat beard. He was a striking-looking rogue, particularly with the eye patch, and looked like the sort of person who might have served thirty years of a triple-life sentence and managed to talk the parole board into setting him free, probably to their eventual regret. Sigrun, he said, his tone polite. Guard went down to one knee and bowed her head. There was no hesitation whatsoever to the woman's movements. The gesture was not simply a technicality, she had to observe. She believed that Vaderung merited such obeisance. My lord, Guard said, I've brought the wizard as you commanded. Well done, the gray-haired man said, and made a gesture to indicate that she should rise. I don't think she saw it with her head bowed like that, but she reacted to it anyway and stood up. Maybe they just had a few hundred years to practice. My lord... May I present Harry Dresden, wizard and warden of the White Council of Wizards? I nodded to Vaderung. Wizard, this is Donar Vaderung, CEO of Monarch Secure. I think I've got a pretty good idea what he's in charge of, I said quietly. The old man's mouth turned faintly up at the corners when I spoke. He gestured to a steel chair across the desk from him. Please, sit down. I pointed at the holographic display. You sure you want to put that at risk? If I stand too close to it... Vaderung turned his face up to the ceiling and barked out a laugh of genuine amusement. I'll take my chances. Suits me, I said.
I walked over to the desk and sat down in the steel chair across from Vaderung's. It didn't have a cushion or anything, but it was surprisingly comfortable, nonetheless. Coffee, he asked me. Something to eat? I paused for a breath to think before answering. Duties such as this involved the obligations and responsibilities of guest to host, and vice versa. If Vaderung was who I thought he was, he had been known from time to time to go forth and test people on how well they upheld that particular tradition, with generous rewards for the faithful and hideous demises for the miserly, callous, or cruel. In the supernatural world, such obligations and limits seem to be of vital importance to the overwhelming number of supernatural beings. I'm not sure why. Maybe it has something to do with the thresholds of protective energy that form around a home. Only if it isn't too much trouble, I said. And something to eat, Vaderung told guard. She bowed her head and said, My lord. Then she padded out. Though the big man hadn't stood up, I realized that he was big. Damn near a giant, really. Standing, he'd have more than a couple inches on me, and his shoulders made mine look about as wide as the spine of a book. He rested his chin on the heel of his hand again and studied me with his bright blue eye. Well, he said, I take it you believe you know who I am. I've got a few guesses, I said. I think they're good ones. Sigrun was kind of a tip-off, but honestly, that's got nothing to do with why I'm here today. The blue eye wrinkled at the corners. Doesn't it? I frowned at him and tilted my head. How so? He lifted a hand palm up as he explained. Someone with enough foresight might, for example, arrange to be in a position to assist a hot-headed young wizard of the White Council one day. Perhaps who I am is directly responsible for why I am here. Yeah, I guess that could be it, I said. It's technically possible that your motives for assisting me are altruistic. On the other hand, it's also technically possible that you are speaking with a forked tongue, and that all you're really trying to do is find some way to take advantage of me when I'm under pressure. I shrugged. No offense intended, but there's kind of a shortage of altruism out there. So cynical for one so young, he looked me up and down. But you would be. You would be. I've got questions, I said. Granted, they aren't as profound as who am I or why am I here, but they're a lot more important to me at the moment. Batarung nodded. You're looking for your daughter. I felt my body go rigid. How? He smiled rather wolfishly. I know things, Dresden. And if I don't know something, I can find out. Like yourself, it is what I do. I stared at the man for most of a minute. Then I said, Do you know where she is? No, he said in a quiet, firm voice. But I know where she will be. I looked down at my hands. What's it going to cost me to find out? Chichen Itza, Vaderung said. I jerked my head up in surprise. I stared at the man for a moment. I don't understand, Vaderung asked. It isn't complicated. I'm on your side, boy. I raked my fingers back through my hair, thinking, Why there? The Red King and his inner circle, the lords of the outer night, have got some big juju to brew up. They need a sight of power to do it. 
for this, they'll use Chichen Itza. Why there? They're enacting a sacrifice. Like in the old days. A snarl of anger touched his voice and made it suddenly frightening. They're preparing a bloodline curse. A what? Death magic, he said. Focused upon the bloodline. From the sacrifice, the child, to her brothers, sisters, and parents. From the parents to their brothers, sisters, and grandparents, and so on, until there's no one left. A chill hit my guts. I've never even heard of death magic on that kind of scale. The energy required for that, it's enormous. I stopped for a moment and then said, And it's stupid. Susan was an only child, and she's already lost her parents. Same with me. Batarung arched an eyebrow at me. Is it? They like to be thorough, those old monsters. I smoothed my expression over, trying not to give away anything. The spell they were doing would kill me if they pulled it off. It could also kill my only family, my half-brother, Thomas. How does it work? I asked him, my voice subdued. It tears out the heart, Batarung said. Rips it to bits on the way out, too. Sound familiar? Hell's bells, I said quietly. It had been years since I had even thought about Victor Sells or his victims. They had featured in my nightmares for quite a while, until I upgraded. Vaterung leaned toward me, his blue eye very bright. It's all connected, Dresden. The whole game. And you're only now beginning to learn who the players are. He settled back into his seat, letting silence add emphasis to his statement before he continued. The sorcerer who used the spell in Chicago before didn't have the strength enough to make it spread past the initial target. The Red Court does. No one has used power on this scale in more than a millennium. And they're pointing it at me? They say you can know a man by his enemies, Dresden. He smiled, and laughter lurked beneath his next words, never quite surfacing. You defy beings that should cow you into silence. You resist forces that are inevitable, for no more reason than that you believe they should be resisted. You bow your head to neither demons nor angels, and you put yourself in harm's way to defend those who cannot defend themselves. He nodded slowly. I think I like you. I arched an eyebrow and studied him for a moment. Then help me. Batarung pursed his lips in thought. In that, you may be disappointed. I am not what I was. My children are scattered around the world. Most of them have forgotten our purpose. Once the Yotuns retreated, he shook his head. What you must understand is that you face beings such as I in this battle. I frowned. You mean gods? Mostly retired gods, at any rate, Batarung said. Once, entire civilizations bowed to them. Now they are venerated by only a handful. The power of their blood spread out among thousands of offspring. But in the lords of outer night, even the remnants of that power are more than you can face as you are. I've heard that one before, I said. Batarung just looked at me. Then he said, let me help you understand.
and a force like a hundred anvils smashed me out of the chair and onto the floor. I found myself on my back, gasping like a landed fish. I struggled to move, to push myself up, but I couldn't do so much as lift my arms from the ground. I brought my will into focus, with the idea of using it to deflect some of that force from me, and and suddenly sharply felt my will directly in contention with another. The power that held me down was not earth magic, as I had assumed it to be. It was the simple, raw, brute application of the will of Donner Vaderung, Thunder's father, the father and king of the Aesir. Father Odin's will held me pinned to the floor, and I could no more escape it or force it away than could an insect stop a shoe from descending. In the instant that realization came to me, the force vanished, evaporating as if it had never been. I lay on the floor, gasping. It is within my capabilities to kill you, young wizard, Baderung said quietly. I could wish you dead, especially here at the center of my power on Midgard. He got up, came around the desk, and offered me his hand. I took it. He pulled me to my feet, steady as a rock. You will be at the center of their power. There will be a dozen of them, each nearly as strong as I am. He put a hand on my shoulder briefly. You are bold, clever, and from time to time lucky. All of those are excellent qualities to have in battles like yours. But against power such as this, you cannot prevail as you are. Even if you are able to challenge the Red King at Chichen Itza, you will be crushed down as you were a moment ago. You'll be able to do nothing but watch as your daughter dies. He stared at me in silence for a time. Then the door to his office opened and one of the receptionists leaned in. Sir, she said, you have a lunch appointment in five minutes. Indeed, Madarung said. Thank you, M. She nodded and retreated again. Baderung turned back to me as Guard returned to the room, carrying a covered tray. She set it down on the big steel desk and stepped back unobtrusively. You've defied fate, Dresden, Baderung said. You've stood up to foes much larger than you. For that, you have my respect. Do you think I could swap in the respect for, I don't know, half a dozen Valkyries, a receptionist, and a couple of platoons of dead heroes? Vaderung laughed again. He had a hearty laugh like Santa Claus must have had when he was young and playing football. I couldn't do without my receptionists, I'm afraid, he sobered. And those others would be less strong at the center of the Red King's power. He shook his head. Like it or not, this is a mortal matter. It must be settled by mortals. You're not going to help, I said quietly. He went to a steel closet and opened the door, removing an overcoat. He slipped into it and then walked over to me again. I've been in this game for a long, long time, boy. How do you know I haven't given you exactly what you need? Vaderung took the lid off the covered tray, nodded to me pleasantly, and left. I looked at the tray. A cup of tea steamed there, three empty paper packets of sugar beside it. The tea smelled like peppermint, a favorite. Next to the cup of tea was a little plate with two cake donuts on it, 
both of them covered in thick white frosting and unmarred by sprinkles or any other edible decorations. I looked up in time to see Vaderung walk by, trailed by the pair of receptionists, and saw them all simply vanish, presumably into a way. Well, Guard asked me, are you ready to go? Just a minute, I said. I sat back down, and I drank the tea and ate the doughnuts, thoughtfully. Chapter 22 I needed sleep. I rode back to my place with Molly in the mid-morning. Mouse came padding up the stairs from the apartment as we got out of the car, his alert, wary stance relaxing into the usual waving of a doggy tail and enthusiastic sniffs and nudges of greeting. I shambled on into my apartment calmly. All was obviously well. Susan and Martin were both inside, both busy, as Mr. looked on from his lordly peak atop the highest bookshelf. Susan had been shaking out all the rugs and carpets that covered the floor of my living room and was now rolling them back into place, probably not in the same order as they had been before. She picked up one end of a sofa with a couple of fingers of one hand to get an edge into place. Martin was alphabetizing my bookshelves. They used to kill men for sacrilege like that. I suppressed my twitches as best I could and told myself that they thought they were helping. Success, Susan said, or at least a little of it. Our people found out exactly who was tailing us up here. Yeah, I asked. Who? The Ebes, she said. Molly came in and frowned severely at what they were doing. Granted, the place was kind of a mess after the FBI and cops got done, but still. She was probably as used to the place as I was. Sounds like the Scoobies, only less distinctive. Martin shook his head. Esteban and Esmeralda Batiste, he clarified. One of the husband-wife teams the Red Court uses for field work. One of? I asked. Couples traveling together attract less attention, Susan said. They're often given the benefit of the doubt in any kind of judgment call made by various officers of the law. It smooths things out a little more than they would be otherwise. Hence, you and Martin, I said. Yes, said Martin, obviously. Esteban and Esmeralda are notorious, Susan said. They're unorthodox, difficult to predict, which is saying something when you're talking about vampires. They'll throw away their personnel, too, if that's what it takes to get results. Personally, I think it's because they have some kind of gruesome variation of love for each other. Makes them more emotional. They have complementary insanities, Martin said. Don't dignify it with anything more. The one you said got away, Harry, Susan said. Esteban, probably. He rabbits early and often, which probably explains why he's still alive. Esmeralda would have been the spotter on top of a nearby building, also the one who probably triggered the explosives. Got to figure they're behind the hit outside the FBI building, too, I said. Tinted windows on the car. Shooter was way back inside the back seat, away from the window. Maybe, sure, Susan said. They'll suit up in all-over coverage and head out in the daytime if they think it's really necessary. I grunted. So, Esteban and Esmeralda. Ebes, Susan said firmly. So the Ebes aren't really fighters. They're planners, fair to say. Very much so, said Martin. There might have been a faint note of approval in his voice. I nodded. So they and their vampire gang were supposed to follow you, only when they saw you heading into the data center, they were forced to do more than shadow you. They tried to protect the data. All rational. 
Susan began to frown and then nodded at me. Of course, Martin said. Difficult to predict, but never stupid. So why, I said, if they were here operating under orders from the Duchess to foil your efforts, would they take the trouble to try an assassination on me? Martin opened his mouth and then closed it again, frowning. I mean, Ariana wants to see me suffer, right? Thank God for cliched mindsets, by the way. I can't do that if I'm dead. I go early, it cheats her of the fun. There's division in the ranks of the Red Court, Susan murmured. It's the only thing that would explain it. Countervailing interests, and at the summit of their hierarchy, too. Or, Martin said, it was not the, he sighed, Ebes who made the attempt. But I haven't seen any of the other people who want to kill me lately, I said. I saw the Ebes just the other night. They're the simplest explanation. Martin tilted his head slightly in allowance. But remember that what you have is a theory, not a fact. You are not blessed with a shortage of foes, Dresden. Um, Harry? Molly asked. I turned to her. I don't know if I'm supposed to jump in with this kind of thing or not, but if there's some kind of internal schism going on inside the Red Court, what if the kidnapping and so on is like a cover for something else she's doing inside her court? I mean, maybe it isn't all about you, or at least not only about you. I stared at her blankly for a moment. But for that to be true, I said, I would have to not be the center of the universe. Molly rolled her eyes. Good thought, Grasshopper, I said. Something to keep in mind. Maybe we're the diversion. Does it matter? Susan asked. I mean, as far as our interests go? I shrugged. We'll have to see, I guess. She grimaced. If the Ebes are working for a different faction than Ariana, then there goes our only lead. I was hoping I could convince them to tell us where Maggie was being held. Worth a try in any case, Martin said, if we can catch them. We could do that, I said. Or we could make sure we've got Chichen Itza staked out and grab her when the Reds bring her there for their uber-magic shindig. Susan whirled to face me, her eyes wide. What? They're pulling off their big ceremony at Chichen Itza, I said. I met Susan's eyes and nodded. I found her. She'll be there. And we'll go get her. Susan let out a fiercely joyful cry and pounced upon me clear from the other side of the room. The impact drove my back up against one of the bookshelves. Susan's legs twined around my waist, and her mouth found mine. Her lips were fever-hot and sweet, and when they touched mine, silent fire spread out into my body and briefly consumed all thought. My arms closed around her, around Susan, so warm and real and and so very, very here. My heart lurched into double time, and I started to feel a little dizzy. Mouse's growl rolled through the room, sudden and deep in his chest. Rodriguez, Martin barked, his voice tense. Susan's lips lifted from mine, and when she opened her eyes, they were solid black all the way across, just like a red vampire's. My lips and tongue still tingled at the touch of her mouth a very faint echo of the insidious venom of one of the reds. Bright red tattoos showed on her face, her neck, and winding down one arm. She stared at me for a moment, dazed, then blinked slowly and looked over her shoulder at Martin. You're close, 
he said in a very quiet, very soothing voice. You need to back down. You need to take some time to breathe. Something like rage filled Susan's face for an instant. Then she shuddered, glancing from Martin to me and back, and then began disentangling herself from me. Sun's out, and it's warm, Martin said, taking her elbow gently. Come on, we'll get some sun and walk and sort things out. Sun, Susan said, her voice still low and husky with arousal. Right, some sun. Martin shot me a look that he probably hoped would kill me, and then he and Susan left the apartment and walked up into the morning's light. Molly waited until they were well away from the front door and said, Well, that was stupid of you both. I looked over my shoulder at her and frowned. Call it like I see it, my apprentice said quietly. You know she has trouble controlling her emotions, her instincts. She shouldn't have been all over you, and you shouldn't have kissed her back. Her mouth tightened. Someone could have gotten hurt. I rubbed at my still tingling lips for a moment and suppressed a flash of anger. Molly? I get it, she said. I do. Look, you care about her, okay? Maybe even loved her. Maybe she loved you. But it can't be like that anymore. She spread her hands and said, As messed up as that is, it's still the reality you have to live with. You can't ignore it. You get close to her and there's no way for it to come out good, boss. I stared hard at her, all the rage inside me coming out in my voice, despite the fact that I tried to hold it in. Be careful, Molly. Molly blanched and looked away, but she folded her arms and stood her ground. I'm saying this because I care, Harry. You care about Susan? I asked. You don't even know her. Not Susan, she said. You. I took a step toward her. You don't know a goddamn thing about me and Susan, Molly. I know that you already blame yourself for what happened to her, she said, spitting out the words. Think about what it'll be like for her if she gets lost in a kiss with you and realizes later that she ripped your throat open and drank your blood and turned herself into a monster. Is that how you want your story, Susan and Harry, to end? The words made me want to start screaming. I don't know what kept me from lashing out at the girl, other than the fact that she would never believe me capable of such a thing. And she was right. That might have something to do with it. So I took a deep breath and closed my eyes and fought down the rage again. I was getting tired of that. When I spoke, a moment later my voice sounded raw. Study with the wizard has made you manipulative. She sniffed a couple of times, and I opened my eyes to see her crying silently. No, she said. That was my mom. I made a sound of acknowledgement and nodded. She looked at me and made no move to wipe the tears from her face. You look awful. I found out some things, I said. She bit her lip. It's bad, isn't it? I nodded. I said, real bad. We're... I shook my head. Without the council support, I don't see how it can be done. There's a way, she said. There's always a way. That's sort of the problem, I said. 
I looked at the hopelessly organized bookshelf nearest me. I think I'd like to be by myself for a while, I said. Molly looked at me, her posture that of someone being careful, as if they're concerned that any move might shatter a delicate object. You're sure? Mouse made a little whining noise in his throat. I'm not going to do anything desperate, I told her. Not yet, anyway. I just need some time. Okay, she said. Come on, Mouse. Mouse watched me worriedly, but padded out of the apartment and up the stairs with Molly. I went to my shower, started it up, stripped, and got under the cold water. I just stood there with it sheeting over me for a while and tried to think. Mostly, I thought about how good Susan's mouth had felt. I waited for the cold water to sluice that particular thought down to a bearable level. Then I thought about Vatterung's warning about the Red Court. I've taken on some tough customers in my time, but none of them had been godlike beings, or the remnants of them, or whatever the lords of Outer Night and the Red King were. You couldn't challenge something like that in a direct confrontation and win. I might have powers, sure. Hell, on a good day I'd go along with someone who said that I was one of the top twenty or thirty wizards on the planet in terms of sheer magical muscle. And my finesse and skill continued to improve. Give me a couple of hundred years, and I might be one of the top two or three wizards on the planet. Of course, if Marcone was right, I'd never make it that high. And the boss predator of the concrete jungle was not stupid. In fact, I'd say that there was an excellent chance I wouldn't live another two or three days. I couldn't challenge the masters of the Red Court and win. But they had my little girl. I know. It shouldn't matter that she was my little girl in particular. I should have been just as outraged that any little girl was trapped in such monstrous hands. But it did matter. Maggie was my child, and it mattered a whole hell of a lot. I stood in the shower until the cold water had muted away all the hormones, all the emotion, all the mindless power of blood calling to blood. After thinking about it for a while... I decided that three courses lay open to me. The enemy was strong, so I could show up with more muscle on my side. I could round up every friend, every ally, every shady character who owed me a solid. Enough assistance could turn the tide of any battle, and I had no illusions that it would be a battle of epic proportions. The problem was that the only people who would show up to that kind of desperate fight were my friends and my friends would die. I would literally be using them to shield myself against the crushing power of the Red King and his court, and I had no illusions of what such a struggle would cost. My friends would die, most of them. Hell, probably all of them, and me with them. Maybe I could get to the kid and get out while my friends gave their lives to make it possible. But after that, then what? Spend my life running with Maggie? always looking over my shoulder, never stopping in one place for longer than a few days. The second thing I could do was to change the confrontation into something else, find some way to sneak up close enough to grab the girl and vanish, skipping the whole doomed struggle part of option one. That plan wouldn't require me to get my friends killed. 
Of course, to pull it off, I'd have to find some way to get more clever and sneakier than beings with millennia of practice and experience at just such acts of infiltration and treachery. You didn't survive for as long as they had among a nation of predators without being awfully smart and careful. I doubted it would be as simple as bopping a couple of guards over the head, then donning their uniforms and sneaking in with my friends, the cowardly lion and the tin woodsman. I had cast myself as the scarecrow in that one. If I only had a brain, I'd be able to come up with a better plan. So the stand-up fight with the all-star team was a bad idea. It probably wouldn't work. The sneaky smash-and-grab at the heart of Red Court power was a bad idea. It probably wouldn't work either. And that left option three, which was unthinkable. Or had been a few days ago, before I knew I was a father. My career as a wizard had been very active. I've smacked a lot of awfully powerful things in the kisser. I've mostly gotten away with it, though I bear the scars, physical and otherwise, of the times I didn't. A lot of the major players looked at me and saw potential for one kind of mayhem or another. Some of them had offered me power. A lot of power. I mean, if I went out, right now, and gathered together everything I could, regardless of the price tag attached to it, it would change the game. It would make me more than just a hot-shot young wizard. It would give my power an intensity, a depth, a scope I could hardly imagine. It would give me the chance to call upon new allies to fight beside me. It would place an almost unlimited number of new weapons at my disposal, open up options that could never otherwise exist. But what about after? I wouldn't have to go on the run with Maggie to protect her from the monsters. I'd be one. Maybe not that day, maybe not that week. But one day, before too long, the things I'd taken into me would change me. And I probably wouldn't mind, even if I bothered to notice it happening. That was the nature of such power. You didn't feel it changing you. There is no sensation to warn you when your soul turns black. Option three shared one commonality with options one and two. I wouldn't survive it. Not as the man I was, the one who tried to make the world a little brighter or more stable, the one who tried to help and who sometimes screwed things up, the one who believed in things like family, like responsibility, like love. But Maggie might survive it, if I did it right, only to be orphaned again in one way or another. I felt so tired. Maybe there isn't a way, whispered a voice in the back of my head. I snapped the water off and reached for a towel. Screw that kind of thinking, Dresden, I ordered myself. There's a way through this, there's a way. You've just got to find it. I dried myself off and stared intently at my stark, scarred, unshaven face in the mirror. It didn't look like the kind of face a child would love. Kid would probably start crying when she got a good look at me. But it might be the kind of face that belonged to a man who could pull her safe out of a mob of bloodthirsty beasts. It was too early to throw in the towel. I had no idea what I was going to do. I just knew that I couldn't give up. Chapter 23 I called Murphy's cell phone. Murphy here! Hey, uh, Murph, how you doing? This line isn't... I know, I said. I know. 
Mine either. Hello, FBI guys. Don't you guys get bored doing this stuff all the time? Murphy snorted into the phone. What's up? I'm thinking about getting a broken-down doormat to go with my broken-down door and the broken-down frame around it, I said. Thank you, FBI guys. Don't make demons of the Bureau, Murphy said. They aren't much more inept than anyone else. There's only so much they can do when they're given bad intelligence. What about your place? I asked. They came, they searched, they left. Rawlins and Stallings and a dozen other guys from SI were here assisting. The Bureau dusted and took out my trash after they were done. I barked out a laugh. The boys at SI got away with that? Murphy sounded decidedly smug. They were there at the request of the new agent in charge. Tilly? You met him, huh? Did, and glad to. Spoke well of you. He's an Aikidoka, Murphy said. I've been to his dojo a few times to teach some practical application classes. He's come out to dojos to teach forms and some formal weapons classes. Oh, right. He's the guy who taught you staff fighting? That's him. We started off in the same class many moons ago. I grunted. Shame to meet him this way. The Bureau generally aren't a bad bunch. This is all about Rudolph, or whoever's giving Rudolph his marching orders. A thought struck me, and I went silent for a moment. Harry, you still there? Yeah, sorry. Was just about to head out for a steak sandwich. Interested? Sure. Twenty? Twenty. Murphy hung up, and I said to the still open line, Hey, if you've got someone watching my place, could you call the cops if anyone tries to steal my Star Wars poster? It's an original. Then I vindictively hung up on the FBI. It made my inner child happy. Twenty minutes later, I walked into McAnally's. It was too early for it to be properly crowded, and Murphy and I sat down at a corner table, the one farthest from the windows, and therefore from laser microphones, in case our federal pursuers had doubled up on their paranoia meds. I began without preamble. Who said Rudolph was getting his orders from his direct superiors, or from anyone in Chicago at all? She frowned and thought about it for a moment. I waited it out patiently. You don't really think that, she said. Do you? I think it's worth looking at. He looked shaky when I saw him. Yeah, Murphy said thoughtfully. At my place, too. I filled her in on the details of what she'd missed, at my place and the FBI building, and by the time I was done, she was nodding confidently. Go on. I nodded. We both know that ladder climbers like Rudolph don't usually get nervous, rushed, and pressured when they're operating with official sanction. They have too much fun swaggering around beating people over the head with their authority club. Don't know if all of them do that, she said, but I know damn well that Rudolph does. Yeah, but this time he was edgy, impatient, desperate. I told her about his behavior in general, and specifically at my place and in the interrogation room downtown. Tilly said that Rudolph had lied his ass off to point the FBI at me. And you believe that? Murphy asked. Don't you? She shrugged. Point. But that doesn't mean he's being used as some kind of agent. I think it does, I said. He's not operating with the full authority of his superiors. Someone else has got to be pushing him. Someone who scared him enough to make him nervous and hasty. Maybe that works, Murphy said. Why would he do it? Someone wanted to make sure I wasn't involved in the search for Maggie. So maybe they sent Rudolph after me. Then, when Tilly turns me loose, they take things to the next level and try to whack me outside the FBI building. 
Murphy's blue eyes were cold at the mention of the assassination attempt. Could they have gotten someone into position that fast? I tried to work it through in my head. After Tilly sent Rudolph out of the room, it didn't take long for me to get out. Ten minutes, fifteen at most. Time enough to call in his failure and for his handler to send in a hit, you think? Murphy thought about it herself and then shook her head slowly. Only if they were very, very close and moved like greased lightning. But, Harry, that hit was too calm, too smooth for something thrown together at the last possible moment. I frowned, and we both clammed up as Mac came over to our table and put a pair of brown bottles down. He was a spare man, bald, and had been, ever since I knew him, dressed in dark clothes and a spotless white apron. We both murmured thanks, and he withdrew again. Okay, she said, and took a pull from the bottle. Maybe Rudolph's handler had already put the assassin in place as a contingency measure, in case you got loose despite Rudolph's efforts. I shook my head. It makes more sense if the assassin was already there, positioned to remove Rudolph once he had served his purpose. Whoever his handler was, they would need a safety measure in place, a link they could cut out of the chain so that nothing would lead back to them. Only once Rudy calls them and tells them he isn't able to keep me locked up, they have the shooter switch targets. Which meant... I had taken three bullets meant for Rudolph. Harry, Murphy asked, why are you laughing? I heard a joke yesterday, I said. I just got it. She frowned at me. You need some rest. You look like hell. And you're obviously tired enough to have gotten the giggles. Wizards don't giggle, I said, hardly able to speak. This is cackling. She eyed me askance and took a pull from her beer. She waited until I had laughed myself out before speaking again. You find out about Maggie yet? Sort of, I said, abruptly sobered. I think I know where she will be in the next few days. I gave her what we had learned about the Duchess's intentions, leaving out the parts where I committed a bunch of crimes like theft, trespassing, and vandalism. So, right now, I concluded... Everyone's checking their contacts in Mexico while I'm talking to you. Susan? she asked. And Father Forthill, I said. Between them, they should be able to find out what's going on at Chichen Itza. Murphy nodded and asked casually, How's she holding up? I took another pull from the bottle and said, She thinks Molly has the hots for me. Murphy snorted. Wow! She must have used her vampire superpowers to have worked that one out. I blinked at Murphy. She stared at me for a second and then rolled her eyes. Oh, come on, Harry. Really? Are you really that clueless? Uh, I said, blinking. Apparently. Murphy shook her head and said, It's always staggering to run into one of your blind spots. You don't have many of them, but when you do, they're a mile wide. She shook her head. You didn't really answer my question, you know. I nodded. Susan's a wreck. Maybe more so because of the whole vampire thing. I don't know, Harry. From what you've said, I don't think you need to look any farther than the whole mommy thing. Could be, I said. Either way, she's sort of fraying at the edges. Like you, Murphy said. I scowled at her. What? She lifted an eyebrow and looked frankly at me. 
I started to get angry with her, but stopped to force myself to think. Am I? She nodded slowly. Did you notice that you've been tapping your left toe on the ground for the past five minutes? I frowned at her and then down at my foot, which was tapping rapidly to the point that my calf muscles were growing tired. I... no. I'm your friend, Harry, she said quietly, and I'm telling you that you aren't too stable yourself right now. Monsters are going to murder my child sometime soon, Murph. Maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow night. Soon. I don't have time for sanity. Murphy nodded slowly, then sighed, like someone setting down an unpleasant burden. So, Chichen Itza. Looks like. Cool. When do we hit him? I shook my head. We can't go all wild bunch on these people. They'll flatten us. She frowned. But the White Council won't be joining us, I said. I couldn't keep a bit of the snarl out of my voice. And, to answer your question, we're not sure when the ritual is supposed to take place. I've got to come up with more information. Rudolph, Murphy said thoughtfully. Rudolph. Someone who is a part of this, probably someone from the Red Court, is leaning on him. I plan on finding that someone and then poking him in the nose until he comes up with some information I can use. I think I'd like to talk to Rudolph, too. We'll start from our ends and work toward the middle again, then? Sounds like a plan. I waved at Mac and pantomimed holding a sandwich in front of me and taking a bite. He nodded and glanced at Murphy. You want a steak sandwich, too? I thought you didn't have time to be sane. I don't, I said. I don't have time to be hungry, either. Chapter 24 How does a police detective afford a place like this? Molly asked. We were sitting in the Blue Beetle on a quiet residential street in Crestwood. It was late afternoon, with a heavy overcast. The houses on the street were large ones. Rudolph's place, whose address I'd gotten from Murphy, was the smallest house on the block, but it was on the block. It backed right up to the Cook County Forest Preserve, too, and between the old forest and the mature trees, it gave the whole area a sheltered pastoral quality. He doesn't, I said quietly. You mean he's dirty? Molly asked. Maybe, I said. Or maybe his family has money. Or maybe he managed to mortgage himself to the eyeballs. People get real stupid when it comes to buying homes. Pay an extra quarter of a million dollars for a place because it's in the right neighborhood. Buy houses they damn well know they can't afford to make the payments on. I shook my head. They should make you take some kind of iota of common sense quiz before you make an offer. Maybe it isn't stupid, Molly said. Everybody wants home to mean something. Maybe the extra money they pay creates that additional meaning for them. I grimaced. I'd rather have my extra meaning come from the ancient burial ground under the swimming pool or from knowing that I built it with my own hands or something. Not everyone puts as low a value on the material as you do, boss. Molly said. For them, maybe the extra material value represented by a higher price tag is significant. I grunted. It's still stupid. From your perspective, Molly said, it's really all about perspective, isn't it? And from the perspective of those in need, that extra quarter of a million bucks your material person spent on the prestige addition for his house 
Looks like an awful lot of life-saving food and medicine that could have existed if the jerk with the big house in the suburbs hadn't blown it all to artificially inflate his socio-geographic penis. Heh, <laughs> Molly said. And their house is much nicer than your house. And that, I said. Mouse grumbled quietly in his sleep from the back seat, and I turned to reach back and rub his ears until he settled down again. Molly sat quietly for almost a minute before she said, What else do we do? Other than sit tight and watch, I asked. This is a stakeout, Molly. It's what you do on a stakeout. Stakeouts suck, Molly said, puffing out a breath that blew a few strands of hair out of her eyes. How come Murphy isn't doing this part? How come we aren't doing magic stuff? Murphy's keeping track of Rudolph at work, I said. I'm watching his home. If his handler wanted him dead, this would be a logical place to bushwhack him. And we're not doing magic because... What do you suggest we do? Tracking spells for Rudolph and Maggie, she said promptly. You got any of Rudolph's blood, hair, fingernail clippings? No, she said. So, no tracking spell for him, I said. But what about Maggie, she said. I know you don't have any hair or anything from her, but you pulled a tracking spell for me using my mother's blood, right? Couldn't you use your blood for that? I kept my breathing steady and prevented the flash of frustration I felt from coming out in my voice. First thing I tried, right after I got off the phone with Susan when this all started. Molly frowned. Why didn't it work? I don't know, I said. Maybe it's because there's something more than simple blood relation involved. Maybe there has to be a bond, a sense of family between the parent and child that the tracking spell uses to amplify its effects. Maybe the red cord is using some kind of magic that conceals or jams tracking spells. God knows, they would have been forced to come up with some kind of countermeasure during the war. I shook my head wearily. Or maybe it was simple distance. I've never tracked anything more than a couple of hundred linear miles away. I've heard of tracking spells that worked over a couple of thousand miles, but not from anyone who had actually done it. Give me some credit, Grasshopper. Of course I tried that. I wouldn't have spent half a day summoning my contacts if I hadn't. Oh, Molly said. She looked troubled. Yeah, sorry. I sighed and tipped my head back and closed my eyes. No problem. Sorry, kid. I'm just tense. Just a little, she said. Um, should we be sitting out here in broad daylight? I mean, we're not hiding the car or anything. Yeah, I said. We want to be visible. Why? I'm going to close my eyes, I told her, just for a bit. Stay alert, okay? She gave me a look, but said, Okay. I closed my eyes, but about half a second after I had, Molly nudged me and said, Wake up, Harry. We have company. I opened them again and found that the gray late afternoon had settled into the murk of early evening. I looked up into the rearview mirror and spotted a white sports car coming to a halt as it parked on the street behind us. The running lights went off as the driver got out. Took him long enough, I muttered. Molly frowned at me. What do you mean? Asked him to meet me here. Didn't know where to find him. Molly peered through the back window, and even Mouse lifted his head to look around. Oh, Molly said, understanding, as Mouse's tail thumped hesitantly against the back of my seat. 
I got out of the car and walked to meet my half-brother, the vampire. Thomas and I were a study in contrasts. I was better than six and a half feet tall and built lean. He was a hair under six feet and looked like a fitness model. My hair was a muddy brown color, generally cut very short on the sides and in back, a little longer on top. It tended to stick up any which way within a few minutes of being ordered by a comb. Thomas's hair was black, naturally wavy, and fell to touch his shoulders. I wore jeans, a T-shirt, and my big black leather duster. Thomas was wearing custom-fitted pants made from white leather, a white silk shirt, and a coarser silk jacket, also in white, decorated with elaborate brocade. He had the kind of face that belonged on billboards. Mine belonged on wanted posters. We had the same contour of chin, and our eyes resembled each other's unmistakably in shape, if not in color. Mom gave them to us. Thomas and I had finally met as adults. He'd been right there next to me in some of the worst places I'd ever walked. He saved my life more than once. I'd returned the favor. But that had been when he decided to fight against his hunger, the vampiric nature native to the vampires of the White Court. He'd spent years maintaining control of his darker urges, integrating with Chicago's society, and generally trying to act like a human being. We'd had to keep our kinship a secret. The council would have used him to get at the white court if they knew. Ditto for the vampires getting at the council through me. Then something bad happened to him, and he stopped trying to be human. I might have seen him for a total of two, even three minutes since he'd been knocked off the life force nibbling wagon and started taking big hearty bites again. Thomas swaggered up to me as if we'd been talking just yesterday looked me up and down, and said, You need an image consultant, stat, little brother. I said, Guess what? You're an uncle. Thomas let his head fall back as he barked out a little laugh. What? No, hardly, unless one of father's byblows actually survived, which essentially just doesn't happen among... He stopped talking in mid-sentence, and his eyes widened. Yeah, I said. Oh, he said, still wide-eyed, apparently locked into motionlessness, by surprise. It was a little creepy. Human beings still look like human beings when they're standing still. Thomas's pale skin and bright eyes went still, like a statue. Oh, I nodded. Say oil can. Thomas blinked. What? You get to be the tin woodsman. What? Never mind, not important, I sighed. Look, without going into too many details, I have an eight-year-old daughter. Susan never told me. Duchess Ariana of the Red Court took her. Um, said Thomas. If I'd known that, maybe I would have been here sooner. Couldn't say anything on the phone. The FBI and the cops are involved, having been made into roadblocks to slow me down. I tilted my head down the street. The cop who lives in that house at the end of the street has been coerced into helping whoever's trying to stop me. I'm here, hoping to nab either his handler or his cleaner and grab every bit of information I can. Thomas looked at me and said, I'm an uncle. I ran the palm of my hand over my face. Sorry, he said. I just thought this was going to be another chat. 
with you all worried that the evil white court had been abusing me. I need to take a moment. Make it a short moment, I said. We're on the clock. Thomas nodded several times and seemed to draw himself back into order. Okay. So you're looking for... What's her name? Maggie. My brother paused for a couple of heartbeats and bowed his head briefly. That's a good name. Susan thought so. So, you are looking for Maggie, he said, and you need my help? I don't know the exact date, but I know she's going to be brought to Chichen Itza. Probably tonight, tomorrow night at the latest. Why? Thomas asked. He then added, And how does this have anything to do with me? They're using her in a bloodline curse, I said. When they sacrifice her, the curse kills her brothers and sisters, then her parents, then their brothers and sisters, and so on. Wait, Maggie has brothers and sisters? Since when have you ever gotten that busy? No, damn it, I half shouted in frustration. That's just an illustration for how the bloodline curse works. His eyebrows shot up. Oh, crap. You're saying that it's going to kill me, too. Yes, that's exactly what I'm freaking saying. You tool. Um, Thomas said. I'm against that. His eyes widened again. Wait, what about the other wraiths? Are they in any danger through me? I shook my head. I don't know. Empty night, he muttered. Okay. You know where she's going to be. You want me to saddle up and help you get Maggie back, like we did with Molly? Not unless there's no other choice. I don't think we would survive a direct assault on the Red King and his retinue on their home turf. Well, maybe you and I couldn't, naturally, but with the council behind you— Way behind me, I interrupted, my voice harsh with anger. So far behind me you wouldn't even know they were there at all. My brother's deep blue eyes flashed with an angry fire. Those assholes! Seconded, motion carried, I agreed. So what do you think we should do? I need information, I said. Get me whatever you can. Any activity at Chichen Itza or a nearby Red stronghold, sightings of a little girl surrounded by Reds, anything. There's got to be something, somewhere, that will show us a chink in their armor. If we find out where they're holding her, we can hit the place. If I can learn something about the defensive magic around the site, maybe I can poke a hole in it so that we can just grab the girl and go. Otherwise... Yeah, Thomas said. Otherwise, we would have to take them on at Chichen Itza, which would suck. It's a couple of miles beyond suck. Thomas frowned. What about asking Lara for help? She can command a lot of firepower from the other houses of the White Court. Why would she help me, I asked. Self-preservation, she's big on that. I grunted. I'm not sure if the rest of your family is in any danger. You aren't sure they aren't, either, Thomas said. And anyway, if you don't know, Lara won't either. Don't be too sure, I said. No. If I go to her with this, she'll assume it's a ploy motivated by desperation. Thomas folded his arms. A lame ploy at that, but you're missing another angle. Oh? Thomas lowered his arms and then brought them up to frame his own torso the way Vanna White used to present the letters on Wheel of Fortune. Incontestably, I'm in danger. She'll want to protect me.
I looked at him skeptically. Thomas shrugged. I play for the team now, Harry, and everyone knows it. If she lets something bad happen to me when I ask for her help, it's going to make a lot of people upset. And not in the helpful, I sure don't want to mess with her kind of way. For that to work as leverage, the stakes would have to be known to the rest of the court, I said. They'd have to know why you were in danger from a bloodline curse aimed at me. Then they'd all know about our blood relation, not just Lara. Thomas frowned over that for a moment, then he shrugged. Still, it might be worth the effort to approach her. She's a resourceful woman, my sister. His expression smoothed over into neutrality. Quite gifted when it comes to removing obstacles. She could probably help you. Normally I slap down suggestions like that without a second thought. This time, I had the second thought. Lara probably knew the Red Court as well as anyone. She'd been operating arm-in-arm arm with them to one degree or another for years. She was the power behind the throne of the White Court, which prided itself on its skills of espionage, manipulation, and other forms of indirect strength. If anyone was likely to know something about the Reds, it was Lara Wraith. The clock just kept on ticking. Maggie was running out of time. She couldn't afford for me to be squeamish. I would prefer not to, I said quietly. I need you to find out whatever you can, man. What happens if I can't find it? If that happens, I shook my head. If I do nothing, my little girl is going to die. And so is my brother. I can't live with that. Thomas nodded. I'll see what I can do. Don't see it. Do it. It came out harsh enough that my brother flinched though it was a subtle motion. Okay, he said. Let's... His head whipped around toward Rudolph's house. What? I asked. He held up a hand for silence, turning to focus intently. Breaking glass, he murmured. A lot of it. Harry? Molly called. I turned to see the Beatles' passenger door swing open. Molly emerged, hanging onto Mouse's collar with both hands. The big dog was focused on Rudolph's house as well, and his chest bubbled with the deep, tearing snarl I'd heard only a handful of times, and always when supernatural predators were nearby. Someone's there for Rudolph, I said, and launched myself forward. Let's go. Chapter 25 I looked like a cool guy leading the charge for about a second and a half, and then my brother and my dog left me and Molly eating their dust. If I hadn't been a regular runner, Molly would have done the same, albeit more gradually. By the time I had covered half the distance, Thomas and Mouse had already bounded around to the back, one around either side of Rudolph's house. Get gone, Grasshopper, I called, and even as we ran forward, Molly vanished behind her best veil. It took us another quarter of a minute to cover the distance, and I went around the side of the house Thomas had taken. I pounded around the back corner to see that a big glass sliding door leading from a wooden deck into the house had been shattered. I could hear a big, thumping beat, as if from a subwoofer, pounding away inside the house. I took the stairs up to the deck in a single jumping stride and barely avoided a sudden explosion of glass, wood, drywall, and siding that came hurling toward me. I had an instant to realize that the projectile that had just come through the wall was my brother, and then something huge and black and swift came crashing through the same wall, expanding the hole to five times its original size. 
The whatever it was stood within a step or two, and I was already sprinting. I kept doing it. I slapped one hand down and vaulted the railing on the far side of the deck. I barely jerked my hand from the rail before the thing smashed it to kindling with one huge, blindingly fast talon. That deep beat grew louder and faster as I landed, and I realized with a shock that I could hear the thing's rising heart rate as clearly as if it had been pounding on a drum. I was kidding myself if I thought I could run from something that fast. I had a step or two on the creature, but it reclaimed them within half a dozen strides and swiped at my head with terrible speed and power. I whirled desperately, drawing my blasting rod and letting out a burst of flame, but I stumbled and fell during the spin. The fire hammered into the creature, and for all the good it did me, I might as well have hit it with a rubber chicken. I thought I was done for until Mouse emerged from the house onto the back deck, bathed in a faint nimbus of blue light. He took a single, bounding, thirty-yard leap that ended at the attacking creature's enormous malformed shoulders. Mouse's claws dug into the thing's hide, and his massive jaws closed on the back of its thick, almost indistinguishable neck. The creature arched up in pain, but it never made a sound. It tripped over me, too distracted to actually attack, but the impact of so much mass and power sent up flares of agony from my ribs and from one thigh. Mouse rode the creature down into the dirt, tearing and worrying it, his claws digging furrows into the flesh of its back. His snarls reverberated in the evening air, and each shake and twist of his body seemed to send up little puffs of glowing blue mist from his fur. Mouse had the thing dead to rights, but nobody seemed to have told the creature that. It twisted lively, bouncing up from the ground as if made of rubber, seized Mouse's tail, and swung the huge dog in a single, complete arc. Mouse hit the ground like a two-hundred-pound sledgehammer, drawing a high-pitched sound of pain from him. I didn't think. I lifted my blasting rod again, filled it with my will, and with all the soul fire I could shove in, screaming, Get off my dog! White fire slammed out of the rod and drew a line on the creature from hip to skull, digging into flesh and setting it ablaze. Once again, it convulsed in silent agony, and the boombox beat of its heart ratcheted up even higher. It fell, unable to hold on to Mouse, and writhed upon the ground. I tried to get up but my injured leg wouldn't support me, and the sudden surge of weariness that overtook me made my arms collapse, too. I lay there, panting and helpless to move. Mouse staggered slowly to his feet, his head hanging, his tongue dangling loosely from his mouth. Behind me I heard a groan, and twisted awkwardly to see Thomas sit up, one shoulder hanging at a malformed angle. His clothes had been ripped to shreds. There was a piece of metal protruding from his abdomen, just next to his belly button, and half his face was covered in a sheet of blood, a little too pale to belong to a human. Thomas! I shouted, or tried to shout. The acoustics were odd in this tunnel within which I was suddenly sprawled. Get up, man! He gave me a blank, concussed stare. The creature's movements had slowed. I turned to see it beginning to relax, its body shuddering, the drumbeat of its heart steadying, and I got a better look at it than I had before. It was huge, easily the size of a well-grown bull, and it carried a stench with it that was similar in potency. Or maybe that was because I had just overcooked it. 
Its body was odd, seemingly able to move on two legs or four with equal efficiency. Its flesh was a rubbery blackness, much like the true skin of a red vampire, and its head was shaped like something mixing the features of a human being, a jaguar, and maybe a crocodile or wild boar. It was pitch black everywhere, including its eyes, its tongue, and its mouth. And despite the punishment I had just dealt out, it was getting up again. Thomas! I shouted, or wheezed. The creature shook its head, and its dead black eyes focused on me. It started toward me, pausing briefly to swat my stunned dog out of its path. Mouse landed in a tumble, seemingly struggling to find his balance, but unable to do so. I lifted my blasting rod again as it came on, but I didn't have enough juice left in me to make the rod do anything but smoke faintly. And then a stone sailed in from nowhere and struck the creature on the snout. Hey! called Molly's voice. Hey, Captain Asphalt! Hey, Tar Baby! Over here! The creature and I turned to see Molly standing maybe twenty yards away, in plain sight. She flung another rock, and it bounced off the creature's broad chest. Its heartbeat began to accelerate and grow louder again. Let's go, gorgeous! Molly called. You and me! She turned sideways to the thing, rolled her hips, and made an exaggerated motion of swatting herself on the ass. Come get some! The thing tensed and then rushed forward, covering the ground with astonishing speed. Molly vanished. The creature smashed into the earth where she'd been standing with its huge talons balled into furious fists, slamming them eight inches into the earth. There was a peal of mocking laughter, and another rock bounced off of the thing, this time from the left. Furious, it whirled to rush Molly again, and again she vanished completely. Once more, it struck at empty ground. Once more, Molly got its attention with a rock and a few taunts, only to vanish from sight as it came at her. Each time, she was a little closer to the creature, unable to match its raw speed, and each time, she led it a little farther away from the three of us. A couple of times, she even shouted, Toro! Toro! Ole! Thomas! I called. Get up! My brother blinked his eyes several times, each time a little more quickly. Then he swiped a hand at the bloodied side of his face, shook his head violently to get the blood out of his eyes, and looked down at the section of metal bar sticking out of his stomach. He clenched it with his hand, grimaced, and drew it slowly out, revealing a six-inch triangle that must have been a corner brace in the wall he'd gone through. He dropped it on the ground, groaning in pain, and his eyes rolled briefly back into his head. I saw his other nature coming over him. His skin grew paler and almost seemed to take on its own glow. His breathing stabilized immediately, and the cut along his hairline where he'd been bleeding began to close. He opened his eyes, and their color had changed from a deep, contented blue to a hungry, metallic silver. He got up smoothly and glanced at me. You bleeding? Nah, I said. I'm good. A few feet away, Mouse got to his feet and shook himself, his tags jingling. Molly had gotten as far as the street again, and there was an enormous crashing sound. This time we do it smart, Thomas said. He turned to Mouse instead of me. I'm going to go in first and get its attention. Go for its strings. I think you'll have to hit two limbs to really cripple it. Mouse woofed, evidently an affirmative, 
let out a grumbling growl, and once more, very faint, very pale blue light gathered around him. Thomas nodded and picked up a section of ruined deck that had scattered around where he landed. He shouldered a corner post, a section of four-by-four four, about a yard and a half long, and said, Don't sweat, Harry. We'll be back for you in a minute. Go Team Dresden, I wheezed. The two of them took off, zero to cheetah speed in about a second. Then they were out of sight. I heard Thomas let out a high-pitched cry that was a pretty darn good Bruce Lee impersonation, and there was a thundercrack of wood striking something hard. An instant later, Mouse let out his battle roar. There was a flicker of strobing colors of light as Molly pitched a bit of dazzling magic at the creature. It wouldn't hurt the thing, but the kid could make eye-searing light in every color imaginable burst from empty air, accompanied by a variety of sounds if she so chose. She called it her one-woman rave spell, and during the last Independence Day, she had used it to throw up a fireworks display from her parents' backyard, so impressive that evidently it had caused traffic problems on the expressway. It was hard to lie there twisted halfway around at the waist to see only the occasional flash of light or to hear the thumps and snarls of combat. I tried my leg again and had no luck. So I just settled down and concentrated on not blacking out or breathing too hard. The creature had definitely cracked one of my ribs. That was when I noticed the two sets of glowing red eyes staring at me from the forest, staring with the unmistakable fixation of a predator, and coming slowly, steadily, silently closer. I suddenly realized that everyone around who might have helped me was sort of distracted at the moment. Oh, I breathed. Oh, crap. Chapter 26 The eyes rushed toward me, and something dark and strong struck me across the jaw. I was already close to losing consciousness. The blow was enough to ring my bells thoroughly. I was conscious of being picked up and tossed over someone's shoulder. Then there was a lot of rapid, sickening motion. It went on long enough for me to throw up. I didn't have enough energy to aim at my abductor. A subjective eternity later, I was thrown to the ground. I lay still, hoping to fool my captor into thinking I was barely conscious and weak as a kitten, which should be easy since I was. I have never really had much ambition as a performer. We don't like it, said a woman's voice. Its power smells foul. We must be patient, replied a man's voice. It could be a great asset. It is listening to us, the woman said. We know that, replied the man. I heard soft footsteps, cushioned by pine needles, and the woman spoke again, more slowly and lower. She sounded hungry. Poor thing, so battered. We should give it a kiss and let it sleep. It would be merciful, and he would be pleased with us. No, our love, he would be satisfied with us. There is a difference. Have we not come to understand this simple fact? She shot back, acid in her voice. Never will he name us to the circle, no matter how many prizes we bring into the court. We are interlopers. We are not of the first Maya. Many things can change in a span of eternity, our love. We will be patient. You mean that he might fall? 
She let out a rather disconcerting giggle. Then why aren't we currying favor with Ariana? We shall not even consider it, he replied, his voice hard. Should we even think of it too often, he might know. He might act. Do you understand? We do, she said, her tone petulant. Then someone grabbed my shoulder in iron-strong fingers and flipped me onto my back. The dark shapes of trees spun above me, nothing more than black outlines against the lights of Chicago reflecting from the overcast. There was barely enough light to let me see the pale, delicate features of a tiny woman no larger than a child. Seriously, she might have been four foot six, though her proportions seemed identical to those of any adult. She had very pale skin with a light dusting of freckles and looked as if she might be nineteen years old. Her hair was light brown and very straight. Her eyes were extremely odd-looking. One was pale, icy blue, the other deep, dark green, and I had an immediate instinct that whatever creature lurked behind those mismatched eyes was not a rational being. She was wearing a gown with long, flowing sleeves and some kind of sleeveless robe and corset over that. She was barefoot, though. I knew because I could feel her cold little foot when she planted it on my chest and leaned over to peer down at me. We're too late. Look, it's starting to go bad. Nonsense, said the male voice. It's a perfectly appropriate specimen. Mortal wizards are supposed to be worn and tough, our love. I looked up and saw the other speaker. He was perhaps five foot six, with a short brush of red hair, a black beard, and skin that looked darkened and bronzed by the sun. He wore black silk clothing and looked like he had just come from a dress rehearsal of Hamlet. Aha, uh -huh, I said. You must be Esteban and Esmeralda. I've heard about you. We are famous, hissed the little woman, beaming up at the man. He gave her a stern look, sighed, and said, Aye, we are, here to stop you from allowing Ariana to proceed with her design. I blinked. What? Esmeralda leaned closer. Her hair brushed my nose and lips. Are its ears broken? If the ears are defective, can we detach them and send them back? Peace, our love, Esteban said. He hunkered down on his heels and eyed me. It isn't its fault. It doesn't even realize how Ariana is manipulating it. What are you talking about, I said. Look, folks, no one wants to stop Ariana more than me. Esteban waved a vague hand. Yes, yes, it feels it must rescue its spawn. It will try to take her back from the very heart of his realm, placing it at the center of vast, moving powers, where it might tip balances any number of ways. It hardly looks large enough, Esmeralda sniffed. It's just a ragged, dirty creature. Esteban shrugged. We know by now that the outside hardly matters. What lies within is what holds importance. Would you agree, ragged wizard? I licked my lips. I really didn't feel up to bantering with a couple of insane vampires, but it was probably my best course of action. Anything that lives long enough tends to lose track of passing time rather easily on the minute-to-minute -minute scale. After a few thousand years have gone by, an hour doesn't really rate. If my brother and company were successful in their fight, 
They would realize I was gone within a few minutes, and I didn't think the Ebes had carried me far enough away to let them evade Mouse. As far as I can tell, Mouse can follow a scent trail from space. Talk to them. Stall. That depends on the nature of the subject and the observer, I said. But if you are using the metaphor in its simplest form, then yes. The true nature of any given being supersedes its outer appearance in terms of importance. I tried to smile. This is quite pleasant treatment, by the way, I said. I had expected something entirely different. We wanted to eat you and kill you, or kill you then eat you, Esmeralda said, smiling back. Hers was a lot crazier looking than mine, I hoped. And might still. Obviously you had something else in mind, though, I said. Apparently you wish to talk. I'm more than willing to listen. Excellent, Esteban said. We are pleased that you can address the matter rationally. To which matter do you refer, specifically? The matter of your involvement with Ariana's plan, Esteban said. We wish you to discontinue your participation. That could be problematic, since if she does what she intends to do, it's going to kill me, along with the child's mother. The two vampires traded a long, silent glance, their facial expressions shifting subtly. I got the impression that a lot of communication got done. Esteban turned back to me. How did you learn of this, ragged wizard? It's what I do, I said. Ooh, said Esmeralda. She slid her tiny body on top of mine, straddling my hips with hers. She was so tiny that I could hardly feel her weight on me. She smelled... wrong. Like formaldehyde and mildew. It is arrogant. We adore arrogance. It's so sweet to watch arrogant little things succumb. Do you like our pretty eyes, ragged wizard? Which color do you like more? Look closely and carefully. You don't look vampires in the eyes. Everyone knows that one. Even so, I'd had a couple of encounters with the stare of one of the Red Court and never had a problem shutting them out. It wasn't even particularly difficult. But evidently, those vampires had been noobs. Ice blue and deep sea green swirled in my vision and it was only at the very last instant that I realized what was happening. Slamming closed the vaults of my mind, leaving only the hard, fortified places to attack, a castle of idea and memory ready to withstand an attacker. Stop that, please, I said quietly a moment later. The conversation isn't getting anywhere like this. The little vampire pursed her lips, her head tilted as if she were deciding whether to be upset or amused. She went with amused. She giggled and wriggled her hips around a little. Lovely, lovely, lovely. We are well pleased. You do have options, Esteban said. If he was put out by Esmeralda's behavior, it didn't show. Hell, he hadn't even seemed to have noticed. By all means, I said. Enumerate them. I suppose the simplest means to solve our problem would be for you to take your own life, he said. If you are dead, Ariana has no reason to harm your spawn. Aside from the being dead part, there are some minor problems with that idea. By all means, Esteban said, enumerate them. 
What confirmation would I have that the child was safe and returned to her mother? What security would I have to make me believe that Ariana might not do the same thing a month from now? A contract could be drafted, Esteban said, witnessed and signed, arbitrated by one of the neutral parties of the Accords. For security, we suppose we could ask our lord if he would give his word upon it that your mate and spawn were free of the cycle of vengeance. A possibility worth consideration, I said, though the part where I die seems to be something of a flaw. Understandably, Esteban said. We might also offer you an alternative to death. The roll of Esmeralda's hips became slower, more sensuous. I'd been abused by red court vampires in the past. I still have nightmares sometimes. But the pretty-seeming girl atop me had that feminine mystique that defies description and definition. Being so close to her was making me nauseous, but my body was reacting to her with uncomfortable intensity. Alternative, she said in a breathy little voice. In this day, that means fashionable. And we do so love showing little mortals how to be fashionable. You would make me like you. I said quietly. Esmeralda nodded slowly, her mouth drawing up into a lazy, sensual smile, her hips still circling maddeningly against mine, her fangs were showing. It would offer you several advantages, Esteban said. Even should Ariana complete the vengeance rite, the transformation of your blood would insulate you against it. And, of course, you would not be killed, captured, or tortured to death, as the White Council will be over the next six months or so. It certainly bears consideration as well, I said. Very practical. Are there any other paths you think feasible? One more, Esteban said. Gift your spawn to our lord, the Red King. If I'd had the strength to take a swing at him, I would have. So it was probably a good thing that I didn't. And what would that accomplish? He would then take possession of the spawn. She would, in fact, be under his protection until such time as he deemed her unfit, unworthy, or unneeding of such care. Esmeralda nodded rapidly. She would be his. He does so dote on his little pets. We think it quite endearing. She opened her mouth in a little O, like a schoolgirl caught in the midst of a whispered conference about forbidden subjects. Oh, my! Would Ariana be upset? She would howl for centuries. We could provide chattel in exchange to sweeten the deal, Dresden, Esteban said. We would be willing to go as high as seven young women in exchange. You could select them from our stock or from their natural habitat, and we would see to their preparation and disposition. I thought about it for a long moment and rubbed lightly at my chin. Then I said, These are all very rational suggestions, I said, but I feel that I do not understand something. Why does the Red King not simply order Ariana to desist? Both of the Ebes drew in breaths of scandalized surprise. Because of her mate, Dresden, said Esteban. Slain by the wizard of the black stick, said Esmeralda, a blood debt. 
Sacred blood. Holy blood. Esteban shook his head. Not even our lord can interfere in the collection of a blood debt. It is Ariana's right. Esmeralda nodded. As it was Bianca's to collect from you in the opening days of the war. Though many wished that she would not have done what she did, it was her right, even as a very, very young member of the court. As her progenitor, Ariana's mate took up that debt, as Ariana now has done herself. She looked at Esteban and beamed. We are so happy with the ragged wizard. It is so civil and pleasant, completely unlike those other wizards. Might we keep it for our own? Business, our love, Esteban chided. Business first. Esmeralda thrust out her lower lip and abruptly turned, all motion ceasing, to focus intently in one direction. What is it, our love? Esteban asked quietly. The Ik-Ikawax, she said in a distant, puzzled voice. It is in pain. It flees. It... She opened her eyes very wide, and suddenly they flooded in solid black, just as the creatures had been. Oh, it cheated! Her face turned down to mine, and she bared her fangs. It cheated! It brought a demon of its own! A mountain ice demon from the land of dreams! If you don't exercise them, they're impossible, I said philosophically. The constable, Esteban said. Did it kill the constable? Esmeralda returned to staring at nothing for a moment and then said, No, it was attacked only seconds after entering his home. She shivered and looked up at Esteban. The ragged wizard's demon comes this way, and swiftly. Esteban sighed. We had hoped to work out something civilized. This is your last chance, ragged wizard. What say you to my offer? Go fuck yourself, I said. Esteban's eyes went black and flat. Kill him. Esmeralda's body tightened in what looked like a sexual fervor, and she leaned down, teeth bared, letting out a low sound filled to the brim with erotic and physical need. During the last few moments, the fingers of my right hand had undone the clasp on my mother's amulet. As the little vampire leaned into me, she met the silver pentacle necklace, the symbol of what I believed. A five-pointed star, representing the four elements and the spirit, bound within a circle of mortal control, will, and compassion. I'm not a Wiccan. I'm not big on churches of any kind, despite the fact that I've spoken face-to-face -face with an archangel of the Almighty. But there were some things I believed in, some things I had faith in. And faith isn't about perfect attendance to services— or how much money you put on the little plate. It isn't about going sky-clad to the holy rites or meditating each day upon the divine. Faith is about what you do. It's about aspiring to be better and nobler and kinder than you are. It's about making sacrifices for the good of others, even when there's not going to be anyone telling you what a hero you are. Faith is a power of its own and one even more elusive and difficult to define than magic. A symbol of faith, presented with genuine belief and sincerity, is the bane of many an otherworldly predator, and one of the creatures most strongly affected were vampires of the Red Court. 
I don't know how it works or why. I don't know if some kind of powerful being or being must get involved along the line. I never asked for one of them to do that. But if so, one of them was backing me up anyway. The pentacle flared into brilliant silver light that struck Esmeralda like a six-foot wave, throwing her off of me and tearing the flesh mask she wore to shreds, revealing the creature inside it. I twisted and presented the symbol to Esteban, but he had already backed several paces away, and it only forced him to lift his hand to shade his eyes as he continued retreating. There was a hissing, serpentine sound from Esmeralda, and I saw a gaunt, black-skinned creature stand up out of the ruins of gown and flesh mask alike. It was just as small as she was, but its limbs were longer, by at least a third, than hers it seemed, long and scrawny. A flabby black belly sagged down, and its face would make one of those really ugly South American bats feel better about itself. She opened her jaws, bearing fangs and a long, writhing tongue that was pink with black spots. Her all-black eyes were ablaze with fury. Shadows shifted as a pale blue light began to grow nearer, and the wood suddenly rang out with Mouse's triumphant hunting howl. He had found my scent, or that of the vampires, and was closing in. Esmeralda hissed again, and the sound was full of rage and hate. We mustn't, Esteban snarled. He dashed around me with supernatural speed, giving the glowing pendant a wide berth. He seized the little vampire woman by the arm. They both stared at me for an instant with their cold, empty black eyes. And then there was the sound of a rushing wind, and they were gone. I sagged onto the ground, gratefully. My racing heart began to slow, my fear to subside. My confusion as to what was happening remained, though. Maybe it was so tangled and impossible because I was so exhausted. Yeah, right. Mouse let out a single loud bark, and then the big dog was standing next to me, over me. He nudged me with his nose until I lifted a hand and scratched his ears a little. Thomas and Molly arrived next. I was glad Thomas had let Mouse do the pursuit while he came along more slowly so that my apprentice wouldn't be alone in the woods. His eyes were bright silver, his mouth set in a smug line, and there was broken glass shining in his hair. The left half of Molly's upper body was generously coated in green paint. Okay, I slurred. I'm backward. What's that? Molly asked, kneeling down next to me, her expression worried. Backward. I'm a detective. Supposed to find things out. I've been working backward. The more I look at it, the more certain I am that I have no idea what's going on. Can you stand? Thomas asked. Leg, I said. Ribs. Might be broken. Can't take the weight. I'll carry him, Thomas said. Find a phone. Okay. My brother picked me up and carried me out of the woods. We went back to the car. The car's remains. I stared dully at the mess. It looked as though something had taken Thomas's white jag and put it in a trash compactor with a blue beetle. The two cars, together, had been smashed down into a mass about four feet high. Liquids and fuel bled out onto the street below them. Thomas gingerly put me down on my good leg as I stared at my car.
There was no way the beetle was going to resurrect from this one. I found myself blinking tears out of my eyes. It wasn't an expensive car. It wasn't a sexy car. It was my car. And it was gone. Damn it, I mumbled. Hmm? Thomas asked. He looked considerably less broken up than me. My staff was in the car, I sighed. Takes weeks to make one of those. Lara's going to be annoyed with me, Thomas said. That's the third one this year. I rolled my eyes. Yeah, I feel your pain. What happened with the big thing? The fight? Thomas shrugged. Bullfighting tactics, for the most part. When it tried to focus on one, the other two would come at its back. Mouse did you rather proud. The big dog wagged his tail cheerily. Paint? I asked. Oh, the thing threw a five-gallon bucket of paint at her, either trying to kill her with it or so it could try to see her through the veil. Worked for about five seconds, too, but then she fixed it and was gone again. She did fairly well for someone so limited in offense, Thomas said. Let me see if I can salvage anything from my trunk. Excuse me. I just sat down on the street in front of the car, and Mouse came up to sit with me, offering a furry flank for support. The blue beetle was dead. I was too tired to cry much. I called a cab, Molly said, reappearing. It will meet us two blocks down. Get him and I'll veil us until it arrives. Yeah, Thomas said and picked me up again. I don't remember being awake for the cab ride. Chapter 27 Thomas supported most of my weight as my injured leg began to buckle and settled me in one of the chairs in the living room. We can't be here long, he said. Those two reds know he's injured and exhausted. They'll be back, looking for an opening or trying to pick one of us off when we're vulnerable. Right, right, Molly said. How is he? He crouched down in front of me and peered at me. His irises looked like polished chrome. Still punchy. Shock? Maybe. He's in a lot of pain. I was? Oh, I was. That might explain why I wasn't talking, I guessed. God, Molly said, her voice shaking. I'll get some of his things. This isn't right, Thomas said. Get Bob. Molly sounded confused. Get what? His expression flickered with surprise and then went neutral again. Sorry, lips disconnected from my brain. Get the swords. They aren't here, Molly said, moving around. Her voice came from my bedroom. He moved them, hid them along with his ghost dust and a bunch of other illegal things. Thomas frowned at that and then nodded. Okay, it'll have to do. Where do we take him? Molly appeared in my field of vision and knelt down to peer at me. She took one of my hands in hers. Wherever is good, I guess. Thomas took a slow breath. His silver eyes grew even brighter. It was creepy as hell and fascinating. I was hoping you knew a good spot. I sure as hell can't take him to my place. Molly's voice sharpened. I don't even have a place, she said. I still live at my parents' house. Less whining, Thomas said, his voice cool, more telling me a place to take him where he won't be killed. I am, Molly began. Then she closed her eyes for a second and moderated her tone. I am sorry. I'm just, she glanced up at Thomas. I'm just scared. 
I know, Thomas said through clenched teeth. Um, Molly said. She swallowed. Why do your eyes do that? There was a lengthy pause before Thomas answered. They aren't my eyes, Miss Carpenter. They're my demon's eyes. The better to see you with. Demon, Molly said. She was staring. You're hungry, like the vampire way. After a fight like that, Thomas said, I'm barely sane. Both of them should have known better. Every time a wizard looks another person in the eyes, they run the risk of triggering a deeper seeing, a voyeuristic peep through the windows of someone else's soul. You get a snapshot of the true nature of that person, and they get a peek back at you. It was only the second time I'd ever seen a soul gaze happen to someone else. There was an instant where both of them locked their eyes on each other's. Molly's eyes widened suddenly, like a frightened doze, and she jerked in a sharp breath. She stared at him with her chin twisting to one side, as if she were trying and failing to look away. Thomas went unnaturally still, and though his eyes also widened, it reminded me more of a cat crouching down in anticipation just before pouncing on its prey. Molly's back arched slightly, and a soft moan escaped her, her eyes filled with tears. God, she said. God, no, no, you're beautiful. God, you hurt so much, need so much. Let me help you. She fumbled for his hand. Thomas never moved as her fingers touched his, not a muscle. His eyes closed very slowly. Miss Carpenter, he whispered, do not touch me, please. No, it's all right, Molly said. It's all right. I'm here. Thomas's hand moved too quickly to be seen. He caught her wrist in his pale fingers, and she let out a short gasp. He opened his eyes and focused on hers, and Molly began to breathe harder. The tips of her breasts showed against her shirt, and her mouth opened with another soft moan. I think I made a quiet sound of protest. Neither of them heard it. He leaned closer, the motion feline and serpentine at the same time. Molly began trembling. She licked her lips and began to slowly lean forward toward him. Her lips met, and her body quivered, tensed, and then went rigid. A breathless sound escaped her as her eyes rolled back in her head, and Thomas was suddenly pressed against her. Molly's hips rocked against his. Her hands came up and began clawing at his shirt, tearing the buttons from the silk so that her palms could flatten against his naked chest. Mouse hit Thomas like a wrecking ball. The big dog's charge tore my brother away from my apprentice and slammed him into the brick of the fireplace. Thomas let out a sudden snarl of pure, surprised rage, but Mouse had him by the throat before he could recover. The big dog's jaws didn't snap closed, but the tips of his teeth sank into flesh, and he held Thomas there, a growl bubbling from his chest. My brother's hand flailed, reaching for the poker that hung beside the fireplace. Mouse took note of it and gave Thomas a warning shake, his teeth sinking a tiny bit deeper. 
My brother didn't quit reaching for the weapon, and I saw the tension gathering in the big dog's body. I came rushing back into myself all at once and said weakly, Thomas! He froze. Mouse cocked an ear toward me. Thomas! I croaked. Don't! He's protecting the girl! Thomas let out a gasping, pained sound. Then I saw him grimace and force himself to relax, to surrender. His body slowly eased away from its fighting tension, and he held up both hands, palms out, and lifted his chin a little higher. Okay, he rasped. Okay, it's okay now. Show me your eyes, I said. He did. They were a shade of pale, pale gray with only flecks of reflective hunger dancing through them. I grunted. Mouse? Mouse backed off slowly, gradually easing the pressure of his jaws, gently taking his teeth out of Thomas's throat. He took a pair of steps back and then sat down, head lowered to a fighting crouch that kept his own throat covered. He kept facing Thomas, made no sound, and didn't move. It looked odd and eerie on the big dog. Can't stay here, Thomas said. The bite wounds in his throat looked swollen, angry. Their edges were slightly blackened, as if the dog's teeth had been red hot. Not with her like that, he closed his eyes. I didn't mean to. Sorry. I looked at Molly, who was curled into a fetal position and shaking, still breathing hard. Get out, I said. How will you, Thomas? I said, and my voice was slightly stronger, hot with anger. You could have hurt Molly. You could have killed her. My only defense is down here babysitting you instead of standing guard. Get out. You're no good to me like this. Mouse let out another warning growl. I'm sorry, Thomas said again. I'm sorry. Then he eased around Mouse and departed his feet making little sound as he went up the stairs. I sat there for a moment, hurting in practically every sense. My entire body tingled with unpleasant pinpricks, as though it had gone to sleep and was only now feeling the return of circulation. The soul fire. I must have pushed too much of it through me. Terror, adrenaline must have kept me rolling for a little while, but after that I'd collapsed into pure passivity. Terror, on behalf of my brother and Molly, had given me back my voice, my will, but it might not last. It hurt to sit upright. It hurt to breathe. Moving anything hurt, and not moving anything hurt. So, I supposed, I might as well be moving. I tried to get up, but my left leg wasn't having any of it, and I was lucky not to end up on the floor. Without being told, Mouse got up and hurried into my room. I heard some heavy thumping as he rustled around under my bed, which had required him to lift it onto his massive shoulders. He came out a moment later, carrying one of my crutches, left over from injuries past, in his teeth. Who's a good dog, I said. He wagged his tail at me and went back for the other one. Once I had them both, I was able to get up and gimp my way over to the kitchen. Tylenol-3 is good stuff, but it is also illegal stuff to have without a prescription, if you aren't Canadian.
so it was currently buried in my godmother's insane garden. I took a big dose of Tylenol the original, since I didn't have my Tylenol 3, or its lesser-known, short-lived cousin, Tylenol 2, the pain strikes back. I realized that I was telling Mouse all of this out loud as I thought it, which had the potential to become awkward if it should become a habit. Once that was done, and I drunk a third glass of water, I moved over to Molly and checked her pulse. It was steady. Her breathing had slowed. Her eyes were slightly open and unfocused. I muttered under my breath. The damn girl was going to get herself killed. This was the second time she'd come very close to being fed upon by a vampire, though admittedly the first had been in a vicarious fashion. Still, it couldn't be good for her to be hit with it again. And if Thomas had actually begun to feed on her, there was no telling what it might do to her. Molly, I said. Then louder, Molly? She drew in a sudden little breath and blinked up at me. You're smearing paint all over my rug, I said wearily. She sat up, looking down at herself and at the green paint smeared all over her. She looked up at me again, dazed. What just happened? You soul-gazed Thomas. You both lost perspective. He nearly ate you. I poked her with a crutch. Mouse saved you. Get up. Right, she said. Right. She stood up very slowly, wincing and rubbing at one wrist. Um... Is... is Thomas all right? Mouse nearly killed him, I said. He's scared, ashamed, half out of his mind with hunger, and gone. I thumped her leg lightly with my crutch. What were you thinking? Molly shook her head. If you'd seen... I mean, if you'd seen him, seen how lonely he was, felt how much pain he was in, how empty he feels, Harry... She teared up again. I've never felt anything so horrible in my life, or seen anyone braver. Apparently, you figured you'd help him out by letting him rip the life out of you. She faced me for a moment, then flushed and looked away. He... it doesn't get ripped out. It gets... she blushed. I think the only phrase that works is, licked away, like licking the frosting off of a cake, or or the candy coating off of one of those lollipops. Except that as soon as you find out how many licks it takes him to get to your creamy center, you're dead, I said, or insane, which is somewhat chilling to consider given the things you can do. So, I repeat, I thumped her leg with the tip of my crutch on each word. What were you thinking? It won't happen again, she said, but I saw her shiver as she said it. I grunted skeptically, staring down at her. Molly wasn't ready. Not for something like we were about to do. She had too much confidence and not nearly enough sound judgment. It was frustrating. By the time I had been her age, I had finished my apprenticeship in private investigation and was opening my own business and I had been living under the doom of Damocles for the better part of a decade. Of course, I had an experience advantage on Molly. I had made my first dark compact with my old master, Justin de Morn, when I was ten or eleven, though I hadn't known what I was getting into at the time. I'd made a second one with the Lenanshi when I was sixteen, 
and I'd wound up under round-the-clock observation from the paranoid warden Morgan. It had been a brief lifetime for me at that point, but absolutely chock-full of lessons in the school of hard knocks. I had made plenty of dumb decisions of my own by then, and somehow managed to survive them. But I also hadn't been dallying around in situations as hot as this one was. A troll under a bridge or an upset spirit or two was as bad as it got. It had prepared me for what I faced today. Molly was facing it cold. She'd been burned once before, but it had taken me more than one attempt to learn that lesson. She might not survive her next test. She looked up at me and asked, What? We need to move, I said. I met the Ebes while you three were playing with the Ick... Gig with the Ikkukukachu. I scrunched up my nose, trying to remember the name of the creature, and couldn't. With the Ick, I said. And they were charming, in an entirely amoral, murderous sort of way. Thomas was right. They'll be after me, looking for an opening. We're going. Where? St. Mary's, I said. The Red Court can't walk on holy ground, and Susan knows I've used it as a fallback position before. She and Martin can catch up to me there, and I've got to get some rest. She rose, nodding. Okay. Okay, I'll get you a change of clothes, all right? Call a cab first, I said, and pack the Tylenol, and some of Mouse's food. Right. Okay. I leaned on my crutches and stayed standing while she bustled around the room. I didn't want to risk sitting down again. The Tylenol had taken the worst edge off the pain and my thoughts, though tired and sluggish, seemed to be firmly connected to my body again. I didn't want to risk relaxing into lassitude. Say that five times fast, I murmured and tried. It was something to do that I couldn't screw up too badly. A while later, Mouse made a woofing sound from the top of the stairs outside, and Molly plodded up them wearily. Cab's here, Harry, she called. I got myself moving. Stairs on crutches isn't fun, but I'd done it before. I took my time, moving slowly and steadily. Look out! She yelled. A bottle smashed against the top interior wall of the stairwell, and its contents splashed all over the place, fire spreading over them as they did. Ye old Molotov cocktail, still a formidable weapon, even after a century of use. There's more to one of those things than simple burning fuel. Fire that hot sucks the oxygen out of the air around it especially when it has a nice, dank stairway to use as a chimney. And you needn't get splattered by the spilling fuel to get burned. When a fire is hot enough, it'll burn exposed flesh from inches or feet away, turning the atmosphere around it into an oven. I was only on the second or third step up from the bottom, but I staggered back before anything could get roasted. Been there, done that, not going back. I tried to fall onto my uninjured side figuring that it deserved a chance to join in the fun, too. I landed more or less the way I wanted to, and it hurt like hell, but at least I didn't faint. I screamed, though, a number of vitriolic curses, as fire roared above me, leaping from my little stairwell to the rest of the house, chewing into the old wood like a hungry, living thing. Harry! Molly called from somewhere beyond the flames. Harry! Mouse let out a heart-sick-sounding bay, and I saw fire beginning to climb the sides of the house. The fire was starting from the outside. 
By the time it started setting off fire alarms, it would be too late to escape. At this time of night, somewhere up above me, Mrs. Spunklecreef was asleep and unaware of the danger. And on the second floor, my elderly neighbors, the Willoughbys, would be in similar straits, and all because they were unlucky enough to live in the same building as me. I dropped one of my crutches up on the stairs, and one end had caught on fire. There was no way I was pulling much in the way of magic out of my hat, not until I'd had food and some rest. Hell's bells. For that matter, I didn't know if I could stand up on my own. But if I didn't do something, three innocent people, plus myself, were going to die in a fire. Come on, Harry, I said. You aren't half crippled. You're half competent. The fire roared higher, and I didn't believe myself for a second. But I put my hands on the ground and began heaving myself upright. Do or die, Dresden, I told myself fiercely and firmly ignored the fear pounding in my chest. Do or die! The dying really did seem a lot more likely. Chapter 28 I looked up at my apartment ceiling, hobbling along on my crutch. I found the spot I thought would be the middle of Mrs. S.'s living room, and noted that one of my old sofas was directly beneath it. Using the crutch as a lever, I slipped one end of it behind one of my big old bookcases and heaved. The bookcase shuddered and then fell in a great crash of paperback novels and hardwood shelves smashing down onto my couch. I grunted in satisfaction and climbed up onto the fallen bookcase, using its back as a ramp. I crawled painfully up to the end of the ramp, lifted my right hand, and triggered one of the rings I wore there. They were magical tools, created to retain a little bit of kinetic energy every time I moved my arm. And when they were operating at capacity, they packed one hell of a lot of energy and I had freshly charged them up on the punching bag. When I cut loose with the ring, invisible force struck my ceiling, blowing completely through it and through the floor of the room above, tearing at faded carpeting the color of dried mustard. I adjusted my aim a little and blew the entire charge out of the ring on the next finger, and another one after that, each one blasting the opening wider until it was big enough that I thought I ought to fit through it. I hooked the padded end of my crutch over the broken end of the thick floor joist and used it to haul myself up to my good leg. Then I tossed the crutch up through the hole and reached up to pull myself through. Mister let out a harsh, worried meow and a frozen place. My cat was still in my apartment. I looked wildly around the room for him and found him crouching in his usual favorite spot atop the highest bookshelf. His hair stood on end and every muscle on him seemed tight and strained. I'd already tossed the crutch through. If I went back for him, I might not be able to stand once I made it back to the ramp. I had no idea how I'd hold him while climbing up, assuming I could do it at all. Mister weighs the next best thing to thirty pounds. That's one hell of a handicap on a pull-up. For that matter, if the fire spread as quickly as I thought it would, the extra time it took might mean that I wound up trapped with no exit, and there would be no one to help Mrs. S. and the Willoughbys. I love my cat. He was family. But as I stared at him, I knew that I couldn't help him. Unless you use your flipping brain, Harry, I snapped at myself. Duh, never quit. Never quit. The sunken windows around my apartment were too small to be a means of escape for me, but Mister could clear them with ease. I took aim, used a single charge from my ring, and shattered the sunken window closest to the cat. Mister took the hint at once and prowled down the tops of two bookcases, it was a five-foot leap from the top of the shelf to the window well, but Mister made it look casual. I felt myself grinning fiercely as he vanished through the broken window, and
and into the cool air of the October night. Stars and stones. At least I'd accomplished one positive thing that day. I turned, reached up into the opening with my arms straight over my head, and hopped as hard as I could with one leg. It wasn't much of a leap, but it was enough to let me get my arms through and my elbows wedged against either side of the opening. My ribs were on fire as I kicked and wriggled my way up through the hole and hauled myself into Mrs. Spunklecreef's living room. It had last been decorated in the 70s, judging by the mustard-yellow carpet and the olive-green wallpaper, and it was full of furniture and knick-knacks. I dragged myself all the way through the hole, knocking over a little display stand of collector's plates as I did. The room was dimly lit by the growing flames outside. I grabbed my crutch, climbed to my feet through screaming pain, and hobbled farther into the apartment. I found Mrs. S. in the apartment's one bedroom. She was sleeping, mostly sitting up, propped on a pile of pillows. Her old television was on, sans volume, with subtitles appearing at the bottom of the screen. I gimped over to her and shook her gently. She woke up with a start and slugged me with one tiny fist. I fell backward onto my ass, more out of pure surprise than anything else, and grimaced in pain from the fall, not the punch. I shook it off and looked up again to find the little old lady holding a little revolver, probably a thirty-eight. In her hands it looked magnum-sized. She held it like she knew what she was doing, too, in two hands, peering down at me through the little gun's sights. Mr. Tristan, she said, her voice squeaky. How dare you? Fire, I said. Mrs. S., there's a fire. A fire. Well, I won't fire if you just sit still, she said in a querulous tone. She took her left hand off the gun and reached for her phone. I'm calling the police. You all real still or I gotta shoot you. No bluff. This here is a grandfathered gun. Legal and proper. I tried to point toward the bedroom door without moving my body, indicating it with my fingertips and tilts of my head. Are you on drugs, boy? She said, punching numbers on the phone without looking. You're acting like a crazy junkie, coming to an old woman's. She glanced past me, where there was some fairly bright light flickering wildly in the hallway outside the bedroom. I kept wiggling my fingers and nodding toward it desperately. Mrs. S.'s eyes widened and her mouth dropped open. Fire, she said abruptly. There's a fire right there. I nodded frantically. She lowered the gun and started kicking her way clear of covers and pillows. She wore flannel pajamas but grabbed at a blue robe in any case and hurried toward the door. Come on, boy, there's a fire. I struggled desperately to my feet and started hobbling out. She turned to look at me, apparently surprised that she was moving faster than I was. You could hear the fire now, and smoke had begun to thicken the air. I pointed up at the ceiling and shouted, The Willoughbys! Willoughbys! She looked up. Lord God Almighty! She turned and hurried down the hall, coming within ten feet of a wall that was already becoming a sheet of flame. She grabbed something, cursed, then pulled her robe down over her hand and picked up something using the material as an oven mitt. She hurried over to me with a ring of keys. Come on! The front door's already going up! Out the back! We both hurried out the back door of the house and into its minuscule little yard, and I saw at once that the entire front side of the house was aflame. The stairs to the Willoughby's place were already on fire. I turned to her and shouted, Ladder! Where's the ladder? I need to use the ladder. No, she shouted back. You need to use the ladder. Good grief. Okay, I shouted back and gave her a thumbs up. She hustled back to the little storage shed in the little backyard. She picked a key and unlocked it. 
I swung the door open and seized the metal extending ladder I used to put up and take down Christmas lights every year. I ditched my crutch and used the ladder itself to take some of the weight. I went as fast as I could, but it seemed to take forever to position the ladder under the Willoughby's bedroom windows. Mrs. Spunklecreef handed me a loose brick from a little flower planter's wall and said, Here! I can't climb this thing! My hip! I took the brick and dropped it in my duster pocket. Then I started humping myself up the ladder, taking a grip with both hands, then hopping up with a painful little jump. Repeat, each time growing more painful, more difficult. I clenched my teeth over the screams. And then there was a window in front of me. I got the brick out of my pocket, hauled off and shattered the window. Black smoke billowed out, catching me on the inhale. I started coughing viciously, my voice strangled as I tried to shout, Mr. and Mrs. Willoughby! Fire! You've got to get out! Fire! Come to the window and down the ladder! I heard two people coughing and choking. They were trying to say help. Something, maybe the little propane tank on Mrs. Spunklecreef's grill, exploded with a noise like a dinosaur-sized watermelon hitting the ground. The concussion and surprise knocked Mrs. S. down and kicked the bottom of the ladder out from under me. I fell. It was a horrible, helpless feeling, my body twisting uselessly as I tried to land well. But I'd had no warning at all, and it was a futile attempt. The small of my back hit the brick planter, and I achieved a new personal best for pain. Oh, God in heaven, Mrs. Spunklecreef said. She knelt beside me. Harry? Somewhere, sirens had begun to wail. They wouldn't get there in time for the Willoughbys. Trapped, I choked out as soon as I was able to breathe again. They're up there, calling for help. The fire roared louder and grew brighter. Mrs. S. stared up at the window. She grabbed the ladder and wrestled it all the way back up into position, though the effort left her panting. Then she tried to put a foot up on the first step. She grasped the ladder, began to shift her weight, and groaned as her leg buckled and she fell to the ground. She screamed, agony in her quavering voice. Oh, God in heaven, help us! A young black man in a dark, knee-length coat hurtled the edges at the back of the yard and bounded onto the ladder. He was built like a professional lineman moved more quickly than a linebacker, and started up the ladder like it was a broad staircase. The planet's only knight of the cross flashed me a quick grin on the way up. Dresden? Sonia! I howled. Two! There are two of them in the bedroom! Da, two! He replied, his deep voice booming. The curving saber blade of Esperacius rode at his hip, and he managed it with thoughtless, instinctive skill as he went through the window. He was back a moment later with Mrs. Willoughby draped over one shoulder while he supported most of Mr. Willoughby's staggering body with the other. Sonia went first, the old woman hanging limply over his shoulder so that he could help Mr. Willoughby creep out the window and onto the ladder. They came down slowly and carefully, and as Sonia carefully laid the old woman out onto the grass, the first of the emergency response crews arrived. God in heaven! Mrs. S. said, weeping openly as she put her hand on Sonia's arm. He must have sent you to us, son. Sonia smiled at her as he helped Mr. Willoughby lower himself to the ground. Then he turned to my landlady and said, his Russian accent less heavy than the last time I'd seen him, it was probably just a coincidence, ma'am. I don't believe in those, said Mrs. Spunklecreef. Bless you, son, she said, and hugged him hard. Her arms couldn't have gotten around half of him, but Sonya returned the hug gently for a moment.
Ma'am, he said, you should direct the medical technicians to come back here. Thank you, thank you, she said, releasing him. But now I have to go get those ambulance boys over here. She paused and gave me a smile. And thank you, Harry. Such a good boy. Then she hurried away. Mouse came racing around the side of the house where Mrs. S. had just gone and rushed to stand over me, lapping at my face. Molly wasn't far behind. She let out a little cry and threw her arms around my shoulders. Oh, God, Harry. She shouldered Mouse aside and squeezed tight for several seconds. She looked up and said, Sonia, what are you doing here? Hey, hey, I said, take it easy. Molly eased up on her hug. Sorry. Sonia, I said, nodding to him. Thanks for your help. Part of the job, da, he replied, grinning. Glad to help. All the same, I said, my voice rough. Thank you. If anything had happened to them. Oh, Harry, Molly said. She hugged me again. Easy, pat on, easy, I said quietly. Think you should be careful. She drew back with a frown. Why? I took a slow breath and said, very quietly, I can't feel my legs. Chapter 29 It didn't take me long to talk Sonia and Molly out of taking me to the hospital. The Ebes, as it turned out, had shown up, pitched their firebomb from a moving car and kept going, a modus operandi that was consistent with the earlier attempt on my life, except this time they'd been identified. Molly's description of the thrower was a dead ringer for Esteban. I had to admit, the vampire couple had a very practical long-term approach to violence, striking at weakness and harassing the victim while exposing themselves to minimal risk. If I'd been a couple of steps higher up when that Molotov hit, I'd be dead or covered in third-degree burns. Individually, their attempts might not enjoy a high success rate, but they needed to get it right only once. It would be consistent with that practical, cold-blooded style to keep an eye on the hospitals in order to come finish me off, during surgery, for example, or while I was still in recovery afterward. Sonia, though, had EMT training of some kind. He calmly stole a backboard out of an open ambulance while its techs were seeing to the Willoughbys, and they loaded me onto it in a procedure that Sonia said would protect my spine. It seemed kind of too little too late to me, but I was too tired to rib him over it. I couldn't feel anything below the waist, but that apparently didn't mean that the rest of me got to stop hurting. I felt them carrying the board out, and when I opened my eyes it was only to see nearly a third of the building give way and crash down into the basement, into my apartment. The building was obviously a lost cause. The firemen were focusing on containing the blaze and preventing it from spreading to the nearby homes. They loaded the backboard into the rental minivan Sonia had, by happy coincidence, been given at the airport when he arrived at no additional fee in order to substitute for the subcompact he'd reserved but couldn't have. As it drove away during the confusion and before the cops could lock everything down, I got to watch my home burn down through the back window of the van. Even after we were several blocks away, I could see the smoke rising up in a black column. I wondered how much of that smoke was made of my books, my second-hand guitar, my clothes, my comfy old furniture, my bed, my blankets, my Mickey Mouse alarm clock, the equipment in my lab that I worked so hard to attain or create, the efforts of years of patient effort, endless hours of concentration and spellcraft. Gone. 
Fire is as destructive spiritually as it is materially, a purifying force that can devour and scatter magical energy. In a fire that large, everything I'd ever built, including purely magical constructs, would be destroyed. Damn it. Damn it, but I hated vampires. I'd had one hell of a day, all in all, but practically the only thing I had left to me was my pride. I didn't want anyone to see me crying. So I just kept quiet in the back of the van, while Mouse lay very close to me. At some point, sorrow became sleep. I woke up in the utility room at St. Mary of the Angels, where Father Forthill kept several spare folding cots and the bedding to go with them. I'd visited several times in the past. St. Mary's was a surprisingly stout bastion against supernatural villains of nearly any stripe. The ground beneath it was consecrated, as was every wall, door, floor, and window, blessed by prayers and stately rituals, masses, and communions over and over through the decades, until that gentle, positive energy had permeated the ground and the very stone from which the church was built. I felt safer, but only a little. Vampires might not be able to set foot on the holy ground, but they knew that and someone like the Ebes would certainly take that into account. Hired human killers could be just as dangerous as vampires, if not more so, and the protective aura around the building couldn't make them blink an eye. And, I supposed, they could always just set it on fire and burn it down around me if they really, really wanted to get me. I tried to imagine myself a century from now, still dodging vampires and getting my home burned to the ground on an irregular basis. No way in hell was I going to accept that. I'd have to deal with the Ebe problem. And then I remembered my legs. I reached a hand down to touch my thigh. I felt nothing. Absolutely nothing. It felt like touching the limb of someone else entirely. I tried to move my legs, and nothing happened. Maybe I'd been too ambitious. I pulled at my blanket until I could see my toes. I tried wiggling them. I failed. I could feel the backboard beneath me, and the band around my head that kept me from moving it to look around. I gave up on my legs with a sharp surge of frustration and lifted my eyes to the ceiling. There was a piece of paper taped to it, directly over my head. Molly's handwriting in black marker was scrawled in large letters across it. Harry, don't try to get up or move your neck or back. We're checking in on you several times an hour. Someone will be there soon. There was a candle burning nearby on a folding table. It was the room's only light. I couldn't tell how long it had been burning, but it looked like a fairly long-lived candle, and it was nearly gone. I breathed in and out steadily through my nose and caught some half-remembered scents. Perfume of some kind, maybe. Or maybe just the scent of new leather, still barely tinged with the harsh aroma of tanning compounds and the gummy scent of dye. Plus, I could smell the dusty old room. The church had only recently begun to use its heating system for the winter. I could smell the warm scent of singed dust that always emerges from the vents the first time anyone turns on a heater after it's been unneeded for a while. I was glad that I wasn't cold. I wouldn't have been able to do anything about it otherwise. The candle guttered out and left me alone in the dark. In my memories, a bloody old caricature of a man 
his skin more liver spots than not, leered at me in mad satisfaction and whispered, Die alone. I shivered and shook the image away. Cassius was thoroughly dead. I knew that. An outcast member of the Society of Demented Freaks known as the Knights of the Blackened Denarius, Cassius had thrown in with an insane necromancer in order to get a chance to even a score with me. He'd come within a hairbreadth of dissecting me. I was able to take him down in the end, and he'd uttered a death curse as he croaked. Such a curse, a spell uttered in the last instance of life, could have hideous effects upon its victim. His curse, for me to die alone, was pretty vague as such things went. It might not even have had enough power or focus to take. Sure, maybe it hadn't. Hello, I said to the darkness. Is anyone there? There wasn't. Die alone. Stop that, I snapped out loud. Control yourself, Dresden. That sounded like good advice. So I started taking deep, steady, controlled breaths and tried to focus my thoughts. Focus, forethought, reason, sound judgment. That's what was going to get me through this. Fact one, my daughter was still in danger. Fact two, I was hurt, maybe badly, maybe forever. Even the efficient resilience of a wizard's body had its limits, and a broken spine was quite likely beyond them. Fact three, Susan and Martin could not get the girl out on their own. Fact four, there wasn't a lot of help forthcoming. Maybe, with Sonya along, the suicidal mission could be considered only mostly suicidal. After all, the Knights of the Cross were a big deal. Three of them were, apparently, enough knights to protect the whole world, for the past few years, the dark-skinned Russian had been covering all three positions and apparently doing it well, which made a vague amount of sense, I suppose. Sonya was the wielder of Esperachius, the Sword of Hope. We needed hope right now. At least I did. Fact five, I had missed the rendezvous with Ebenezer many hours ago. I'd never intended to go, and there was nothing I could do about the fact that he was going to be upset. But my absence had probably cost me the support of the Grey Council, such as it was. Fact six, Sonia, Susan, Martin, and whatever other scanty help I could drum up couldn't get to Chichen Itza without me. And I sure as hell couldn't get there in the shape I was in. According to the stored memories in my mother's jewel, the way required a swim. Fact seven, I was going to show up for my daughter and to hell with what it would cost. And there were only so many options open to me. I took the least terrifying one. I closed my eyes, steadied my breathing, and began to picture a room in my mind. My now-ruined, improved summoning circle was in the floor. Candles were lit at five equidistant points around it. The air smelled of sandalwood incense and burned wax. It took a few minutes to picture it all in perfect detail, and to hold it in my mind, as rock-solid to my imagination as the actual room the construct was replacing. That took considerable energy and discipline. Magic doesn't require props to function. 
That's a conceit that has been widely propitiated by the wizarding community over the centuries. It helped prove to frighten villagers, inquisitions, and whoever else might be worried that a person was clearly not a wizard. Otherwise, he'd have all kinds of wizardly implements necessary to his craft. Magic doesn't require the props, but magic is wrought by people, and people need them. Each prop has a symbolic as well as a practical reason for being a part of any spell. Simple stuff, lighting candles and the like, could be accomplished neatly in the mind, eventually becoming a task as easy and thoughtless as tying one's shoe. Once you got into the complicated stuff, though, you had an enormous number of things to keep track of in your mind, envisioning flows of energy, their manipulation, and so on. If you have the real props, they serve as a sort of mnemonic device. You attach a certain image to the prop in your head, and every time you see or touch that prop, the image is packaged along with it. Simple. Except that I didn't have any props. I was winging the whole thing. Pure imagination, pure concentration. Pure arrogance, really. But I was at a lower rock bottom than normal. In my thoughts, I lit the candles, walking slowly around the circle in a clockwise fashion, or diesel, as the fairy tales, Celtic songs, and certain strains of Wicca refer to it, gradually powering up the energy it required to operate. I realized that I had forgotten to make the floor out of anything specific in my head, and the notional floor space from horizon to horizon suddenly became the linoleum from my first ratty Chicago apartment. Hideous stuff, green lines on a gray background, but simple to envision. I imagined performing the spell without ever moving my body, envisioned every last detail, everything from the way the floor dug unpleasantly into my knees to the slight clumsiness in the fingers of my left hand, which always seemed to be a little twitchy whenever I got nervous. I closed the circle. I gathered the power. And then, when all was prepared, when I held absolutely everything in my imagination so vividly that it seemed more real than the room around me, I slid power into my voice and called quietly, Oreo, come forth. For a second, I couldn't tell whether the soft white light had appeared only in my head or if it was actually in the room. Then I realized that it stabbed in my eyes painfully. It was real. I kept the spell going in my head easier now that it was a tableau. I just had to keep my concentration going. I squinted into the light and saw a tall young man there. He wore jeans and a T-shirt and a farmer's duck coat. His blonde hair fell over his eyes, but they were blue and bright and guileless as he looked around the room. He stuck his hands into his coat pockets and nodded slowly. I was wondering when I'd get this call. You know what's happening then? I asked. Yes, yes, he answered with perhaps the slightest bit of impatience in his tone. He turned his gaze to me and frowned abruptly. He leaned forward slightly, peering at me. I carefully fortified and maintained the image of the restraining magical circle in my imagination. When an entity was called forth, the circle was the only thing protecting the caller from its wrath. Please, Dresden, the Archangel Uriel said. It's a very nice circle, but you can't honestly think that it's any kind of obstacle to me. I like to play it safe, I said. 
Uriel let out a most unangelic snort. Then he nodded his head slowly and said, Ah, I see. See what? He paused and said, Why, you called me, of course. You're back. I grunted. It was more effort than usual. How bad is it? Broken, he said. It's possible that, as a wizard, your body might be able to knit the ends back together over forty or fifty years, but there's no way to be sure. I need it to be better, I said, now. Then perhaps you shouldn't have climbed that ladder in your condition. I let out a snarl and tried to turn toward him. I just sort of flopped a little. My body never left the surface of the backboard. Don't, Uriel said calmly. It isn't worth getting upset over. Not upset, I demanded. My little girl is going to die. You made your choices, Uriel told me. One of them led you here. He spread his hands. That's a fair ball, son. Nothing to do now but play it out. But you could fix me if you wanted to. My wishes have nothing to do with it, he said calmly. I could heal you if I were meant to do so. Free will must take precedence if it is to have meaning. You're talking philosophy, I said. I'm telling you that a child is going to die. Oriole's expression darkened for a moment. And I am telling you that I am very limited in terms of what I can do to help you, he said. Limited, in fact, to what I have already done. Yeah, I said. Soul fire. Just about killing myself with that one. Thanks. No one is making you use it, Dresden. It's your choice. I played ball with you when you needed help, I said, and this is how you repay me? Uriel rolled his eyes. You tried to send me a bill. You want to set a price? Feel free, I said. I'll pay it, whatever it takes. The archangel watched me, his eyes calm and knowing and sad. I know you will, he said quietly. Damn it! I said, my voice breaking. Tears started from my eyes. The colors and lines in my imagination began to blur. Please! Uriel seemed to shiver at the sound of the word. He turned his face from me, clearly uncomfortable. He was silent. Please! I said again. You know who I am. You know I'd rather have my nails torn out than beg. And I am begging you. I am not strong enough to do this on my own. Uriel listened, never quite looking at me, and then shook his head slowly. I have already done what I can. But you've done nothing, I said. From your point of view, I suppose that's true. He stroked his chin with a thumb, frowning in thought. Though, I suppose it isn't too much of an imbalance for you to know. My eyes were starting to cramp from looking to one side so fiercely without being able to move my head. I bit my lip and waited. Uriel took a deep breath and looked as if he were considering his words with care. Your daughter, Maggie, is alive and well. For now. My heart skipped a beat. My daughter. He'd called her my daughter. I know you wanted Susan to be the woman you loved and remembered, wanted to be able to trust her. But even if you weren't admitting it to yourself, you had to wonder on some level. I don't blame you for it, he said. 
especially after those tracking spells failed. It's natural, but yes, he met my eyes. Flesh of your flesh, and bone of your bone, your daughter. Why did you tell me that? I asked him. Because I have done all that I can, he said. From here, it is up to you. You are Maggie's only hope. He started to turn away, then paused and said, Consider Vaderung's words carefully. I blinked. You know Ode Vaderung? Of course. We're in similar fields of work, after all. I exhaled wearily and stopped even trying to hold the spell. I don't understand. Uriel nodded. That's the difficult part of being mortal, of having choice. Much is hidden from you, he sighed. Love your child, Dresden. Everything else flows from there. A wise man said that, Uriel said. Whatever you do, do it for love. If you keep to that, your path will never wander so far from the light that you can never return. And as quickly as that, he was gone. I lay in the darkness, shivering with weariness and the effort of the magic. I pictured Maggie in my head, in her little girl dress with ribbons in her hair, like the picture. For you, little girl, Dad's coming. It took me less than half a minute to restore the spell, and not much longer than that to build up the next wave of energy I would need. Until the last second, I wondered if I could actually go through with it. Then I saw a horrible image of Maggie in her dress being snatched up by a red-court vampire, and my whole outraged being seemed to fuse into a singularity, a single, white-hot pinpoint of raw, unshakable will. Mab, I called, my voice steady. Mab, queen of air and darkness, queen of the winter court. Mab, I bid you, come forth. Chapter 30 The third repetition of her name hung ringing in the air, and deafening silence came after, as I awaited the response. When you trap something dangerous, there are certain fundamental precautions necessary to success. You've got to have good bait, something to draw your target in. You've got to have a good trap, something that works and works fast. And once the target is in the trap, you've got to have a net or a cage strong enough to hold it. Get any of those three elements wrong, and you probably won't succeed. Get two of them wrong, and you might be looking at a result far more disastrous than mere failure. I went into this one knowing damn well that all I had was bait. Mab, for her own reasons, had wanted to suborn me into her service for years. I knew that calling her by name and title would be enough to attract her interest. Though the mechanism of my improved summoning circle would have been a fine trap, if it still existed, I mean, the cage of my will had always been the weakest point in any such endeavor. Bottom line, I could get the tiger to show up. Once it was there, all I had was a really good chalk drawing of a pit on the sidewalk and nice kitty. I wasn't going into it blind and ignorant, though. I was desperate, but not stupid. I figured I had the advantage of position. Mab couldn't kill a mortal. She could only make him desperately wish he was dead instead of enduring her attentions. I didn't have a lot to lose. 
She couldn't make me any more useless to my daughter than I was already. I waited, in perfect darkness, for the mistress of every wicked fairy and every dark tale humanity had ever whispered in the night to put in an appearance. Mab didn't disappoint me. Surprise me, yes, but she didn't disappoint. Stars began to appear in front of my eyes. I figured that was probably a really bad thing for a moment, but they didn't spin around in lazy, dizzy motion like the kind of stars that mean your brain is smothering. They instead burned steady and cold and pure above me, five stars like jewels on the throat of Lady Night. Seconds later, a cold wind touched my face, and I became conscious of a hard smoothness beneath me. I laid my hands carefully flat, but I didn't feel a cot in the backboard under me. Instead, my fingers touched only hard, smooth stone, a planar surface that seemed level beneath my entire body. I wriggled my foot and confirmed that there was stone beneath it there, too. I stopped and realized that I could feel my foot. I could move it. My whole body was there, and it was naked. I wavered between yelping at the cold suddenly being visited upon my ass and yelling in joy that I could feel it at all. I saw land to one side and scrambled to get off the cold slab beneath me, crouching down and hanging on to the edge of the slab for balance. This wasn't reality, then. This was a dream, or a vision, or something that was otherwise in between the mortal world and the spiritual realm. That made sense. My physical body was still back in St. Mary's, lying still and breathing deeply, but my mind and my spirit were here, wherever here was. My eyes adjusted to the darkness, and I saw gentle mist and fog hanging in the air. Boiling clouds let a flash of moonlight in, and it played like a spotlight over the hilltop around me and upon the ancient table of stone beside me. The moon's touch made deeply carved runes all around the table's edge dance with flickers of illumination, writing done in some language I did not know. Then I understood. Mab had created this place for our meeting. It was known as the Valley of the Stone Table. It was a broad, bowl-shaped valley, I knew, though the mist hid most of it from me. In its exact center stood a mound, maybe fifty feet across and twelve feet high at its center. Atop the mound stood the massive slab of stone, held up on four stumpy pillars. Other stones stood in a circle around it, some tumbled down, some broken, only one remaining in a stonehenge-like lintel. The stones all shed faint illumination, in shades of blue and purple and deep, deep green cold colors, winter colors. Yeah, it was after the equinox, so that tracked. The table was in winter's domain. It was an ancient conduit of power, transferred in the most primitive atavistic fashion of all, in hot blood. There were grooves and whorls in the table's surface, coated with ancient stains, and it squatted on the hill, patient and hungry and immovable like a snapping turtle waiting for warm, vital creatures to wander too close. The blood spilled upon this table would carry the power of life with it and would flow into the well of power in the control of the Winter Queen. A movement across the table from me drew my eye. 
A shadow seemed to simply congeal from the mist, forming itself into a slender, feminine shape draped in a cloak and cowl. Glittering green candle flames flickered in what looked like two eyes within the cowl's hood. My throat went dry. It took me two tries to rasp. Queen Mab? The form vanished. A low, feminine laugh drifted through the mist to my right. I turned to face it. A furious cat squall erupted from the air six inches behind me, and I nearly jumped out of my skin. I spun to find nothing there, and the woman's laugh echoed around the top of the misty mound, this time more amused. You're enjoying this, aren't you? I said, my heart pounding in my throat. You told me so, didn't you? Whispering voices hissed among the stones around me, none of them intelligible. I saw another flicker of mocking green eyes. Th this is a limited time offer, I said, trying to make my voice sound steady. It's been forced by circumstance. If you don't get off your royal ass and jump on it, I'm walking. I warned you, said a calm voice behind me. Never let her bring you here, my godchild. I carefully kept myself from letting out a shriek. It would have been unwizardly. Instead, I took a deep breath and turned to find the Lenanshi standing a few feet away, covered in a cloak the color of the last seconds of twilight, the deep blue-purple fabric hiding her completely except for her pale face inside the hood. Her green cat eyes were wide and steady, her expression solemn. But I'm here, I said quietly. She nodded. Another shadow appeared beside her, green eyes burning. Queen Mab, I presumed, and noted that she was actually a couple of inches shorter than my godmother. Of course, especially in a place like this, Mab could be as gargantuan or lilliputian as she chose. Probably Mab stepped closer, still covered in shadows, despite the fact that she was nearer to me than my godmother was. Her eyes grew brighter. So many scars said my godmother, and her voice had changed subtly, growing cold and precise. Your scars are beautiful things, within and without. The shadowed figure stepped behind one of the fallen stones and emerged from behind another on the opposite side of the circle. Yes, said the cold voice coming from the Lenanchi's lips. I can work with this. I shivered. Because it was really cold, and I was naked, I'm sure. I looked from the dark figure to my godmother and back and asked, You're still using a translator? For your sake, said the cold voice, as a shadowed figure stepped behind the next min here and appeared atop another, walking diesel clockwise. Mab was closing the circle around me. Wh why for my sake, I asked. The cold voice laughed through the Lenanchi's lips. This conversation would quickly grow tedious if you kept falling to your knees, screaming in agony and clawing at your bleeding ears, my wizard. Yeah, but why? I asked. Why would your voice hurt me? Because she is angry, answered the Lenanchi in her natural voice. Because her voice is a part of her power, and her rage is too great to be contained. I swallowed. Mab had spoken a few words to me a couple of years back, 
and I'd reacted exactly as she described. I'd lost a couple of minutes of time during the episode her words had provoked as well. Rage? I asked. About what? The shadowed figure let out a spitting hiss, another feline sound that made me flinch and cringe away from it as if from the lash of a whip. My godmother jerked sharply to one side. She straightened only slowly, and as she did, I saw that a long, fine cut had been drawn across one of her cheeks. Blood welled up and dripped down slowly. My godmother bowed her head to Mab, and the cold voice came from her mouth again. It is not for my handmaiden to judge or question me, nor to speak for me upon her own account. Leah bowed her head to Mab again, and not a flicker of either anger or chagrin showed in her features. Again Mab moved from one stone to another without crossing the space in between. It should have been getting easier to deal with due to repetition. It wasn't. Each time she did it, I realized that she could just as easily have reappeared behind me with foul intentions, and there wouldn't be anything I could do about it. There are ancient proprieties to be honored, Mab's voice said, her tone measured and somehow formal. There are words that must be said, rites that must be observed. Speak your desire, mortal man. Now I really was shivering with the cold. I folded my arms and hunched in on myself. It didn't help. Power, I said. The shadowed figure froze in place and turned to stare at me. The burning green eyes tilted slightly, as if Mab had cocked her head to one side. Tell me why. I fought to keep my teeth from chattering. My body is badly injured, but I must do battle with the Red Court. This you have done. Many a time. This time I'm fighting all of them, I said. The Red King and his inner circle. The fire of her eyes intensified. Tell me why. I swallowed and said, They've taken my daughter. A shadowed figure shuddered, and her disembodied voice breathed a sigh of pleasure. Ah, yes. Not for your own life but for your child's, for love. I nodded jerkily. So many terrible things are done for love, Mab's voice said. For love will men mutilate themselves and murder rivals. For love will even a peaceful man go to war. For love, man will destroy himself, and that right willingly. She began walking in a physical circle now, though her movements were so touched with unexpected motions and alien grace that it almost seemed that there must be something else beneath the shrouding cloak. You know my price, mortal. Speak it. You want me to become the winter knight, I whispered. A laugh, both merry and cold, bubbled beneath her response. Yes. I will, I said with a condition. Speak it. That before my service begins, you restore my body to health. That you grant me enough time to rescue my daughter, and take her to safety, and strength and knowledge enough to succeed. And you give me your word, that you will never command me to lift my hand against those I love. 
The figure kept its eerie pace as she circled me again, and the temperature seemed to drop several degrees. You ask me to risk my night in a place of dire peril to no gain for my land and people. Why should I do this? I looked at her steadily for a moment. Then I shrugged. If you don't want to do business, I'll go elsewhere. I could still call Lashiel's coin to me in a heartbeat, and Nicodemus and the Denarians would be more than happy to help me. I am also one of the only people alive who knows how to pull off Kemmler's Dark Hollow. So, if Nicky and the Nickelheads don't want to play, I can damn well get the power for myself. And the next time I call your name, I won't need to be nearly so polite. Mab let out a mirthless laugh through my godmother's lips. You are spoiled for choices, my wizard. What reason have you to select me over the others? I grimaced. Please don't take this as an insult, but you're the least evil of my options. The cold voice told me nothing about her reaction. Explain. The Denarians would have me growing a goatee and gloating malevolently within a few years, if I didn't break and turn into some kind of murderous tarred beast first. And I'd have to kill a lot of people outright if I wanted to use the Dark Hallow. I swallowed. But I'll do it. If I have no other way to get my child out of their hands, I'll do it. Silence reigned for an unbroken minute on the mound. Yes, mused Mab's voice. You will, won't you? And yes, you know that I do not kill indiscriminately, nor encourage my knight to do so. She paused and mused. But you have proven willing to destroy yourself in the past. You won your last confrontation with my handmaiden in just such a fashion, by partaking of the death angel. What prevents you from taking a similar action to cheat me of my prize? My word, I said quietly. I know I can't bluff you. I won't suicide. I'm here to deal in good faith. Mab's burning eyes stared at me for a long moment. Then she began to walk again, more slowly on this, her third traversing of the circle around me. You must understand, wizard, once you are my knight, once this last quest of yours is complete, you are mine. You will destroy what I wish you to destroy, kill whatsoever I wish you to kill. You will be mine, blood, bone, and breath. Do you understand this? I swallowed. Yes. She nodded slowly. Then she turned to stare at the Lenanchi. Leah bowed her head again and snapped her fingers. Six cloaked figures appeared out of the mists, small, misshapen things that might have been kobolds or gnomes or any of a half-dozen other servitor races of the she. I couldn't tell, because the cloaks had rendered them faceless, without identity. But I knew the man they were carrying, strapped to a plank. Like me, he was naked. He had been shorter than me, but more athletic, heavier on muscle. But that had been years ago. Now he was a wasted shell of a human being a charcoal sketch that had been smudged by an uncaring hand. His eyes were missing, gone but neatly gone, as if removed surgically.
There were tattoos covering his entire face, particularly his sunken eyelids, all of them simply a word in different languages and styles of lettering. Traitor. His mouth was partly open, and his teeth had been inscribed with whorls and Celtic design, then stained with something dark and brown, turning his mouth into living scrimshaw. His entire body, in fact, was adorned with either tattoos or artistic, ritually applied scars. He was held to the plank with seven lengths of slender, silken cord, but his emaciated limbs looked like they would never have the strength to overcome even those frail bonds. He was weeping, sobbing softly, the sound of it more like an animal in horrible pain than anything human. Jesus, I said, and looked away from him. I am somewhat proud of this, Mab's cold voice said. To be sure, the white Christ never suffered so long or so terribly as did this traitor. Three days on a tree. Hardly enough time for a prelude. When it came to visiting agony, the Romans were hobbyists. The servitors slid the plank up onto the stone table, positioning slate in its center. Then they bowed toward Mab and retreated in measured silence. For a moment, the only sounds were those of a cold, gentle wind and Slate's sobs. For a time, I was contented to torment him to the edge of sanity. Then I set out to see how far over the edge a mortal could go. Her eyes glittered merrily in the shadows. A pity that so little was left. And yet he is the winter night, young wizard, the vessel of my power amidst mortals and consort to the queens of winter. He betrayed me. See where it has taken him. The thing that used to be Lloyd Slate made quiet, hopeless sounds. I trembled, afraid. The dark shape came closer, and a pale hand emerged from the folds of cloth. Something glittered coldly in the strange light and landed in the thick grass at my feet. I bent to take it up and found an ancient, ancient knife with a simple leaf-blade design set into a wooden handle and wrapped with cord and leather. It was, I thought, made of bronze. Its double edge had a wickedly sharp shine to it, and its needle point looked hungry somehow. Energy surged through the little blade power that was unfettered and wild, that mocked limits and scoffed at restraint. Not evil as such, but hungry, and filled with the desire to partake in its portion of the cycle of life and death. It thirsted for bloodshed. While Lloyd Slate lives and breathes, he is my knight, said Mab's voice. Take Medea's bodkin, wizard. Take his life's blood. I stood there, holding the knife and looking at Lloyd's slate. The last time I'd heard him speak, he had begged me to kill him. I didn't think he'd be capable of even that much now. If you would be my knight, then this is the first death I desire of you, Mab said, her voice almost gentle. She faced me across the stone table. Send his power back to me, and I will render it unto thee. I stood in the cold wind, not moving. What I did with the next moments would determine the course of the rest of my life. 
You know this man, Mab continued, her voice still gentle. You saw his victims. He was a murderer, a rapist, a thief, a monster in mortal flesh. He has more than earned his death. That isn't for me to judge, I whispered quietly. Indeed not. I was tempted to hide behind that rationale just for a moment, just until it was done. Lie to myself, tell myself that I was his lawful, rightful executioner. But I wasn't. I could have told myself that I was ending his pain, that I was putting him out of his hideous misery in an act of compassion, necessarily an act of bloodshed, but it would be quick and clean. Nothing should suffer as much as Lord Slate had. I could have sold myself that story, but I didn't. I was a man seeking power. For good reasons, maybe, but I wasn't going to lie to myself or anyone else about my actions. If I killed him, I would be taking a life, something that was not mine to take. I would be committing deliberate, calculated murder. It was the least evil path, I told myself. Whatever else I might have done would have turned me into a monster, in truth. Because of Lloyd Slate, I knew that whatever Mab might say, she did not control her night completely. Slate had defied her power and influence. And look where it got him. A little voice whispered inside my head. The full round moon emerged from behind the clouds and bathed the whole valley of the stone table in clear, cold light. The runes upon the table and the menhirs blazed into glittering cold light. Wizard, whispered Mab's appropriated voice, seemingly directly into my ear. The time has come. My heart began pounding very hard, and I felt sick to my stomach. Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden, Mab's voice said, almost lovingly. Choose. Chapter 31 I stared at the broken man. It was easy enough to envision my own mutilated face looking blindly up from the table's surface. I took one step toward the table, then two. Then I was standing over Lloyd Slate's broken form. If it was a fight, I wouldn't think twice. But this man was no threat to me. He was no threat to anyone anymore. I had no right to take his life, and it was pure, overwhelming, nihilistic arrogance to say otherwise. If I killed Slate, how long would it take for my turn to come? I could be looking at myself months or years from now. I couldn't, any more than I could cut my own throat. I felt my hand drop back to my side, the knife too heavy to hold before me. Mab suddenly stood at the opposite end of the stone table, facing me. Her right hand moved in a simple outward motion, and the mists over the table suddenly thickened and swirled with color and light. For a few seconds the image was hazy, then it snapped into focus. A little girl crouched in the corner of a bare stone room. There was hay scattered around, and a wool blanket that looked none too clean. She had dark hair that had been up in pigtails, but wasn't anymore. One of the little pink plastic clips had evidently been lost or stolen, and now she had only one pigtail. Her face was red from crying. 
She'd evidently been wiping her nose on the knees of her little pink overalls. Her shirt, white with yellow flowers and a big cartoon bumblebee on it, showed stains of dirt and worse. She crouched in the tiniest ball she could make of her body, as if hoping that if something should come for her, she might be overlooked. Her big brown eyes were quietly terrified, and I could see something familiar in them. It took me a moment to realize they reminded me of my reflection in a mirror. Other features showed themselves to me, muted shapes that maturity would bring forth eventually, the same chin and jawline Thomas and I shared, the same mouth as her mother's, Susan's straight, shining black hair. Her hands and her feet looked a little too large for her, like a puppy's paws. Distantly, as if from a great distance, I heard the cry of a red-court vampire in its true form, and she flinched and started crying again, her entire body trembling in terror. Maggie. I remembered when Bianca and her minions had kept me prisoner. I remembered the things they had done to me. But it didn't look like they had harmed my child. Yet. Yes, said Mab's cold voice, empty of emotion. The image began to slowly fade away. It is a true seeing of your child, as she is even now. I give you my word, no tricks, no deceptions. This is. I looked through the translucent image to where Mab and my godmother waited. Leah's face was somber. Mab's eyes were narrowed to glowing green slits within her hooded cloak. I faced them both for a moment. The cold wind gusted over the hilltop and stirred the cloaks of the two she. I stared at them, at ancient eyes full of the knowledge of dark and wicked things. I knew that neither the child in the image nor the man on the table meant anything to them. I knew that if I went forward with Mab's bargain, I would probably end up on the table myself. Of course, that was why Mab had shown me Maggie, to manipulate me. No. There was a distinction in what she had done. She had shown me Maggie to make perfectly clear exactly what choice I was about to make. Certainly it might influence my decision, but when a stark, naked truth stares you in the face, shouldn't it? I'm not sure it's possible to manipulate someone with candor and truth. I think you call that enlightenment. And as I stared at my daughter's fading image, my fear vanished. If I wound up like Slate, if that was the price I had to pay to make my daughter safe, so be it. If I was haunted by my choices for the rest of my life because Maggie needed me to make hard choices, so be it. And if I had to die a horrible, lingering death so that my little girl could have a chance to live, so be it. I tightened my grip on the hideous weight of the ancient bronze knife. I put one hand gently on Lloyd Slate's forehead to hold him still. And then I cut his throat. It was a quick, clean death, which made it no less lethal than if I'd hacked him up with an axe. Death is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how you get there, just when and why. He never struggled, just let out a breath that sounded like a sigh of relief and turned his head to one side as if going to sleep. It wasn't neat, but it wasn't a scene from a gore-fest slasher movie either. It looked more like the kind of mess you'd see in a kitchen when preparing a big bunch of steaks.
Most of his blood ran into the carved indentations on the table and seemed to become quicksilver once there, running rapidly outward through the troughs and down the lettering carved in the sides and the legs. The blood made the letters reflect the eerie light around us, giving them a sort of flickering fire of their own. It was a terrible, beautiful sight. Power hummed through that blood. The letters, the stone, and the air around me were shaken by its silent potency. I sensed the two she behind me, watching with calm, predatory eyes, as the knight who had betrayed his queens died. I knew when it was over. The two of them let out small sighs of appreciation, I suppose. I couldn't think of any other phrase that fit. They recognized the significance of his death, while in no way actually feeling any empathy for him. A life flowed from his broken body into the stone table, and they held the act in a respect akin to reverence. I just stood there, blood dripping from the bronze knife in my hand onto the earth beneath my feet. I shivered in the cold and stared at the remains of the man I'd murdered, wondering what I was supposed to feel. Sadness? Not really. He'd been the son of a bitch of the First Order, and I'd gladly have killed him in a straight-up fight if I had the chance. Remorse? None yet. I had done him a favor when I killed him. There was no getting him out of what he'd gotten himself into. Joy? No, none of that either. Satisfaction? Precious little, except that it was over, the deed done, the dice finally cast. Mostly, I just felt cold. A minute or an hour later, the Lananchi lifted a hand and snapped her fingers. The cloaked servitors appeared from the mist as silently as they'd left and gathered up what was left of Lloyd's slate. They lifted him in silence, carried him in silence, and vanished into the mist. There, I said quietly to Mab. My part is done. Time for you to live up to yours. No, child, said Mab's voice through Leah's lips. Your part has only begun. But fear not, I am Mab. The stars will rain from the sky before Mab fulfills not her word. She tilted her head slightly to one side toward my godmother and said, I give thee this adviser for thy final quest, Sir Knight. My handmaiden is among the most powerful beings in all of my winter, second only to myself. Leah's warmer, more languid voice came from her lips as she asked, My queen, to what degree am I permitted to act? I thought I saw the fell light gleam on Mab's teeth as Leah's lips said, You may indulge yourself. Leah's mouth spread into a wide, dangerous smile of its own, and she bowed her head and upper body toward the Queen of Winter. And now, my knight, Mab's voice said, as her body turned to face me exclusively, we will see to the strength of your broken body, and I will make you mine. I swallowed hard. Mab lifted a hand, a dismissive gesture, and the Lananshi bowed to her. I am no longer needed here, child, Leah murmured. I will be ready to go with thee whenever thou dost call. My throat was almost too dry to get any words out. I'll want the things I left with you as soon as you can get them to me. Of course, she said. 
She bowed to me as well and took several steps back into the mist until it swallowed her whole. And I was alone with Queen Mab. So, I said into the silence, I guess there's... there's a ceremony of some kind to go through? Mab stepped closer to me. She wasn't an enormous, imposing figure. She was considerably shorter than me, slender, but she walked with such perfect confidence that the role of predator and prey was clear to both of us. I edged back from her. It was pure instinct, and I could no more stop from doing it than I could have stopped shivering against the cold. Going to be uh, hard for us to exchange oaths if you can't talk, huh? I said. My voice sounded thin and shaky, even to me. Uh, maybe it's paperwork or something. Pale hands slipped up from the dark cloak and drew her hood back. She shook her head left and right, and pale, silken tresses, whiter than moonlight or Lloyd Slate's dead flesh, spilled forth. My voice stopped working for a second. My bare thighs hit the stone table behind me, and I wound up sitting on it. Mab kept pacing toward me, one slightly swaying step at a time. The cloak slid from her shoulders, down, down, down. <laughs> you, uh, I said, looking away, you <laughs> must be cold. A throaty little laugh bubbled up out of her frozen berry lips. Mab's voice, touched with anger, could cause physical damage to living flesh. Her voice filled with simmering desire did other things, and the cold was suddenly the least of my concerns. Her mouth closed on mine, and I gave up even trying to speak. This wasn't a ceremony so much as a rite, and one as ancient as beasts and birds, earth and sky. My memory gets shaky after the kiss. I remember her body gleaming brightly above me, cold, soft, feminine perfection. I don't have the words to describe it. In human beauty, elfin grace, animal sensuality. And when her body was atop mine, our breaths mingled, cold sweetness with human imperfection. I could feel the rhythm of her body, her breath, her heart. I could feel the stone of the table, the ancient hill of the mound, the very earth of the valley around us pulsing in time to Mab's rhythm. Clouds raced over the sky, and as she moved more quickly, she grew brighter and brighter, until I realized that the eerie luminescence around us all evening had been nothing but a dim, muffled reflection of Mab's loveliness, veiled for the sake of the mortal mind it could have unmade. She did not veil it as her breathing mounted, and it burned me, it was so pure. What we did wasn't sex, regardless of what it appeared to be. You can't have sex with a thunderstorm, an earthquake, a furious winter gale. You can't make love to a mountain, a lake of ice, a freezing wind. For a few moments I saw the breadth and depth of Mab's power, and for a fleeting instant the barest, tiniest glimpse of her purpose as well, as our entwined bodies thrashed toward completion. I was screaming. I had been for a while. Then Mab's cry joined mine, our voices blending together. Her nails dug into my chest, chips of ice sliding beneath my skin. I saw her body drawn into an arch of pleasure, and then her green cat eyes opened and bored into 
Her mouth opened and her voice hissed. Mine. Absolute truth made my body vibrate like the plucked string of a guitar, and I jerked into a brief, violent contortion. Mab's hands slid down my ribs, and I could suddenly feel the fire of the cracked bones again. Until those icy hands tightened as again she said, Mine. Again my body bowed into a violent bow, every muscle trying to tear its way off of my bones. Mab hissed in eagerness as her hands slid around my waist, covering the numb spot where my spine had probably been broken. I felt myself screaming and struggling with no control whatsoever over my body. Mab's feline eyes captured my own gaze, trapping my attention within their frozen beauty, as again a jolt of terrible, sweet cold flowed out from her fingertips, and she whispered, her voice a velvet caress, Mine. Again! screamed a voice I vaguely recognized. Something cold and metallic pressed to my chest. Claire! shouted the voice. A lightning bolt hit my chest, an agonizing ribbon of silver power that bent my body into a bow. I started screaming, and before my hips had come down, I shouted, Hexus! spewing out power into the air. Someone screamed, and someone else cursed, and sparks exploded all around me, including from the light bulb above, which seemed to overload and shatter into powder. The room was dark and quiet for a few seconds. D did we lose him? asked a steady, elderly man's voice, Fortil. Oh, God, said Molly's quavering voice. Harry? I'm fine, I said. My throat felt raw. What the hell are you doing to me? Y your heart stopped, said a third voice, the familiar one. I felt my chest and found nothing there or around my neck. My fingers quested out and touched the bed and the backboard beneath me and found my necklace there, the ruby still fixed in place by an ugly glob of rubber. I gripped the chain and slipped a little of my will into it, and cold blue light filled the room. So I did what any good mortician would, Butters continued, hit you with a bolt of lightning and tried to reanimate you. He held up two shock paddles whose wires had evidently been melted right off them. They weren't attached to anything now. He was a wiry little guy in hospital scrubs, with a shock of black hair, narrow shoulders, and a thin, restless body. He held up his hands and mimed employing the shock paddles. Then he said, in a goofy voice that was probably meant to sound hollow, It's alive! Alive! After a beat, he added, You're welcome. Butters, I sighed. Who called you into— I stopped and said, Molly— Never mind. Harry, she said, we couldn't be sure how badly you were hurt, and if you couldn't feel, you couldn't know either. And I thought we needed a real doctor, but the only one I knew you trusted was Butters, so I got him instead. Hey, Butters said. I pushed the straps off of my head and kicked irritably at the straps on my legs. Whoa there, tiger, Butters said. The little medical examiner threw himself across my legs. Hold your horses, big guy. Easy, easy. Fort Hill and Molly meant well. They joined in, and the three of them flattened me to the backboard again. I snarled out a curse and then went limp. I sat there not resisting for a moment until I thought they'd be listening, 
and I said, We don't have time for this. Get these straps off of me. Dresden, you might have a broken back, Butters said. A pinched nerve, broken bones, damage to the organs in your lower abdomen. For God's sake, man, what were you thinking not going to a hospital? I was thinking that I didn't want to make an easy target of myself, I said. I'm fine. I'm better. Good Lord, man, sputtered Forthill. Be reasonable. Your heart wasn't beating three minutes ago. Molly, I said, my voice hard. Unfasten the straps. Do it now. I heard her sniffle, but then she sat up and came up to where she could see my eyes. Um, Harry, are you still, you know, you? I blinked at her for a second, impressed. The grasshopper's inside was evidently serving her well. I'm me, I said, looking back at her eyes. That should be verification enough. If someone else had come back behind the wheel of my car, so much change to my insides and a look like that would certainly trigger a soul gaze and reveal what had happened. For now, at least. Molly bit her lip, then she said, Okay, okay, let him up. Butters sat up from my legs and then stood, scowling. Wait a minute. This is just... This is all moving a little too fast for me. The door behind him opened, and a heavy-looking man in street clothes lifted a gun and put two rounds into Butters' back from three feet away. The sheer sound of the shots was incredible, deafening. Butters dropped like a slaughtered cow. The gunman's eyes were tracking toward the rest of us before Butters hit the floor. I knew who he was looking for when his eyes swept over me and locked on. He didn't talk, didn't bluster, didn't hesitate. A professional. There were plenty of them in Chicago. He raised the gun to aim at my head while I lay there, strapped to a board from the hips down and unable to move. And as I lifted my left wrist, I noted that my shield bracelet was gone. Of course, they must have removed it so that the defibrillator's charge wouldn't have gotten any ideas, just as they'd taken the metal necklace from around my throat and the rings from my fingers. They were being terminally helpful. Clearly, this was just not my day. Chapter 32 I was tied down, but my hands weren't. I flexed the fingers of my right hand into the mystic position of attack, holding them like a pretend gun, and snapped, Arctis! The spell tore the heat from all around the gun and drew water from the air into an instant thick coating of ice, heaviest around the weapon's hammer. The shooter twitched in reaction to the spell and pulled the trigger. The encrusting ice held the hammer back and prevented it from falling. The gunman blinked and tried to pull the trigger several more times, to no avail. Fort Hill hit him around the knees. Both men went down and the gun came loose from the gunman's cold, numbed fingers as they hit the floor, and it went spinning across the room. It struck a wall, cracked the ice around its hammer, and discharged harmlessly into the wall with another roar. The gunman kicked Fort Hill in the face and the old priest fell back with a grunt of pain. Molly threw herself at him in pure rage, knocking him flat again, and began pounding her fists into him with elemental brutality and no technique whatsoever. The gunman threw an elbow that got her in the neck and knocked her back, then rose, his eyes searching the floor, until he spotted his weapon. He started for it. I killed the light from the amulet. He tripped and fell in the sudden darkness. I heard him scuffling with a dazed Fort Hill. 
Then there was a single bright flash of light that showed me the gunman arching up in pain. Then it was gone, and there was the sound of something falling heavily to the floor. Several people were breathing heavily. I got my fingers onto my amulet again and brought forth light into the room. Forthill sat against one wall, holding his jaw with one hand, looking pale. Molly was in a crouch, one hand lifted, as if she'd been about to do something with her magical talents, the way she should have at the first sound of the shots, if she'd been thinking clearly. The gunman lay on his side and began to stir again. Butters wheezed, Clear! and touched both ends of the naked wires in his hands to the gunman's chest. The wires ran back to the emergency defib unit. When they had been melted off the paddles, it had left several strands of pure copper naked on the ends of both of them. The current did what current does, and the gunman bucked in agony for a second and sagged into immobility again. Jerk! Butters wheezed. He put a hand on the small of his back and said, Ow! Ow! Ow, 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 ow! Butters! Molly croaked and hugged him. Butters said, ow! But he didn't look displeased at the hug. Grasshopper, don't strain him until we know how bad it is, I said. Damn it. I started fumbling with the straps, getting them clear of my upper body so I could sit up and work on my legs. Fordhill, are you all right? Father Fordhill said something unintelligible and let out a groan of pain. Then he heaved himself to his feet and started helping me with the buckles. His jaw was purple and swollen on one side. He'd taken one hell of a hit and stayed conscious. Tough old guy, even though he looked so mild. I got off the backboard onto my feet and picked up the gun. I'm all right, Butters said. I think. His eyes went wide and he suddenly seemed to panic. Oh, God! Make sure I'm all right. He started clawing at his shirt. That maniac freaking shot me! He got the scrub's top off and turned around to show Molly his back. He was wearing an undershirt. And on top of that, he was wearing a Kevlar vest. It was a light, underclothing garment, suitable only for protection against handguns. But the gunman had walked in with a nine-millimeter. He had put both shots onto the center line of Butters' lower back, and the vest had done its job. The rounds were still there, flattened and stuck in the ballistic weave. I'm hit, aren't I? Butters stuttered. I'm in shock. I can't feel it because I'm in shock, right? Was it in the liver? Is the blood black? Call emergency services. Butters, I said, look at me. He did, his eyes wide. Polka, I said, will never die. He blinked at me. Then he nodded and started forcing himself to take slower, deeper breaths. I'm all right? The magic underwear worked, I said. You're fine. Then why does my back hurt so much? Somebody just hit it twice with a hammer, moving about 1,200 feet per second, I said. Oh, he said. He turned to look at Molly, who nodded at him and gave him an encouraging smile. Then he shuddered and closed his eyes in relief. I don't think I'm temperamentally suited for the action thing. Yeah. Since when are you the guy in the bulletproof vest? I asked him. Butters nodded at Molly. I put it on about ten seconds after she called me and said you needed help, he said. He fumbled a small case from his pocket and opened it. See? I got chalk and holy water and garlic, too. I smiled at him, but felt a little bit sick. 
The gunman had put Butters down for the simple reason that he had been blocking the shooter's line of sight to the room. If he'd been trying for Butters, the two shots to clear his sight line would have included a third shot to the back of Butters' head. Of course, if Butters hadn't been in the way, my head wouldn't have fared any better than his. We're all so damned fragile. Footsteps sounded outside the door, and I raised the gun to cover it, taking a grip with both hands, my feet centered. I was lining up the little green targeting dots when Sonya came through the door carrying a platter of sandwiches. He stopped abruptly and lifted both eyebrows, then beamed broadly. Dresden, you are all right. He looked around the room for a moment, frowning, and said, Did I miss something? Who is that? I don't think there's anything broken, Butters told Fort Hill. But you'd better get an x-ray, just to be sure. Mandibular fracture isn't anything to play around with. The old priest nodded from his chair in the living quarters of the church's residence and wrote something down on a little pad of paper. He showed it to Butters. The little guy grinned. You're welcome, Father. Molly frowned and asked, Should we take him to the emergency room? Fort Hill shook his head and wrote on his notepad, Things to tell you first. Now I had a pair of guns I'd swiped from bad guys, the security guard's forty caliber and the gunman's nine millimeter. I was inspecting them both on the coffee table, familiarizing myself with their function and wondering if I should be planning to file off the serial numbers or something. Mouse sat next to me, his flank against my leg and his serious brown eyes watching me handle the weapons. You found out something? I asked Forthill. In a way, he wrote back. There are major movements afoot throughout South and Central America. The Red Court's upper echelon uses human servitors to interface with mortals. Many of these individuals have been sighted at airports in the past three days. All of them are bound for Mexico. Does Chichen Itza have any significance to you? I grunted. Donar Vaderung's information seemed to have been solid then. Yeah, it does. Fort Hill nodded and continued writing. There is a priest in that area. He cannot help you with your fight, but he says he can offer you and your people sanctuary, care, and secure transportation from the area when you are finished. It seems like begging for trouble to plan for our victorious departure before we know if we can get there in the first place, I said. I can get us to the general area, but not into the ruins themselves. I need to know anything he can find out about the security the Red Court will be setting up in the area. Forthill frowned at me for a moment, then he wrote, I'll ask him, but I'll need someone to talk for me. I nodded. Molly, you're with the Padre. Get a little sleep as soon as you can. Might not get a chance to before we move out otherwise. She frowned, but nodded instead of trying to talk me out of it. It's nice how brushes with violent death can concentrate even the most stubbornly independent apprentice's better judgment. Forthill held up a hand, then he wrote, First, I need to know how it is that you are back on your feet. Dr. Butters said that you would be too injured to get out of bed. Magic, I said calmly, as if that should explain everything. Forthill eyed me for a moment, then wrote, I hurt too much to argue with you. We'll make the calls. Thank you, I said quietly. He nodded and wrote, God go with you. Thank you, I said. What about me? Butters asked. 
There were equal measures of dread and excitement in his voice. Hopefully we won't need any more of your help, I said. Might be nice if he were standing by, though, just in case. Right, Butter said, nodding. What else? I clenched a hand and resisted the urge to tell him that he would be better off hiding under his bed. He knew that already. He was as frightened as a bunny in a forest full of bears, but he wanted to help. I think Father Fordhill has a car. Yes, Father? He started to write something, then scratched it out and held out his hand in a simple thumbs up. Stay with them, I said. I slapped magazines into both guns, confident that I knew them well enough to be sure they'd go bang when I pulled the trigger. Soon as Fort Hill is done, get him to an emergency room. Emergency room, Butter said. Check. Fort Hill frowned and wrote, Are you certain we shouldn't turn our attacker over to the police? Nothing in life is certain, Father, I said, rising. I stuck a gun in either pocket of my duster. But if the police get involved, they're going to ask a lot of questions and take a long time trying to sort everything out. I can't spare that time. You don't think this gunman will go to the authorities? And tell them what, I asked. That he got kidnapped off the street by a priest from St. Mary's? That we beat him up and took his illegal weapon away? I shook my head. He doesn't want the cops involved any more than we do. This was business to him. He'll make a deal to fess up to us if it means he gets to walk. And we let a murderer go free? It's an imperfect world, Father, I said. On the other hand, you don't hire professional killers to take out nice old ladies and puppy dogs. Most of the people this guy has an appointment with are underworld types, I guarantee it. Mostly those who are going to turn state's evidence on their organization. Sooner or later, one of them gets lucky, and no more hitman. Live by the sword, die by the sword, Fort Hill wrote. Exactly. He shook his head and winced as the motion caused him discomfort. It will be hard to help a man like that. I snorted. It's a noble sentiment, Padre, but a guy like him doesn't want any help, doesn't see any need for it, I shrugged. Some men just enjoy killing. He frowned severely, but didn't write down any response. Just then, someone rapped on the door, and Sonya opened it and poked his head in. Dresden, the knight said. He's awake. I rose, and Mouse rose with me. Cool. Maybe get started on those calls, Padre. Fort Hill gave me another thumbs up rather than nodding. I walked out, Mouse stolid at my back, and went back to the utility closet with Sonya to talk to our... guest, I suppose. The blocky hitman lay on the backboard, strapped down to it, and further secured in a cocoon of duct tape. Stand him up, I said. Sonya did so, rather casually lifting the gunman, backboard and all, and leaning it back at a slight angle against the wall. The gunman watched me with calm eyes. I picked up a wallet from the little folding card table we had set up and opened it. Stephen Douglas, I read from the license. That you? Stevie D., he said. Heard of you, I said. You did Torelli a couple of years back. He smiled very slightly. I don't know any Torelli. Yeah, I figured, I said. How is he? Stevie D. asked. Who? The little guy. Fine, I said, wearing a vest. Stevie D. nodded. Good. I lifted an eyebrow. Professional killer is happy he didn't kill someone? I had nothing against him. 
wasn't getting paid for him. Don't want to do time for hitting the wrong guy. Isn't professional. But everything I heard about you said I shouldn't dick around waiting to get the shot off, so I had to get him out of the way. Stevie, I said, this can go a couple of different ways. The simplest is that you give me who hired you, and I let you go. His eyes narrowed. No cops? I gestured at his bound form with one hand. Does it look like we want cops all over this? Spill, and you're loose as fast as we can take the tape off. He thought about it for a moment, then he said, Nah. No? He made a motion that might have been a shrug. Did that for you, I might never work again. People get nervous when a contractor divulges personal information about their clients. I gotta think long term. I nodded. I can respect that, honoring a bargain and all. He snorted softly. So we can go to option two. I'm going to call Marcone. I'm going to tell him what happened. I'm going to ask him if he's interested in talking to you, Stevie. I'm sure he'll want to know who is purchasing hits in his territory, too. What impact will that have on your long-term productivity, do you think? Stevie's nerve cracked. He licked his lips. Uh, he said. What's option three? Sonya stepped forward. He beamed at Stevie D, picked the backboard up off the floor without too much trouble, and in his lowest voice and thickest Russian accent said, I pick up this board, break in half, and put both halves into incinerator. Stevie D looked like a man who suddenly realizes he is sitting near a hornet's nest and is trying desperately not to run away screaming. He licked his lips again and said, Half of what I hear about you says Marcone wants you dead, that you hate his guts. The other half says you work for him sometimes. Kill the people he thinks need killing. I wouldn't pay much attention to rumors if I were you, Stevie, I said. Which is it? he asked. Find out, I said. Don't tell me anything. Sonya put him back down again. I stood facing him expectantly. Okay, he said finally. Abroad. Woman, huh? Who? No name. Paid cash. Describer. Stevie nodded. Five nine, long legs, dark eyes, he said. Some muscle on her, weighed maybe one fifty. Long dark hair, had these dark tattoos on her face and neck. My heart just about stopped in my chest. I closed down every doorway and window in my head to shut out the gale that was suddenly whipping up in my heart. I had to stay focused. I couldn't afford to let the sudden tide of emotion drown my ability to think clearly. I reached into my pocket and drew out my own wallet. I'd kept a picture of Susan in there for so long that when I pulled it out, some of the image's colors stuck to the plastic sleeve. I showed him the picture. The hitman squinted and nodded. Yeah, he said. That's her. Chapter 33 Give me the details, I said quietly. She said you'd be here. Gave me 20,000 up front, 20 more held in escrow until delivery was confirmed. Mouse made a soft, uncomfortable noise that never quite became a whine. He sat watching my face intently. When, I asked. Last night. I stared at him for a moment. 
Then I tossed Stevie's wallet back onto the folding card table and said, Cut him loose. Walk him out. Sonia let out what seemed like a disappointed sigh. Then he produced a knife and began cutting Stevie free. I walked down the hall, back toward the living area with my head bowed, thinking furiously. Susan had hired a gunman to kill me. Why? I stopped walking and leaned against a wall. Why would she hire someone to kill me? Or hell, more to the point, why would she hire a gunman to kill me? Why not someone who stood a greater chance of success? Granted, a gunman could kill even a wizard if he were taken by surprise. But pistols had to be fired at dangerously short ranges to be reliable, and Stevie D had a reputation as a brazen sidearm specialist. It meant that the wizard would have more time to see something bad coming, as opposed to being warned only when a high-powered rifle round hit his chest, and would have an easier time responding with hasty defensive magic. It was hardly an ideal approach. If Susan wanted me dead, she wouldn't really need to contract it out. A pretext to get me alone and another one to put us very close to each other would just about do it, and I'd never see that one coming. Something about this just wasn't right. I'd have called Stevie a liar, but I didn't think he was one. I was sure he believed what he was saying. So, either Stevie was lying, and I was just too dim to pick up on it, or he was telling the truth. If he was lying, given what kind of hot water I could get him into, he was also an idiot. I didn't think he was one of those. If he was telling the truth, it meant... It meant that either Susan really had hired someone to kill me, or else someone who could look like Susan had done business with Stevie D. If Susan had hired someone to kill me, why this guy in particular? Why hire someone who didn't have better than even chances of pulling it off? That was more the kind of thing Esteban and Esmeralda would come up with. That worked a lot better. Esmeralda's blue and green eyes could have made Stevie remember being hired by Mr. Snuffleupagus, if that was what she wanted. But how would she have known where to find me? Had they somehow managed to tail Sonia back to the church from my apartment without being noticed by Mouse? And just where the hell were Susan and Martin? They'd had more than enough time to get here, so why weren't they? Someone was running a game on me. If I didn't start getting some answers to these questions, I had a bad feeling that it was going to turn around and bite me on the ass at the worst moment imaginable. Right then. I guess that meant it was time to go get some answers. Paranoia is a survival trait when you run in my circles. It gives you something to do in your spare time, coming up with solutions to ridiculous problems that aren't ever going to happen, except when one of them does, at which point you feel way too vindicated. For instance, I had spent more than a couple of off hours trying to figure out how I might track someone through Chicago if I didn't have some kind of object or possession of theirs to use as a focus. Basic tracking magic is completely dependent upon having a sample of whoever it is you want to follow. Hair, blood, and nail clippings are the usual thing. But let's say you don't have any of those and you still want to find someone. If you have a sample of something in their possession, a piece snipped from their clothing, the tag just torn out of their underwear, whatever, you can get them that way, too. But let's say things are hectic and crazy, and someone has just burned down your house and your lab, and you still need to follow somebody. That's when you need a good, clear photograph, 
and minions, lots of minions, preferably ones who don't demand exorbitant wages. There's a pizza express less than two blocks from St. Mary's. Sonia and I went straight there. I ordered. I do not see how this helps us, Sonia said, as I walked out from the little shop with four boxes of pizza. You're used to solving all your problems the simple way, I said. Kick down the door, chop up everybody who looks fiendish, save everyone who looks like they might need it, yeah? It is not always that simple, Sonia said, rather stiffly, and sometimes I use a gun. Which I applaud you for, very progressive, I said. But the point is, you do your work directly. You pretty much know where you're going, or get shown the way, and after that it's just up to you to take care of business. Duh, Sonia said as we walked, I suppose. My work is sort of the same, I said, except that nobody ever points the way for me. You need to know where to go, Sonia said. Yes, and you are going to consult four large pizzas for guidance? Yes, I said. The big man frowned for a moment. Then he said, There is, I think, humor here that does not translate well from English into sanity. That's pretty rich coming from the agnostic knight of the cross with a holy sword who takes his orders from an archangel, I said. Gabriel could be an alien being of some kind, Sonia said placidly. It does not change the value of what I do, not to me and not to those whom I protect. Whom, I said, with as much Russian accent as I could fit into one word, someone's been practicing his English. Sonia somehow managed to look down his nose at me, despite the fact that I was several inches taller. I am only saying that I do not need the written code of a spiritual belief to act like a decent human being. You are way kookier than me, man, I said, turning into an alley. And I talked to pizza. I laid out the four pizza boxes on top of four adjacent trash cans and glanced around to be sure no one was nearby. It was getting near to lunch break, and it wasn't the best time for what I was about to do, but it ought to work. I turned to look up and down the alley as best I could, drew a breath, and then remembered something. Hey, Sonia, stick your fingers in your ears. The big Russian stared at me. What? Your fingers, I said, wiggling all of mine. In your ears, I said, pointing to mine. I understand the words, obviously, as I am someone who has been practicing his English. Why? Because I'm going to say something to the pizza, and I don't want you to hear it. Sonia gave the sky a single long-suffering glance. Then he sighed and put his fingers in his ears. I gave him a thumbs up, turned away, cupped my hands around my mouth so that no one could lip-read, and began to murmur a name over and over again, each utterance infused with my will. I had to repeat the name only a dozen times or so before a shadow dropped from overhead, and something the size of a hunting falcon dropped out of the sky, blurred wings humming, and hovered about two feet in front of me. Moise, moi! Sonia sputtered, and Esperachius was halfway from its sheath by the time he finished speaking. I couldn't stop myself from saying, There's some real irony in you using that expression, O oh, knight of maybe. Very hot! piped a shrill voice, like a Shakespearean actor on helium. Draw your sword, Nelv, and we will see who bleeds to death from a thousand tiny cuts. Sonya stood there with his mouth open and his sword still partly in its sheath. It is... He shook his head as if someone had popped him in the nose. 
It is a domovoi, da? The little fairy in question stood nearly fifteen full inches in height, appearing as a slender, athletic youth with the blurring wings of a dragonfly standing out from his shoulders and a tuft of hair like lavender dandelion fluff. He was dressed in garments that looked like they'd been thugged from someone's old-school G.I. Joe doll, an olive-drab jumpsuit with the sleeves removed and holes cut through it for his wings. He wore a number of weapons about his person, most of them on nylon straps that looked like they'd been lifted from convention badges. He was carrying one letter opener shaped like a long sword at his side, and two more crossed over each other on his back. I'd given him the letter opener set last Christmas, advising him to keep half of them stashed somewhere safe as backup weapons. Domavoy? The little fairy shrilled, furious. Oh, no, you didn't. Easy there, Major General, I said. Sonia, this is Major General Toot Toot Minimus, the captain of my house guard. Toot, this is my boon companion, Sonia, Knight of the Cross, who has faced danger at my side. He's okay. The fairy quivered with outrage. He's Russian, and he doesn't even know the difference between a domovoy and a polovoy when he sees one two feet away. Toot Toot let out a blistering string of words in Russian, shaking a finger at the towering knight. Sonya listened in bemusement at first, but then blinked, slid his sword away, and held up both hands. He said something that sounded somber and very formal, and only then did Toot's ire seem to abate. He said one or two more harsh-sounding words towards Sonya, added a flick of his chin that screamed, So there, and turned back to me. Toot, I said, how is it that you speak Russian? He blinked at me. Harold? he said, as if the question made no sense at all. You just speak it, don't you? I mean, come on. He gave me a formal bow and said, How may I serve you, my liege? I peered at him a bit more closely. Why is half of your face painted blue? Because we're in winter now, my liege, Toot said. His eyes darted to the side and down several times. And... Say, that doesn't mean we have to eat the pizza cold, does it? Of course not, I said. Toot looked relieved. Oh, good! Um, what were we talking about? I have a job for you, I said. And for everyone you can get to help. I nodded at the pizza. Standard rates. Very good, my liege, Toot said, saluting. His eyes slid down again. Maybe someone ought to check the pizza. You know, for poison and things. It would look real bad if someone poisoned your vassals, you know. I eyed him askance, then I held up a finger and said, All right, one piece, and after... Ah! Toot hit the pizza box like a great white shark taking a seal. He slammed into it, one bright sword slashing the top off of the box. Then he seized the largest piece and began devouring with a will. Sonya and I both stood there, fascinated. It was like watching a man try to eat a pizza slice the size of a small car. Pieces flew up and were skewered on his blade. Sauce got everywhere and gave me a gruesome little flashback to the stone table. Harry, Sonya asked, are you all right? Will be soon, I said. This creature serves you, Sonya asked. This one and about a hundred smaller ones and five times that many part-timers I can call in once in a while. I thought about it. 
it isn't so much that they serve me as that we have a business arrangement that we all like. They help me out from time to time. I furnish them with regular pizza. Which they love, Sonya said. Toot spun in a dizzy, delighted circle on one heel and fell onto his back with a perfectly unselfconscious enthusiasm, his tummy sticking out as far as it could. He lay there for a moment, making happy, gurgling sounds. Well, I said, yes. Sonya's eyes danced, though his face was sober. You are a drug dealer to tiny fairies. Shame. I snorted. What was that he said about winter? Sonya asked. How is the new winter night? Toot Toot burbled. Which is fantastic. The old winter night most of just sat around getting tortured. He never went on adventures or anything. He paused and added, Unless you count going crazy, I guess. Toot, I said. I'm kind of trying to keep the winter night thing low profile. Okay, Toot said. Why? I glanced from the little fairy to Sonya. Look, I... It's personal, okay, and... Because every creature and fairy got to see the ceremony, Toot said proudly. Mab made sure of it. It was reflected in all the streams and ponds and lakes and puddles and every little drop of water. I stared at the engorged fairy at something of a loss for words. Um, I said. Oh, how... Very, very disturbing. Did it hurt when you kissed Mab? Toot asked. Because I always thought that her lips looked so cold that they would burn, like street lamps in winter. Toot sat up suddenly, his eyes wide. Ooh, did your tongue get stuck to her, like on that Christmas time show? Okay, I said with forced cheer, clapping my hands. Way, way too personal. Um, the job. I have a job for you. Toot Toot leapt up to his feet. His stomach was already constricting back toward its normal size. Yes, my lose. Where the hell did he put it all? I mean, it just wasn't possible for him to eat that much pizza, and then... I shook my head. Now wasn't the time. I produced my picture of Susan. This human is somewhere in Chicago. I need your folk to find her. She's probably accompanied by a human man with blonde hair, about the same size she is. Toot took to his wings again and zoomed down to the picture. He picked it up and held it out at arm's length, studying it, and nodded once. May I have this, my lord, to show the others? Yeah, I said. Be careful with it, though. I want it back. Yes, my liege, Toot said. He brandished his sword with a flourish, sheathed it, and zipped straight up into the October sky. Sonya stood looking steadily at me. I coughed. I waited. So, he said. Meb. I grunted vaguely in reply. You hit that, Sonya said. I did not look at him. My face felt red. You, he scrunched up his nose, digging in his memory, tipped that ass. Presumably it was fat. Sonya. He let out a low, rolling laugh and shook his head. I saw her once, Meb. Beautiful, beyond words. Yeah, I said. And dangerous. Yes, I said, with emphasis. And you are now her champion, he said. 
Everybody's gotta be something, right? He nodded. Joking about it. Good. You will need that sense of humor. Why do you say that? Because she is cold, Dresden. She knows wicked secrets time himself has forgotten. And if she chose you to be her knight, she has a plan for you. He nodded slowly. Laugh whenever you can. Keeps you from killing yourself when things are bad. That and vodka. That's some kind of Russian saying, I asked. Have you seen traditional folk dances? Sonya asked. Imagine them being done by someone with a bottle of vodka in them. Laughter abounds, and you survive another day. He shrugged. Or break your neck. Either way, it is pain management. His voice sounded almost merry, though the subject matter was grim as hell, if not more so. I had expected him to try to talk me out of it, or at least to berate me for being an idiot. He didn't do either. There was a calm acceptance of terrible things that was part and parcel of Sonya's personality. No matter how bad things got, I didn't think anything would ever truly faze him. He simply accepted the bad things that happened and soldiered on as best he could. There was probably a lesson for me in there, somewhere. I was quiet for a while before I decided to trust him. I get to save my girl first, I said. That was the deal. Huh, he said. He seemed to mull it over and nodded. That is reasonable. You really think that? He lifted both eyebrows. The child is your blood, is she not? I nodded and said quietly, She is. He spread his hands, as if it were a self-evident fact that needed no further exploration. As horrible fates go, that is a good one, he said. Worthwhile. Save your little girl. He clapped me on the shoulder. If you turn into a hideous monster and I'm sent to slay you, I will remember this and make it as painless as I can, out of respect for you. I knew he was joking. I just couldn't tell which part of it he was joking about. Uh, I said, thanks. It is nothing, he said. We stood around quietly for another five minutes before he frowned, looking at the other pizza boxes, and asked, Is there some purpose for the rest of the... A scene out of the birds descended upon the alley. There was a rush of wing-beaten wind, and hundreds of tiny figures flashed down onto the pizza. Here and there I would spot one of the pizza lord's guard, recognizable thanks to the orange plastic cases of the box knives they had strapped to their backs. The others went by in twinkles and flashes of color, muted by the daylight, but beautiful all the same. There were a lot of the little folk involved. If I'd been doing this at night, it might have induced a seizure or something. The little folk love pizza. They love it with a passion so intense that it beggars the imagination. Watching a pizza being devoured was sort of like watching a plane coming apart in midair on those old World War II gun camera reels. Bits would fleck off here and there, and then suddenly in a rush, bits would go flying everywhere, each borne away by the individual fairy who had seized it. It was over in less than three minutes. Seriously, where do they put it? Toot came to hover before me and popped a little fistful of pizza into his mouth. He gulped it down and saluted. Well, Major General, I asked. Found her, my luge, Toot reported. She is a captive and in danger. Sonya and I traded a look. Where? I asked him. 
Toot firmly held up the picture, still in one piece, and two strands of dark hair, each curled into its own coil of rope in his tiny hands. Two hairs from her head, my liege, or, if it is your pleasure, I will guide you there. Sonia drew his head back a little, impressed. They found her? That quickly? People underestimate the hell out of the little folk, I said calmly. Within their limits, they're as good as or better than anything else I know for getting information, and there are a lot of them around Chicago who are willing to help me out occasionally. Hail the pizza lord, Toot Toot shrilled. Hail the pizza lord, answered a score of piping voices that came from no apparent source. The little folk can be all but invisible when they want to be. Major General Minimus, keep this up, and I'm making you a full general, I said. Toot froze. Why? Was that bad? What did I do? It's good, Toot. That's higher than a major general. His eyes widened. There's higher? Oh, yeah, definitely. And you're on the fast track for the very top. I took the hairs from him and said, We'll get the car. Lead us to her, Toot. Yes, sir. Good, Sonia said, grinning. Now we know where to go and have someone to rescue. This part I know how to do. Chapter 34 Admittedly, Sonia said a few minutes later, normally I do not storm headquarters buildings of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and in broad daylight, too. We were parked down the block from the FBI's Chicago office, where Toot had guided us, crouched on the dashboard and demanding to know why Sonia hadn't rented one of the cars that could fly instead of the pokey old landbound minivan he had instead. Toot hadn't taken the answer that cars like that are imaginary seriously either. He had muttered a few things in Russian that only made Sonya's smile wider. Damn, I said, staring at the building. Toot, was Martin with her? The yellow hair? Toot sat on the dashboard facing us, waving his feet. No, my liege. I grunted. I don't like that either. Why wouldn't they have been taken together? Which floor is she on, Toot? There, Toot said, pointing. I leaned over and hunkered down behind him so that I could look down the length of his little arm to the window he was pointing at. Fourth, I said. That was where Tilly was talking to me. Sonya reached down to produce a semi-automatic he'd hidden beneath the seat of the minivan and cycled around into the chamber, his eyes glued to the outside mirror. Company. A bald, slightly overweight bum in a shabby overcoat and cast-off clothing shambled down the sidewalk with vacant eyes but he was moving a little too purposefully toward us to be genuine. I was watching his hands with my shield bracelet ready to go, expecting him to pull a weapon out from beneath the big coat, and it wasn't until he was a few steps away that I realized it was Martin. He stopped on the sidewalk next to the passenger window of the van and wobbled in place. He rapped on the glass and held out his hand as if begging a hand out. I rolled down the window and asked him, What happened? The FBI did his legwork, he said. They tracked our rental car back to my cover ID, got my picture, put it on TV. One of the detectives we shook down confirmed my presence and told them I'd been seen at your place, and they were waiting there when we came back to get you. Susan created a distraction so that I could get away. And you left her behind, huh? He shrugged. Her identity is genuine. And while they know she arrived with me and was seen with me, they can't prove that she's done anything. I've been operating long enough that the Red Court has seen to it that I'm on multiple international lists of wanted terrorists. 
If I were caught, both of us would have been taken. I grunted. What did you find out? The last of the Red King's inner circle arrived this morning. They'll do the ceremony tonight, he said. Midnight, or a little after, if our astronomer's assessment is solid. Crap, Martin nodded. How fast can you get us there? I touched a fingertip to my mother's gem and double-checked the way there. This one doesn't have a direct route. Three hops, a couple of walks, one of them in bad terrain. Should take us ninety minutes. Gets us to within five miles of Chichen Itza. Martin looked at me for a long moment, then he said, I can't help but find it somewhat convenient that you were suddenly able to provide that kind of fast transport to exactly the places we need to go. The Red Court had their goodies stashed near a confluence of ley lines, I said. A point of ample magical power. Chichen Itza is at another such confluence, only a lot bigger. Chicago is a crossroads, both physically and metaphysically. There are dozens of confluences either in the town or within twenty-five miles. The routes I know through the Never-Never mostly run from confluence to confluence, so Chicago's got a direct route to a lot of places. Sonia made an interested sound. Like the airports in Dallas or Atlanta or here. Travel nexuses. Exactly. Martin nodded, though he didn't look like he particularly believed or disbelieved me. That gives us a little more than nine hours, he said. The church is trying to get us information about local security at Chichen Itza. Meet me at St. Mary of the Angels. I handed him the change, scrounged from my pockets. Tell them Harry Dresden said you were no Stevie D. We'll leave from there. You, he shook his head a little. You got the church to help you? Hell, man, I got a knight of the cross driving me around. Sonya snorted. Martin studied Sonya with eyes that were a little wide. I see. A certain energy seemed to enter him as he nodded, and I knew exactly what he was feeling. The positive upswing in his emotions, an electricity that came with a sudden understanding that not only was death not certain, but that victory might actually be possible. Hope is a force of nature. Don't let anyone tell you different. Martin nodded. What about Susan? I'll get her out, I said. Martin ducked his head in another nod. Then he took a deep breath and said simply, Thank you. He turned and shambled away drunkenly, clutching his coins. Seems like a decent fellow, Sonya said. His nostrils flared a little. Half vampire, you see. Fellowship of St. Giles? Yeah, like Susan. I watched Martin vanish into Chicago's lunchtime foot traffic and said, I'm not sure I trust him. I would say the feeling is mutual, Sonia said. When a man lives a life like Martin's, he learns not to trust anyone. I grunted sourly. Stop being reasonable. I enjoy disliking him. Sonia chuckled and said, So, what now? I took the guns out of my duster pockets and stowed them beneath the minivan's passenger seat. You go back to St. Mary's. I go in and get Susan and meet you there. Sonia lifted his eyebrows. You get her from in there? Sure. He pursed his lips thoughtfully, then shrugged. Okay, I suppose it is your funeral, duh? I nodded firmly. Duh. I walked into the building and through the metal detectors. They went beep. I stopped and dropped all the rings and the shield bracelet into a plastic tub, 
then tried again. They didn't fuss at me the second time. I got my stuff back and walked up to a station in the center of the floor that looked like an information desk. I produced one of my cards, the ones that called me a private investigator. I had only half a dozen of them left. The rest had been in my desk drawer at the office. I need to speak to Agent Tilly about his current investigation. The woman behind the desk nodded matter-of-factly, called Tilly's office, and asked if he'd see me. She nodded once and said, Yes, sir, and smiled at me. You'll need a visitor's badge. Here. Please make sure it's displayed at all times. I took the badge and clipped it to my duster. Thanks, I know the drill. Fourth floor, she said, and nodded at the person in line behind me. I walked down to the elevators, rode them up to four, and walked to Tilly's office, which turned out to be right across the hall from the interrogation room. Tilly, small, dapper, and quick-looking, stood in the doorway, looking at a file in a manila folder. He let me see that there was a picture of Susan, paper-clipped to the inside cover, before he closed the file and tucked it under his arm. So, he said, it's Mr. Known Associate, just as well. I needed to talk to you again anyway. I'm a popular guy this week, I said. You're telling me, Tilly said. He folded his arms, frowning. So, we got a car rented by a mystery man using a bogus identity right outside a building that blows up. We got sworn testimony from two local snoops that this leggy looker named Susan Rodriguez was seen in his company. We got a pancake Volkswagen bug belonging to Harry Dresden, and $70,000 worth of property damage near the house of a local crooked IA cop who lied his ass off to point me at you. We got a file that says that Susan Rodriguez was at one point your girlfriend. Eyewitnesses that place both her and the mystery man at your apartment, which seemed to be a little too clean of anything that could implicate you. But before we could go back and take a real hard close look at it for trace evidence, it burns to the ground. Fire Chief is still working on the investigation, but his first impression is arson. Tilly scratched his chin thoughtfully. I don't know if you're up on investigative technique, but when there are this many connections between a relatively small number of people and events, it can sometimes be an indicator that they might be up to something nefarious. Nefarious, huh? I asked. Tilly nodded. Good word, isn't it? He scrunched up his nose. Disappoints me because my instinct said that you were playing it level with me. Close to the chest, but level. I guess you can always run into someone better at lying than you are at catching them, huh? Probably, I said. But you didn't, at least not with me. He grunted. Maybe, maybe. He glanced back into his office. What do you think? I think you're playing with dynamite again, Tilly, said Murphy's voice. Murph, I said, relieved. I leaned around Tilly and waved at her. She looked at me and shook her head. Damn it, Dresden. Can't you do anything quietly and in an orderly fashion? No way, I said. It's the only thing keeping Tilly here from deciding I'm some kind of bomb maker. Murphy's mouth twitched up at one corner briefly. She asked soberly, Are you okay? They burned down my house, Murph, I said. Mister got out, but I don't know where he's at. I mean... I know that a lost cat isn't exactly a priority right now, but I shrugged. I guess I'm worried about him. If he misses his feeding, Murphy said wryly, I'm more worried about me. Mister is the closest thing to a mountain lion for a few hundred miles. He'll be fine.
Tilly blinked and turned to Murphy. Seriously? Murphy frowned at him. What? You still back him, Tilly said, despite all the flags he's setting off. Yeah, Murphy said. Tilly exhaled slowly, then he said, All right, Dresden, step into my office. I did. Tilly shut the door behind us. Okay, he said. Tell me what's going on here. You don't want to know, Murphy said. She'd beaten me to it. That's funny, Tilly said. I just checked in with my brain about an hour ago, and at that time it told me that it did want to know. Murphy exhaled and glanced at me. I held up both hands. I hardly know the guy. Your call. Murphy nodded and asked Tilly. How much do you know about the black cat case files? Tilly looked at her for a moment. Then he looked at his identification badge clipped to his jacket. Funny, for a second there, I thought someone must have changed it to say Mulder. I'm serious, Till, Murphy said. His dark eyebrows climbed. Um, they were the forerunner to special investigations, right? Sixties, seventies, I think. They got handed all the weirdo stuff. The files make some claims that make me believe several of those officers were having fun with all the wonderful new psychotropic drugs that were coming out back then. What if I told you that they weren't stoned, Till? Murphy asked. Tilly frowned. Is that what you're telling me? They weren't stoned, Murphy said. Tilly's frown deepened. S.I. handles the same stuff the black cats did. It's just been made real clear to us that our reports had better not sound like a drug trip. So, the reports provide an explanation. They don't provide much accuracy. You're standing there, right in front of me, telling me that when Dresden told me it was vampires, he was being serious? Completely, Murphy said. Tilly folded his arms. Jesus, Karen. You think I'm lying to you? she asked. You aren't, he said. But that doesn't mean there are vampires running around out there. It just means that you believe it's true. Maybe I'm just gullible, Murphy suggested. Tilly gave her a reproachful look. Or maybe the pressure is getting to you and you aren't seeing things objectively. I mean, if you make some comment even obliquely alluding to menstruation or menopause and its effect on my judgment, Murphy interrupted, I will break your arm in eleven places. Tilly pressed his lips together sourly. Damn it, Murphy, can you hear yourself? Vampires, for Christ's sake. What am I supposed to think? Murphy spread her hands. I'm not sure. Harry, what's actually happening? I laid out the last couple of days, focusing on the events in Chicago and leaving out everything but the broadest picture of the White Council and the Red Court and their involvement. This vampire couple, Murphy said, you think they're the ones who got to Rudolph? Stands to reason. They could put pressure on him a lot of different ways. They wanted to remove him before he could squeal and sent their heavy to do it. I can't believe what I'm hearing here, Tilly said. So when are you moving, Murphy asked me, ignoring him. Tonight. No one is moving anywhere until I get some answers, Tilly said. To his credit, he didn't stick any bravado into the sentence. He made it as a statement of simple fact. Don't know how many of those I can give you, man, I said quietly. There's not much time, and my little girl is in danger. This isn't a negotiation, Tilly said. Agent, 
I said, sighing. There's still a little time. I'm willing to talk with you. My voice hardened. But not for long. Please believe me when I say that I can take Susan out of this building with or without your cooperation. Harry, Murphy said, as if I just uttered something unthinkably rude for which I ought to be ashamed. Tick-tock, Murph, I answered. If he pushes me, I can't afford to stand here and smile. Now I'm curious, Tilly said, bristling almost visibly. I think I'd like to see you try that. Till, Murphy said in exactly the same voice. Mother of God, boys, would it kill either of you to behave like adults? Please? I folded my arms, scowling. Tilly did the same, but we both shut up. Thank you, Murphy said. Till, do you remember that tape that was on the news a few years back, after the deaths at Special Investigations? The werewolf thing, Tilly asked. Yeah, blurry, badly lit, out of focus, and terrible effects. The creature didn't look anything like a werewolf, only suddenly the tape mysteriously vanishes so it can't be verified by anyone. Second-hand versions are probably on the Internet somewhere. He mused and said, The actress they had playing you was pretty good, though. That wasn't an actress, Till, Murphy said quietly. I was there. I saw it happen. The tape was genuine. You have my word. Tilly frowned again. He ducked his head down slightly, dark eyes focused on his thoughts, as if he were reading from a report only he could see. Look, man, I said quietly. Think about it like this. What if you'd never heard me say the word vampire? What if I'd said drug cartel or terrorists instead? And I told you that this group of terrorists was financed by shady corporations and that one of them had blown the office building to prevent their illegal data from being stolen and exposed to the world. What if I had told you that because I'd pissed them off, a bunch of terrorists had taken my daughter, that they were going to cut her head off and put the video on the Internet, that Susan and the mystery man were spooks from an organization I was not at liberty to divulge, trying to help me find and recover the girl? Would it still sound crazy? Tilly cocked his head for a second, then he said in a subdued voice, It would sound like the plot of a cheesy novel, he shrugged. But the logic would hold up. I mean, they don't call those assholes extremists for nothing. Okay, I said gently. Then maybe we can just pretend I said it was terrorists and go from there. It's my daughter, man. Tilly looked back and forth from me to Murphy he said quietly. Either you're both crazy, or I am, or you're telling me the truth. He shook his head. And I'm not sure which of the possibilities disturbs me more. You got a piece of paper? I asked him. Bemused, he got in his drawer and got out a pad. I grabbed a pen and wrote on it, Susan, tell him everything. Harry. I tore off the page, folded the note, and said, I guess Susan hasn't said much to you, Tilly grunted. Nothing, in fact, literally nothing, which is fairly hardcore in my experience. She can be stubborn, I said. Go give her this. You know I haven't seen her in hours. Get her story off the record. See how well it matches up. He took the note and looked at it, then back at me. Hard to know who to trust, I said. Talk to her. Try to take the story apart. See if it stands up. He thought about it for a moment and said, Keep him here, Murphy. 
Okay. Tilly left. There were two chairs, and neither looked comfortable. I settled down on the floor and closed my eyes. How bad is it? She asked me. Pretty bad, I said quietly. Uh, I need to ask you a favor. Sure. If... Look, I have a will in a lockbox at the National Bank on Michigan. If something should happen to me, I'd appreciate it if you'd see to it. You are on the list of people who can open it, listed as executor. Harry, she said. Granted, there's not much to have a will about at the moment, I said. Everything was in my house or office, but there are some intangibles, and I felt my throat tighten and cut short my request. Take care of it for me? There was silence, and then Murphy moved and settled down next to me. Her hand squeezed mine. I squeezed back. Sure, she said. Thanks. There's... There's nothing in there about Maggie, obviously, I said. But if I can't be there to, uh, I want her in a good home, somewhere safe. Hey, emo boy, she said. Time to take a gloom break, right? You aren't dead yet, as far as I can tell. I snorted quietly and opened my eyes, looking up at her. You'll take care of her yourself when this is done. I shook my head slowly. I... I can't, Murph. Susan was right. All I can offer her is a life under siege. My enemies would use her. She's got to vanish. Go somewhere safe. Really safe. Not even I can know where she is. I swallowed on a choking sensation in my throat. Father Forthill at St. Mary's can help. Mouse should go with her. He'll keep her safe. Murphy looked at me, troubled. You aren't telling me something. It isn't important for now, I said. If you could find Mr. Uh, Molly might like to have him around, just so long as he's taken care of. Jesus, Harry, Murphy said. I'm not planning a suicide run, if that's what you're thinking, I said. But there's a possibility that I won't come back from this. If that happens, I need someone I can trust to know my wishes and carry them out, in case I can't. I'll do it, Murphy said, and let out a short laugh, for crying out loud. I'll do it just so we can talk about something else. I smiled, too, and Rudolph entered Tilly's office and found us both on the floor, grinning. Everyone froze. No one looked certain of how to react. Well, Rudolph said quietly, I always figured this for what it was, but boy, did you have everyone at your headquarters fooled, Murphy. Hi, Rudy, I said. You've got a beautiful home. Rudolph gnashed his teeth and drew an envelope out of his pocket. He flicked it to the floor near Murphy. For you, a cease and desist order, specifying that you aren't allowed within 200 yards of this case or anyone involved in the active investigation. Until your competence and non-complicity have been confirmed by a special tribunal of the Chicago Police Board. Also a written order from Lieutenant Stallings, specifying that you are to have nothing to do with the investigation into the explosion and relieving you of duty forthwith if you do not comply. His eyes shifted to me. You. I haven't forgotten you. 
Shame, I said. I'd almost forgotten you, but you've ruined that, walking into the room and all. This isn't over, Dresden. I sighed. Yeah, I've been having that kind of week. Murphy opened the envelope and read over a pair of pages. Then she looked at Rudolph and said, What did you tell them? You have your orders, Sergeant, Rudolph said coldly. Leave the building before I relieve you of your weapon and your shield. You mosquito-dicked weasel, she said, her voice coldly furious. That remark is going into my report for the tribunal, Murphy, Rudolph said. There was a vicious satisfaction in his voice. And once they read the rest, you're done. With your record, they aren't paying you any more slack, bitch. You're gone. Something dark and ugly stirred in my chest, and the sudden image of Rudolph pinned to the wall by a ton of crystalline ice popped into my brain. Bitch, Murphy said, rising. Whoa, I said, drawing out the word as I came to my own feet and speaking as much to myself as to the furious woman. Murph, don't play his game here. Game, Rudolph said. You're a menace, Murphy, and a disgrace. You belong behind bars. Once you're out, it'll happen, too. You and this clown, both. Clown, I said, in the exact same tone Murphy had used. And the lights went out. There was a sudden hush all around us, as FBI headquarters was plunged into powerless darkness. After several seconds, the emergency lights still hadn't come on. Harry, Murphy said, her tone annoyed. I felt the hairs on the back of my neck crawling around. I lowered my voice and said, That wasn't me. Where are the emergency lights? Rudolph said. They're supposed to turn on within seconds, right? <laughs> I said into the darkness. <laughs> Rudy, old buddy, do you remember the night we met? Tilly's office was adjacent to the elevator, and I distinctly heard the hunting scream of a red court vampire echoing around the elevator shaft. It was followed by a chorus of screams, more than a score of individual hunting cries. Lots of vampires in an enclosed space. That was bad. The heavy, throbbing beat of a hideous heart underlay the screams, audible four stories up and through the wall. I shuddered. Lots of vampires and the ick in an enclosed space. That was worse. What is that? Rudolph asked in a squeaky whisper. I willed light into my amulet, prepared my shield bracelet, and drew my blasting rod out of my coat. Beside me, Murphy had already drawn her sig. She tested the little flashlight on it, found it functional, and looked up at me with the serene expression and steady breathing that told me she was controlling her fear. What's the play? she asked. Get Susan and get out, I said. If I'm not here and she's not here, they've got no reason to attack. What is it? Rudolph asked again. What is that noise? Huh? Murphy leaned her head a bit toward Rudolph, questioning me with a quirked eyebrow. Damn it, I sighed. You're right. We'll have to take him with us, too. Tell me, Rudolph said near panic. You have to tell me what that is. Do we tell him, I asked. Sure. Murphy and I turned toward the door, weapons raised, and spoke in offhand stereo. Terrorists. Chapter 35
By the time Murphy and I had moved into the hall, gunfire had erupted on the floors below us. It didn't sound like much, simple staccato thumping sounds, but anyone who'd heard shots fired in earnest would never mistake them for anything else. I hoped that nobody was carrying rounds heavy enough to come up through the intervening floors and nail me. There just aren't any minor injuries to be had from something like that. Those screams, Murphy said. Red Court, right? Yeah, where's Susan? Interrogation room, that way. She nodded to the left and I took the lead. I walked with my shoulder brushing the left-hand wall. Murph, after dragging the sputtering Rudolph out of the office, walked a step behind me and a pace to my right, so that she could shoot past me if she had to. We'd played this game before. If something bad came for us, I'd stand it off long enough to give her a clean shot. That would be critical, buying her the extra second to place her shot. Vampires aren't immune to the damage bullets cause, but they can recover from anything but the most lethal hits, and they know it. A red-court vampire would almost always be willing to charge a mortal gunman, knowing how difficult it is to really place a shot with lethal effect, especially with a howling monster rushing toward you. You needed a hit square in the head, severing the spine, or in their gut, rupturing the blood reservoir, to really put a red-court vampire down. And they could generally recover, even from those wounds, with enough time and blood to feed upon. Murphy knew exactly what she was shooting at, and had proved that she could be steady enough to deal with the red, but the other personnel in the building lacked her knowledge and experience. The FBI was in for a real bad day. We moved down the hall, quick and silent, and when a frightened-looking clerical type stumbled out of a break-room doorway toward us, I nearly sent a blast of flame through him. Murphy had her badge hanging around her neck, and she instructed him to get back inside and barricade the door. He was clearly terrified, and responded without question to the tone of calm authority in Murph's voice. Maybe we should do that, Rudolph said. Get in a room, barricade the door. They've got a heavy with them, I said to Murphy as I took the lead again. Big, strong, fast, like the Lou It's some kind of Mayan thing, an ick, uh, something or other. Murphy cursed. How do we kill it? Not sure, but daylight seems a pretty good bet. We were passing down a hallway that had several offices with exterior windows. The light of the autumn afternoon, reduced by the occasional curtain, created a kind of murky twilight to move through, and one that my ambient blue wizard light did little to disperse. Eerier than the lighting was the silence. No air ducts sighed, no elevators rattled, no phones rang, but twice I heard gunshots the rapid bang-bang-bang of practically useless panic fire both times. Vampires shrieked out their hunting cries several different times, and the thub-dub of the ick's bizarre heartbeat was steady, omnipresent, and slowly growing louder. Maybe we need a bunch of mirrors or something, Murphy said. Bring a bunch of daylight in. Way harder to do than it looks in the movies, I said. I figure I'll just blow open a hole in the side of the building. I licked my lips. Crud. Uh... Which way is south? That'll be the best side to do it on. You're threatening to destroy a federal building! Rudolph squeaked. Gunshots sounded somewhere close, maybe on the third floor directly below us, maybe on the other side of the fourth floor, muffled by a lot of cubicle walls. Oh, God! Rudolph whimpered. Oh, dear, sweet Jesus! He just started repeating that in a mindlessly frightened whisper. Aha, I said as we reached the interrogation room. We have our cowardly lion. Cover me, Dorothy.
Remind me to ask what the hell you're talking about later, Murphy said. I started to open the door, but paused. Tilly was armed, presumably smart enough to be scared, and it probably wasn't the best idea in the world to just open the door of the room and scare him. So I moved as far as possible to one side, reached way over to the door, and knocked. In code, even. Shave and a haircut. There was a lengthy pause, and then someone knocked on the other side of the door. Two bits. I twisted the knob and opened the door very, very slowly. Tilly, I said in a hoarse whisper. Susan? The interrogation room didn't have any windows, and it was completely dark inside. Tilly appeared in the doorway, holding up a hand to shield his eyes. Dresden? Yeah, obviously, I said. Susan? I'm here, she said from the darkness, her voice shaking with fear. I'm cuffed to the chair, Harry. We've got to go. Working on it, I said quietly. You don't understand. That thing, that drumming sound, it's a devourer. You don't fight them, you run and pray someone slower than you attracts its attention. Yeah, already met the ick, I said. I'd rather not repeat the experience. I held out a hand to Tilly. I need cuff keys. Tilly hesitated, clearly torn between his sense of duty and order and the primal fear that had risen in the building. He shook his head, but it didn't seem like his heart was in it. Tilly, Murphy said. She turned to him, her expression ferociously determined, and said, Trust me. Please, just do it. People are going to die as long as these three are in the building. He passed me the keys. I took them over to Susan, who was sitting in the same chair I had during my chat with the feds. She wore her dark leather pants and a black T-shirt and looked oddly vulnerable just sitting there during a situation like this. I went to her and started unfastening the cuffs. Thank you, she said quietly. I was getting a little worried there. They must have come in through the basement somehow, I said. She nodded. They'll work their way up, floor by floor. Kill everyone they can. It's how they operate. Remove the target and leave a message for everyone else. Tilly shook his head as if dazed. That's... what? That's how some of the cartels operate in Colombia, Venezuela, but... Susan gave him an impatient look and shook her head. What have I been telling you for the last fifteen minutes? A vampire let out a hunting scream, one not interdicted by floors. They're here, Susan whispered as she rubbed at her newly freed wrists. We have to move. I stopped for a moment, then I said quietly, They'll just keep on killing until they find the target, floor by floor, I said. Susan nodded tightly. I bit my lip, then I said, So, if we run, they'll keep going, all the way up. Murphy turned her head to look at me, then jerked her eyes back out to the hallway, wary. Fight? We won't win, I said, quietly certain. Not here, on their timing. They've got all the advantages. But we can't just abandon all those people, either. She took a deep breath and let it out slowly. No, we can't, Murphy said. So, what are we going to do? Does anyone have an extra weapon? Susan asked. No one said anything, and she nodded, turned to the heavy conference table, and flipped it over with one hand. She tore off a heavy steel leg as if it had been attached with a kindergartner's glue rather than high-grade steel bolts. Tilly stared, his mouth open. Then he said very quietly, Ah, 
Susan whirled the table leg once, testing its balance, and nodded. It will do. I grunted. Then I said, Here's the plan. We're going to show ourselves to the vampires and the ick. We're going to hit whoever they have out front with everything we have and squash them flat. That should make sure we have the attention of the entire strike team. Yes, Murphy said in a dry tone. That's brilliant. I made a face at her. Once they're good and interested, you, Tilly, and Rudolph are going to split off from the rest of us and hit the nearest emergency exit. If it comes down to it, you probably have better odds of surviving a jump out the window than you do staying in here. You with me? Murphy frowned. What about you? Susan, me, and your stunt doubles are going to jump over into the never-never and try to draw the bad guys after us. Stunt doubles? Murphy asked. We are? Susan asked, alarmed. Sure. I need your mighty thews to protect me, you being super chick and all. Okay, Susan said, eyeing me as if she thought I was losing my mind, which, hey, I admit, totally possible. What's on the other side? No clue, I said, and a touch to my mother's gem told me that she hadn't ever actually been in this building on her dimension-hopping jaunts. We'll hope it isn't an ocean of acid or a patch of cloud 5,000 feet above a big rock. Susan's eyes widened slightly, and then she shot me a wolfish smile. I love this plan. Thought you would, I said. Meanwhile, you three get out. Does this place have an exterior fire escape? Rudolph just rocked back and forth, making soft moaning noises. Tilly still looked stunned at what he had just seen from Susan. Murphy cuffed him lightly on the back of the head. Hey, Barry. Tilly shook his head and looked at her. Fire escape, no. Find a stairwell, then, I told Murphy. Go quiet and fast, in case some of them were too stupid to follow me. Murphy nodded and gave Tilly's shoulder a little shake. Hey, Tilly, you're in charge of Rudolph, all right? Keep him moving and out of any lines of fire. The slender little man nodded, slowly at first, and then more rapidly as he seemed to take control of himself. Right, I'm his nanny, got it. Murphy gave him part of a grin and a firm nod. Right, I said. Is this a great plan or what? I'm point. Murph, you've got my six. Susan, you ride drag. Got it, Susan said. The faint, constant drumbeat of the ick's throbbing heart got fractionally louder. Go, I said, and hit the hallways again. At my request, Tilly steered us toward the central staircase, running parallel to the elevator shafts because I figured it would make sense for most of the strike team to use the single stairwell while the others were covered by maybe a single guard. We ran into another handful of people who were hovering, uncertain of what to do, and who looked at me in a manner that suggested they would find my advice less than credible. Tilly, I said, half-pleading. Tilly nodded and started speaking in a calm, authoritative tone. There's some kind of attack underway. Tammy, you and Joe and Mickey need to get to one of those offices with a window. You got that? A window. Take the curtains down, let the light in, barricade the door, and sit tight. He looked at me and said, Help's on the way. I swapped a look with Murphy, who nodded confidently at me. Tilly had gotten the supernatural shoved in his face pretty hard, but he'd rebounded with tremendous agility. Or maybe he'd simply cracked. I guess we'd see eventually. The federal personnel scurried to obey Tilly, running down the hall we'd just come from. If we'd been about ten seconds slower, the vampire would have found them first instead of us. 
I heard a scream, shrill and terrible, meant to send a jolt of terrorized surprise through the prey so that the vampire could close upon it. It really said something about the Red Court, that simple tactic. Animals would never have been startled into immobility that way. It takes a thinking mind trying to reason its way to what was happening to fall for a psychological ploy like that one. And it probably said something about me that it completely failed to startle me. Or maybe it wasn't that big a deal. As the scarecrow, I felt that I had amply proven that I didn't have much of a brain with which to be messed. So, instead of finding a helpless target waiting for him, the Red Court vampire found a field of adamant, invisible power as I brought my shield up. And while it might have supernatural strength, that didn't increase its mass. It bounced off my shield like any other body would, if abruptly meeting someone's front bumper at fifty or sixty miles an hour. There was a flash of blue light, and I released the shield with a little English on it, tossing the vampire to sprawl on the ground on the right-hand side of the hallway, squarely in Murphy's line of fire, and started moving forward again. Murphy calmly put two bullets into the vampire's head, which made an unholy mess of the wall behind it. She put two more into its blood-gorged belly on the way by, and as Susan passed, I heard an ugly, moist sound of impact. Tilly stood there staring for a second, frozen. Then Susan nudged him into motion again. The agent grabbed Rudolph and dragged him after Murphy and me. We found the first human body several steps later, a glassy-eyed young woman covered in her own blood. Beyond her, a man in a suit lay sprawled on his face in death, and the corpses of two more women lay within a few feet of him. There was the most furtive of sounds from a darkened supply closet near an intersection of hallways, its darkened doorway gaping wide open. I didn't let on that I'd heard it. You know what, I said quietly to no one in particular. That makes me mad. I turned, with my blasting rod's runes blazing into sudden life, and roared, Fuego! A spear of white-hot fire erupted from the rod, blowing through the interior wall in a concussive chorus of shattering materials. I slewed it along the length of the closet at waist height, cutting through the wall like an enormous buzzsaw. A surprised scream of inhuman agony greeted my efforts, and I spun in place at once, bringing up my shield again. A second vampire bounded around the intersection ahead, running on all fours along the wall, and threw itself at me. At the same time, another of the rubbery black creatures exploded out of an air vent I would have sworn was too tiny to contain it, coming down from almost straight overhead. I rebounded the first vamp from my shield, as I had only moments before, and Murphy's gun began to bark the instant it bounced off the wall and to the floor. I couldn't get my shield up in time to stop the one dropping down from overhead. It landed on me, a horrible, squishy weight, and with the crystalline perceptions of surging adrenaline, I saw its jaws dropping open, nightmarishly wide, unhinging like a snake's. Its fangs gleamed. Black claws on all four limbs were poised to rake, and its two-foot-long tongue lashed at me as well, seeking exposed skin in order to deliver its stupefying venom. I went down to the floor on my face, hurriedly covering my head with my arms. The vampire raked at me furiously, but the defensive spells on my duster held and prevented its claws from scoring. The vampire shifted tactics quickly, tossing me over like a rodeo cowboy taking down a calf. 
the writhing, slimy tongue lashed at my face, now vulnerable. Susan's hand closed on that tongue in mid-motion, and with a twist of her wrist and shoulders, she ripped it out of the vampire's mouth. The vamp threw its head back and shrieked, and my ex-sweetie's improvised mace smashed its skull down into its torso. The vampire in the closet, still out of sight, continued to wail its agony as I rose again and checked around me to make sure everyone was there. Anyone hurt? We we're fine, Tilly said. For a guy who just had a couple of close encounters with imaginary creatures, he seemed to be fairly coherent. Rudolph had retreated to his happy place and just kept on rocking, crying, and whispering. What about you, Dresden? Peachy. Murphy turned toward the closet, her face grim, her gun in her hand. I shook my head at her. No, let it scream. It'll draw the others to us and away from anyone else. Murphy looked at me for a moment, frowning gently, but nodded. God, that's cold, Harry. I lost my warm fuzzies for the Reds a long time ago, I said. The wounded vampire just wouldn't shut up. Fire's tough on them. Their outer layer of skin is combustible. My attack had probably left it in two pieces or otherwise pared down its body mass. It would be a smoldering lump of agony writhing on the floor in so much pain that it could literally do nothing but scream. And that suited me just fine. We aren't just standing here, are we? Tilly asked. A pair of particularly loud, simultaneous shrieks came through the vents and shafts, ululating over and under each other. They were particularly strident and piercing, and went on for longer than the others. A chorus of lesser shrieks wailed briefly in reply. The Ebes, as generals, sending orders to the troops. It had to be, coordinating the raid and directing it toward the injured member of the team. Indeed we are not. All right, folks. Murph, Tilly, Rudolph, get scarce. Follow Murphy and do whatever the hell she tells you to do if you want to get out of this alive. Murphy grimaced at that. Be careful, Dresden. You too, I said. See you at the church. She gave me a sharp nod, beckoned Tilly, and the two of them started off down another hallway to one of the side stairwells. With any luck, the Ebes had just sent everyone they had running toward me. Even if Murphy and Tilly weren't lucky, I figured they'd probably have only a single sentry to deal with at the most. I gave Murphy even odds of handling that. A fifty percent chance of survival wasn't real encouraging— but it was about fifty percent higher than if they'd stayed. Susan watched them go and then looked at me. You and Murphy never hooked up? You're asking this now? I demanded. Should I fix us both a nice cup of tea in our copious free time? I rolled my eyes and shook my head. No, we haven't. Why not? she asked. A lot of reasons, bad timing, other relationships, you know. I took a long, deep breath and said, Keep an eye out. I've got to pull off something hard here. Right, Susan said. She went back to watching the gloom, her club held ready. I closed my eyes and summoned up my will. Time for some real razzle-dazzle stuff. Illusions are a fascinating branch of magic. There are two basic ways to manage them. One, you can create an image and put it in someone else's head. There's no actual visible object there, but their brain tells them that it's there big as life, a phantasm. It's walking real close to the borders of the laws of magic to go that way, but it could be very effective. 
The second method is the creation of an actual visible object or creature, a kind of hologram. Those things are much harder to produce because you have to pour a lot more energy into them, and while a phantasm uses a foe's own mind to create consistency within the illusion, you've got to do it the hard way with holomancy. Murph's image was easy to fix in mind, as was Rudolph's, though I admit that I might have made him look a bit skinnier and slouchier than he might actually have been. My holomancy, my rules. The hardest was Tilly. I kept getting the image of the actor from the X-Files confabulated with the actual Tilly, and the final result was kind of marginal, but I was in a rush. I pictured the images with as much clarity as I could and sent my will, including a tiny bit of soul fire, into creating the mirages. Soul fire isn't really a destructive force. It's sort of the opposite, actually. And while I used it in fights to enhance my offensive skills, it really shone when creating things. I whispered, Lumen, Camarus, Factum, and released energy into the mental images. The holograms of Murphy, Tilly, and Rudolph shimmered into existence, so absolutely real-looking that even I thought they might have been solid matter. They're coming, Susan said abruptly. She turned to me and practically jumped out of her shoes upon seeing the illusions. Then she waved a hand through Tilly's image, and it flickered straight through. She let out a low whistle and said, Time to go? The thunder of the Ick's heart grew abruptly louder, a vibration I could feel through the soles of my shoes. Vampires boiled out of the central stairwell, a sudden tide of flabby rubbery black bodies and all black eyes, of spotted pink tongues and gleaming fangs. At their center, in their flesh-masked forms, were Esteban and Esmeralda, and looming behind them was the Ick. Susan and I turned and sprinted. The three illusions did the same thing, complete with the sounds of running footfalls and heavy breathing. With a group howl, the vampires came after us. I sprinted as hard as I could, drawing up more of my will. I should have been feeling some of the strain by now, but I wasn't. Go, go, gadget, Faustian bargain. I gathered my will, shouted, Aparturum! and slashed at the air down the hallway with my right hand. I'd used a lot of energy to open the way, and it tore open wide, a diagonal rip in the fabric of space, crooked and off-center to the hallway. It hung there like some kind of oddly geometric cloud of mist, and I pointed at it, shouting wordlessly to Susan. She shouted something back, nodding, while behind us the vampires gained ground with every second. We both screamed in a frenzy of wild fear and rampant adrenaline and hit the way, moving at a dead run. We plunged through into empty air. I let out a shriek as I fell and figured I'd finally taken my last desperate gamble. But after less than a second, my flailing feet hit solid stone, and I dropped into a roll. I came back up to my feet and kept running through what appeared to be a spacious cavern of some kind, and Susan ran beside me. We didn't run far. A wall loomed up out of the blackness, and we barely stopped in time to keep from braining ourselves against it. Jesus, Susan said, panting. Have you been working out? I turned, blasting rod in hand and ready, to wait for the first of the pursuing vampires to appear. There were shrieks and wails and the sound of scrabbling claws, but none of them appeared from the shadows, which just couldn't have been good. Susan and I stood there, panting, a solid wall to our backs, 
unsure of what to do next. And then a soft green light began to rise. It intensified slowly, coming from nowhere and everywhere at the same time, and within a few seconds I realized that we weren't in a cave. We were in a hall. A medieval dining hall, to be precise. I was staring at a double row of trestle tables that stretched down the length of the hall, easily better than a hundred yards, leaving an open aisle between them. Seated at the table were... things. There was a curious similarity among them, though no two of the creatures were the same. They were vaguely humanoid. They wore cloth and leather and armor, all of it inscribed with odd geometric shapes in colors that could only with difficulty be differentiated from black. Some of them were tall and emaciated, some squat and muscular, some medium-sized, and every combination in between. Some of the creatures had huge ears or no ears or odd, saggy chins. None of them carried the beauty of symmetry. Their similarity was in mismatchedness, each individual's body at aesthetic war with itself. One thing was the same. They all had gleaming red eyes. And if ever a gang looked evil, these beings did. They had one other thing in common. They were all armed with knives, swords, axes, and other crueler implements of battle. Susan and I had come in sprinting down the center aisle between the tables. We must have startled our hosts, who reacted only in time to catch the second batch of intruders to come through, and catch them they had. Some of the largest of the beings, easily weighing half a ton themselves, had piled onto the ick and held it, pinned to the earth. Nearby, the mob of vampires were piled more or less together, each one entangled in nets made out of some material that I can only describe as flexible barbed wire. Only Esteban and Esmeralda stood on their feet, back to back, between the ick and the netted minions. There was blood on the floor near them, and two of the native creatures were lying still upon the stone floor. Jesus, Susan whispered. What are those things? I... I swallowed. I think they're goblins. You think? I've never seen one before, I replied. But they match the descriptions I've heard. Shouldn't we be able to handle like a million of them? I snorted. You like those movies too, huh? Her reply was a smile, one touched with sadness. Yeah, I said. I was thinking of you when I saw them too. I shook my head. And no. This is a case of folklore getting it wrong. These guys are killers. They're sneaky, and they're smart, and they're ruthless, like ninjas from Krypton. Look what they did. Susan stared at the downed Red Court strike team for a moment. I watched the wheels turn in her head as she processed what had happened to the vampires and the ick in a handful of seconds, in complete darkness, and in total silence. Um... I guess we'd better make nice then, huh? Susan asked. She slipped her club around behind her back and put on her old reporter's smile, the one she used to disarm hostile interviewees. And then I had a thought. A horrible, horrible thought. I turned slowly around. I looked at the wall I'd been standing against. And then I looked up. It wasn't a wall, exactly. It was a dais, 
a big one. Atop it sat a great stone throne. And upon the throne sat a figure in black armor, covered from head to toe. He was huge, nine feet tall at least, and had a lean, athletic look to him despite the armor. His helm covered his head and veiled his face with darkness, and great, savagely pointed antlers rose up from the helmet, though whether they were adornment or appendage, I couldn't say. Within the visor of that helmet was a pair of steady red eyes, eyes that matched the thousands of others in the hall. He leaned forward, the lord of the goblins of fairy, leader of the wild hunt, nightmare of story and legend, and peer of the queen of air and darkness, Mab herself. Well, murmured the Earl King, well, 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 isn't this interesting?